Chris Taylor now. Two to one game. And Taylor way back. Goodbye. Chris Taylor. Two run homer. And the Dodgers are in front in the second inning. Seventh career postseason home run for Taylor, who loves to swing at the first pitch. We saw it last night. He made a lot of outs on the first pitch. Not tonight's game. Postseason starts. I will tell you, when you go out there for the first game, you are so pumped up. But sometimes when you go out for the second, it's like all the air has been left out of the balloon. That's what's happened to Freed here in the second. 4-2 Dodger lead. Taylor in the air to center field. That ball's on the barrel. That ball is deep, and she is gone. Chris Taylor, a two-run home run. 6-2 Dodgers. And game five is Chris Taylor's game. You just got to make a better pitch, O2. You can't make that mistake in these kinds of games. Chris Taylor covered that ball to center field after a pivotal, pivotal walk by Kuholtz. 2 2. Uh oh. Oh. That's deep left center. Chris Taylor. Not one, not two, but three. Chris Taylor. The night of his life. 7 2 Dodgers. Home run number three for Taylor. Six RBIs. Another two strike homer. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. That was a replay of some highlights of last night's Dodgers Braves game, and I was there. I was there to see those three home runs by Chris Taylor. Dodgers getting off the floor. They were down three games to one in this series. A lot of people thought they were going to get blown out and lose and be done for the year. Nope, they won 11-2 to two in that game. And I got a pretty good bargain going to that game. I got some great seats for a great price because everybody was frustrated. Everybody thought, okay, well, the Dodgers are done. So why would we want to pay a lot of money to see the Dodgers get eliminated? So therefore, I could go to a playoff game and sit in really good seats. Not just a playoff game, but a National League Championship Series game and sit there for the price I would pay for a regular series weekend game. And of course, I waited for the very best moment to purchase the tickets. That was a key. I'm very good at having a feel for StubHub and knowing when people are going to be doing the panic sell and then pouncing on it like a Jewish lion and getting great seats and sitting in much better seats than others who pay the exact same price as me or more. And that makes me feel as good as when the Dodgers win. And when I get both, that's even better. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I'm Todd Dandruff. We tell us, I know it's been 13 days since we've been on here, but I have a good reason, which I will talk about on my first segment of the show. It is October 22nd, 2021 right now, 9.03 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and we're finally doing it. I know the show got delayed a million times, but we're here. We're going to do it tonight, and uh, you'll find out why. And there's, uh, there was going to be someone else here, but they maybe they changed their mind. They 
kind of surprised me with an appearance, and then before I could accept their uh, Skype, I was unable to... Uh, let me see if I'm... I'm not going to let them go this easily. I think I know why this happened. I'm going to try them again. Anyway, we have a free roll going on right now. The free roll is $100 this week. Cal White, you there? There we go. There we go. That was my fault. It was. It was. I should say Skype's fault, but it was uh, my Skype's fault, not your Skype's fault. Anyway, we have a free roll, hundred dollars, and it is fifty for first, thirty for second, twenty for third, and um, this was thanks to Belly Buster, who gave a very nice donation of a point oh one of a Bitcoin a few weeks ago. And I decided to just break off a hundred of it this week and use it. So thank you very much to Belly Buster. I think I forgot to list him in the thread, but I'll correct that shortly. But anyway, it was from him. So it's a hundred dollar free roll this week to make up for the fact that we didn't have a show last week at all. And uh, fifty for first, thirty for second, twenty for third. You can still get in with late registration until nine fifteen, which is nine minutes from now. So you still have time. Go to pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to understand the rules of qualifying for the free money and i can pay you in one of many many ways where money can be sent online if you think of a way to be paid i can probably pay you that way so pm me dan space druff on the forum if you win and i will pay you when i do my payouts which occur in batches so it won't be fast but you'll get the money eventually anyway hello kelwatt uh, happy to have you on the show hey druff how you doing well i am recovered and I'm back, and people might be asking what I recovered from. I recovered from the third COVID vaccine. Now, Calwatt coincidentally had the third COVID vaccine on the same day I did, and uh, he was okay. We didn't coordinate this, it's just the way it fell. But he did not have a problem, though he didn't have a problem with the second shot, whereas I did. So I was much more likely to get a problem with the third shot, and I did. In fact, it was worse than the second shot. And that, plus some other factors, knocked me out of doing the radio show for uh, several days. So anyway. Yeah, I just chalked that up to my general insensitivity, Druff. I mean, I, <laughs> I, got the, I, I had a little bit of a sore arm from it, but that's it. Like, literally nothing. I actually... I think I might have been messed up from the flu shot that I got, to be honest with you. I got one a couple of weeks ago. You know, uh, my girlfriend got the flu shot, and she then got a cold the next day from Benjamin, and that messed her up, the combination of the two, of the flu shot plus the cold. Yeah, our whole family got the flu shot around the same time, and our younger son got got some kind of a cold. It's unclear whether it's, you know, from the shot or from school but apparently it was going around the school so maybe probably from that but uh, pretty much all of us were laid up for a little while well at least the uh, covid vaccine went well for you i at least don't have to worry about getting a proper immune response from it at least i can say i know that the shot is working and i'm getting an immune response because i boy do i get a response from uh, the last two shots but we'll talk about that for our first topic and about the booster in general now that i've already uh, gone through it and i can tell you what it's like at least for me, I know Cal Watt had a very different experience, but I'm going to give my general opinion of the booster. And also, some people have asked me, will you do it again now that you have had a bad experience over the last two shots? Will you do it if there's a fourth shot that is recommended? And I will tell you that during that segment as well. Anyway, the rest of the agenda I will get to shortly, but let me tell you some other stuff. We have 
the phone number to the show, the main number, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. It's always been our number. We also have always had the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone, which forwards to me wherever I go. It's located in a cabin on Mount Charleston, about 40 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. I think there's snow on Mount Charleston right now, though I have not been there all that recently, so I can't tell you, but... Uh, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808 is the phone number to the Mount Charleston line. If you want to text me, don't text the Mount Charleston line because it is an old, 70 rotary, old 70s rotary phone, but you can text me the main number, 775-372-8355 at any time of the day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including when we're on the air. And if, when, if we're on the air, then I will read your text if... You do not say at the beginning not to, or I'll probably read it. If I think it's a really dumb text or it's like just something personal to me, then I probably won't, but no guarantees. The call to listen line is something you can use to listen to the show, and it is uh, something you just call up and listen. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, the internet. You don't even need a good cell phone connection, and it won't use any of your data. You just call up. The number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or you can call the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. They both work the same way. T-Mobile will cost you one cent a minute. Every other cell provider in the U.S. should be able to call it for free, or at least as long as you have unlimited minutes. And same with uh, anybody who has a way to call numbers in the U.S. for a flat rate or for free. So... It's a great thing to use to listen to the show if uh, you don't have good cell reception to do the streaming. If you want to listen in the archives, we have a lot of ways to do it. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartMedia, the TuneIn app, which can be used to listen live and in the archives, the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line, where you can use for the archives, and... Uh, the Stitcher app, which we've had since the beginning. In fact, uh, little known fact, Stitcher contacted us when we did a previous show, a Donkdown Radio, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was one that I was involved with and Brandon was involved with, and Stitcher actually contacted us when they were very small. And they said, hey, we've had some requests for Donkdown Radio. So we said, okay, put us on there. That was the first app we were ever on. And now Poker Fraud Alert Radio is on a ton of apps, and if you want me to add poker fraud alert radio to another app that carries podcasts let me know and i will do so and by the way those listening in the archives which is most of you the vast majority of you you can listen live and just check the schedule twitter.com slash poker fraud alert we're usually on sunday or not sunday on friday night sometimes on sunday night but usually on friday night uh but uh, check the twitter and you'll see some kind of updates about when we will be on next try to bring it on friday so if you want to listen live you can do that too we are a live show and a lot of people don't realize that. Here's the rest of the agenda after I talk about the vaccine booster. Of course, we're going to have various World Series stories. We had two more weeks of the World Series go by as uh, we have not been on for 13 days. Phil Helmuth, dominating. Absolutely dominating. Keeps making final tables. Won a bracelet again and almost won another bracelet. He is just really killing it every event he's entering. So we're going to talk about that. We'll also talk about his horrible behavior that occurred during a streamed event, the seven-card stud final table, and that uh, 
raised the issue about favoritism at the World Series, which, of course, I've been talking about for many years. And only now does the rest of the world wake up and say, maybe there's too much favoritism at the World Series. You think? Yes, there is. And we'll talk about that. Adam Friedman, he did something pretty amazing. He won the 10K Dealer's Choice event at the World Series, which is a pretty tough event. It's whoever has the dealer button uh, chooses which game to play. He won that three World Series in a row. I can't say three years because there was no event in 2020, but he won in 18, 19, and 21, and there was no 20 event. So he's won a tough event, three World Series in a row. That's an amazing accomplishment. So congrats to him. We'll talk about that a bit more. The U.S. has decided to allow vaccinated international travelers into the country on November 8th. And November 8th happens to be during the main event, right at the beginning of the World Series main event. And before the World Series said anything, I said, hmm, you know what? It looks like now that if a non-American player wants to come into the U.S. by plane, and uh, if they want to play the main event, they can register into day two, as much as I hate that, on the second of the day twos, and they will be able to play on November 9th. Well, sure enough, the World Series acted very quickly. And I kind of wonder if I brought their attention to it because I did the hashtag WSOP. So whether it was me or not, they very quickly acted and made an announcement that they're going to be changing the World Series main event schedule. And indeed, it was changed very quickly. So I'll tell you about the main event schedule now that has been changed as a result of this uh, rule from the U.S. And I will tell you the way the schedule is now and what it was before. Sean Deeb claims that someone broke into his Rio room at 6 a.m. and tried to steal from him while he was sleeping, and he woke up and caught the guy. So we'll tell you about that weird story. Seems like every year we get some kind of bad story out of the Rio. Some are true, some are not true, some is kind of hard to tell. I'll tell you what I think of Sean Deeb's claims. We have a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. This is not really a World Series topic, but it is something that kind of got people's attention because of the World Series, at Phil Helmuth's seven-card stud final table where he acted terribly, uh, longtime poker figure Jack McClelland was there at the final table, and he was wearing a hat and a mask with a logo that said uh, chess roll. And people said, well, what, what is chess roll? And he didn't really explain it, he, but he was wearing the gear. So I looked into this, and I found a pretty interesting story about Jack McClelland and Chess Roll. And believe it or not, he and another older poker figure, these are two guys who have been around in poker forever, they are kind of in a, in a dispute, what it appears, in what is a bizarre race to offer a chess with dice game. Yeah, you heard that right. Chess with dice. Jack McClelland versus another old school poker pro. Yeah, I've been waiting for chess with dice for my whole life. Drew. Right. I imagine uh, a big race for this. Imagine that uh, you and somebody else are competing very, very furiously to make sure that happens. That's, that's what's going on in a way here. So I'll tell you about that. I have a Mike Postle case update yet again involving the uh, involuntary bankruptcy we are trying to force on him. He actually has disclosed uh, an amended list of creditors, and among the creditors is his mom. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's uh, 
It was in his filings. We'll, t- we'll talk about that latest development with Mike Possel. The Boring Company is not only a company to work for if you're a very boring person, but it's also a company that is owned by Elon Musk that makes tunnels under Las Vegas to create a new way to travel in Las Vegas that does not involve the roads or even an above-ground tramway. This is using Teslas underground, and they already have one of those tunnels under the Las Vegas Strip. But they have gotten permission to do a lot more than that in Las Vegas, and I will tell you what their plans are. Dan Bilzerian claims that billionaire Alec Gores wants a $50 million buy-in freeze-out heads-up match between them where the winner walks away with $100 million. So I'll play some clips from Dan Bilzerian on somebody's YouTube show, and I'll tell you whether I believe this is ever going to happen. Seven Stars Insider creator Daryl McEwen has passed away at the age of 72. He was the one who's the creator, owner, and operator of Seven Stars Insider, which was a website and newsletter about the Seven Stars program and also about the Total Rewards, Caesars Rewards program in general. And he covered a lot. Like If you read this newsletter, you learned a lot about the different Caesars properties every month. Some things had to do with the rewards program, and some was just about the properties in general, like uh, new entertainment there, new restaurants there, or funny or stupid things happening there. And I I read the Insider newsletter. I I read it uh, religiously every month when I was a Seven Stars. Uh, Once I went out to Diamond, I wasn't reading it as much, but uh, I still was sometimes because it still has some interesting information. Anyway, he's passed away, and this is shortly after he said he's stepping away, or actually closing down, not stepping away, but actually closing down the newsletter. And then about six weeks later, he was gone. So I'll tell you some more about uh, Daryl McEwen including something that was learned about him after his death that was a pretty significant thing about him that he hid. Marriott was going to operate the troubled Fountain Blue Las Vegas. Do you know about this, Calawat, the Fountain Blue Las Vegas? Not at all. Well, that's because it never opened. It was a project during the late 2000s, during that boom, or I should say the mid-2000s, during the big boom where Las Vegas was rapidly growing and real estate was going up, up, up. And Fountain Blue was supposed to be a pretty big deal. And it's across from where Resorts World currently is. It's across the street from there. But it was never completed. And it ran out of money in 2010. It was greatly hurt by the 2008 financial crash and it never recovered. 2010, they completely stopped construction and it's been sitting there unfinished ever since as an eyesore. And there's been various attempts for various uh, other companies to buy it and complete the project and open it, but it just hasn't happened. So the latest was that it was going to be a Marriott property. In fact, it was on their website, and it was going to be a Marriott property in 2023. It was going to be their first strip property in the year, or in, at, at any point, it was going to open in 2023. It's not going to be anymore. They're backing away from it, so we'll talk about what happened there. Another uh, civil forfeiture scandal has occurred. This involves the seizure of over $100,000 from a Vietnamese immigrant looking to buy land in the U.S. Looks like a pretty bad story. So we will talk about that as our final topic of the night. Free roll. If you are not in yet, you will not get in because the late registration period has ended. So I guess uh, we can get going. Remember, we have a chat room 
if you are listening live, you can go into chat. And I don't really talk in the chat room during the show because I'm busy doing the show. But I do occasionally look into it or look at it. And uh, I see there's a few people in there right now. You should only bother to go in if you're listening live. Otherwise, nobody will be there. But I do believe you can scroll back somewhat. In fact, I know you can. So if you do want to see the way the chat room went and you're listening to the archives, I guess you can go in. You do need a forum account in good standing to get into the chat room. And CalWatt is overjoyed that it is not a flash chat anymore. It may be a very old chat room from 2007, but it is a working chat room that doesn't need flash. Works on every device now. Yeah, well, we went from non-working on devices without flash to working with everything just old. I think that, I think that's a step up. So, okay, let's go to the first topic, which is about the vaccine booster that I got. So, first of all, we need to discuss uh, the eligibility of the vaccine booster because there's a lot of confusion about this. You've probably seen different timetables talked about, primarily six months and eight months, and you might be confused. Do I need it? Do I not need it? Or can I even get it if it hasn't been eight months since my second shot? And the answer is yes, you can. So the Pfizer has been proven to degrade over time. The Moderna is doing better. So if you've got Moderna and uh, Johnson & Johnson, I'm not sure about, but Pfizer for sure degrades over time. And if it's been five or more months since your second Pfizer shot, then you definitely have less protection by a pretty wide margin compared to what you had shortly after that shot. So let's say you got the shot at the end of May, which would be about five months. Uh, You would have been a lot more protected from COVID in June than you are right now. And that's a fact. That's uh, been studied in Israel and other places, and the Pfizer definitely degrades a lot Uh, By the five-month mark. And by the six-month mark, it's degraded even more, and it just keeps going and getting worse and worse. But again, we got to talk about the good part of that. I was about to say, there is one good part, part, and that is it continues to protect you very well from death and severe illness. So if the main reason you got vaccinated is because you're worried about either dying or being on a ventilator or spending a long time in the hospital, then the good news is... Uh, you're still protected and then you don't need the booster if that's really your only reason for getting vaccinated because it still works very well for that. And that's why if you look at the people who are hospitalized for COVID presently or dying of COVID presently, they are either very old or in very bad shape otherwise that has nothing to do with COVID. They already had a lot of major health problems or they're unvaccinated. But vaccinated healthy people, even ones vaccinated earlier this year, are typically not dying or even getting hospitalized from COVID. So you may see see something like Colin Powell, who was 84 years old and fully vaccinated, who just died of COVID, but he also had uh, multiple myeloma. So obviously that's not comparable to most people listening to this show who are probably healthy and got fully vaccinated. So if that's you, if you're healthy or at least semi-healthy and fully vaccinated, then you're probably not going to die of COVID or end up in the hospital from COVID, even if you don't get this booster. However, as far as getting sick and as far as suffering 
permanent damage from COVID, like lung damage or other forms of what they call long COVID, where you just uh, never get completely better, that is still very much on the table if you got the Pfizer vaccine several months ago and don't get a booster. That doesn't mean if you get COVID that you're necessarily going to get lung damage or some form of long COVID, but the chance is much higher of that than it was before because of the time that has passed. So that's why people are getting the booster. And you may say, well, what about eight months? Why do they say I don't need it till eight months? Well, I think that's actually stupid because there is not that much interest in the booster. In fact, they've been throwing away excess doses of the vaccine, which have been expiring. There's been some controversy about that because some other countries are saying, hey, we need this and you're just letting it expire. And for that reason, I don't think that they have to worry about deciding how long it's been. Really, at this point, I believe if you want a booster, you should be able to get it. But that's what I believe in the way it actually is, of course, are two different things. But I think it's stupid. But anyway, you may be wondering if you can even get it at less than eight months or if you should get it. Or if you were to do it before eight months, might something happen to you? Or might there be something bad about doing it? So I'm going to try to clear all of this up and also talk about my own experience with the booster, which, as you've already heard, wasn't very good side effect-wise. So the eight-month thing was something that always bothered me because I felt that was too conservative. I felt that uh, people should be getting the booster at six months and five if they want it. That's, that's what I would set as the timetable for the booster, saying that uh, anyone who wants it at five can go get it at five. But if you uh, don't want to get it at five, then we recommend getting it at six. With the asterisk of if you only care about uh, severe illness and death, uh, then don't bother with it. That, that should be the policy, but it's not the policy. Instead, the policy is that at six months, there's a wide variety of different reasons where you qualify for the booster. You have certain pre-existing conditions, or you're over 65, uh, there's a long list of them you can find on the CDC website. I'm not going to read them all to you. But something that might be of interest to you guys, especially those of you who are poker pros, is that one legal reason to get the vaccine at the six-month mark is having an occupation that puts you at excess risk of COVID. And what that's defined as is spending a lot of time indoors at your job with a large number of people, some of whom are unvaccinated. Now, what job could you think of that might be associated with this show where you'd be spending a lot of time indoors with a lot of people, a lot of these people or almost all of them are strangers to you, and you can't control who's there, and some of them may be unvaccinated. Hmm. What what job might that be? Prostitute. Yes. That, that, how do you know I was going to say that? Oh, yes, a prostitute. So for all you prostitutes out there uh, who have uh, multiple clients at once, you now qualify. But also, poker players, poker pros, qualify for it because you, you tick all the boxes there for what's considered a high-risk profession. And I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to stretch anything by the CDC's actual definitions because they don't have a list of acceptable jobs for this. They have a description of of what uh, constitutes a high-risk job, and Poker Pro completely fits that. In fact, it fits that probably better than just about any job I can think of. So if you are a Poker Pro 
or even if you're a poker, a poker semi-pro who spends a lot of time in uh, card rooms to supplement your income, even if you do other things to make money, then you legally qualify for the vaccine at the six-month mark from your second shot. Now, it's also important to understand that you are not taking away the shot from other people. Because some people say, oh, you know, I could get it at six months. And I know technically, technically I qualify, but I, I really don't want to do it because I feel like a jerk. You know, I'm taking it away from somebody else, like some old person who really needs it or some immunocompromised person who really needs it. You know, I'll, I'll wait till eight. Y- you don't have to. Because uh, as I said, they are uh, throwing these away because they have so many excess vaccines. There just isn't enough interest in this booster shot compared to the original vaccine where there was uh, a lot more interest. There's, there's a yeah, lot of people... Pursuant to that, Druff, pursuant to what you're talking about, far be it for me to tell people to, uh, you know, game the system or whatever, but they, when you go in there for this booster shot, they ask you what pre-existing condition you have, and you can just tell them anything. They don't check anything. They don't... You, you could tell them you have whatever you want. And normally I wouldn't even mention that because obviously, like you said, you don't want to take shots away from people, but they're, they're throwing them out, man. They're throwing them out, you know? Yeah, and also I want to say some places don't even ask you anything. Like when I went for my shot, I uh, just walked in. They said, are you here for the appointment? Yes. Are you Todd? Yes. And they okay, come over here. And they gave me my shot. Okay, goodbye. So <laughs> that was how mine went. So um, now exactly. I... I didn't have uh, any problem. I wouldn't have had a problem if they asked me. I'm just saying that what uh, Cal Watt's saying is correct. And also, if you are a poker pro or poker semi-pro, or if you work, at, work in any other profession where you're indoors with a lot of strangers, it doesn't have to be thousands, just indoors with a bunch of strangers, some of whom aren't vaccinated or some of whom may not be vaccinated, then by the CDC's own rules, you qualify at six months. So you don't have to worry. You don't qualify. And there is no downside of getting it at six months instead of eight months. It's only an upside in that uh, you're giving yourself more protection. So if you're going to get the food booster, I would suggest doing it at six, not at eight. If you're not going to get it at all, that's fine. But you should do it at six. And if the alternative is that they're going to throw it out, you know, like, why not? Like, just do it if you're so inclined. Right. And that that's why I was bothered that they are putting these restrictions on, on it all. They should just put out there what they recommend. And then if you want to get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. And it should be that. You shouldn't even have to answer these things. And all this does discourage people from getting it who uh, might otherwise want it. So They're trying to probably phase it in. They're trying to potentially avoid a mad rush of people i suppose doing it you know i don't know i think that was the goal initially and and maybe because they couldn't tell what kind of interest was going to be in this booster that they did that but they should be able to see by now that there is not a ton of interest in it at least not enough to where they are going to run out so i think they they should just open the floodgates at this point say whoever wants to get it get it here's what we recommend anyway point is very easy to get if you want to get it. And I recommend getting it at six months. It has been seen in studies that there's a big difference between the protection you're going to have from mild up through mid-level illness, including illness that can permanently damage you, if you have this booster versus not having it, at least with Pfizer. But even with Moderna, I would recommend getting it, but it's less urgent because Moderna has like three times the dose that Pfizer does. So... Moderna 
seems to be doing better as far as lasting longer without degrading as much. So if you want to wait eight with the Moderna, that makes a little more sense. But you can also do it at six. If you want to eight, wait uh, for the Pfizer, of course you can, but I recommend doing it at six months because there's a lot of data on that suggesting that's what you need. Now you got Pfizer also, right, uh, Calwatt? Yep, I got Pfizer. I got the booster right on the, the six-month mark. And uh, I, <laughs> I feel bad, man. Unlike you, I didn't have any consequences at all. I'm, I don't... Uh, I do legit qualify for it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I kind of got it just because I'm like, why not? You know, I yeah. might as well. Well, I, I had two reasons to get it. Uh, first of all, I was hoping that maybe I could uh, go to the end of the World Series of Poker. And second... I was hoping I could attend uh, some late round Dodgers playoff games. As you heard from the opening here, I did attend one just uh, yesterday, but uh, I'm hoping I can go to a World Series game, though the Dodgers have to do a lot of work there in Atlanta to make that happen. And even if I don't end up going to another Dodgers game this year because they get eliminated in Atlanta, uh, I still have the World Series of Poker that is going on, including the main event. And now I have that as an option open to me. So let me tell you about my experience with this booster. And then I'll tell you if I regret having done it, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do going forward if there's another one to get. So my second shot was a little bit atypical, the reaction I got compared to other people. Now the side effects I got were typical. I got the very common side effects. I got a lot of them, so I I had a worse than average reaction to it, but I didn't get anything unusual. There are some unusual reactions to to it that I did not get. So, for example, some people get like a big ball that appears under their armpit for a few days. I didn't get that. Some people get a weird rash that appears uh, shortly after the injection. I did not get that. And there's a, a number of other weird things that can happen that go away from the vaccine. I didn't get any of that stuff, but I got the typical side effects. I'm talking about from the second shot back in April. I got uh, the fatigue. I got the muscle and joint pain. I got the fever. I got a little bit of nausea. Drough, 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 drough. The the fatigue and the muscle and joint pain, that's just because you're old, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's all that is. And and then uh, I also got um, I got a headache, but it wasn't from the shot. It was actually just from being in bed so much that I got a tension headache, but that wasn't a direct result. And anyway, it, it was pretty typical stuff, though, as far as the second shot side effects, if you're going to get them. So I got common side effects. I just got a lot of them. And what was unusual for me was the time progression. So most people, if they're going to get bad side effects from the second shot, it's going to start around the six-hour mark. If you get to six hours and you do not have any noticeable side effects other than some arm pain, you're probably not going to get any noticeable side effects. If you get to the nine-hour mark, then you're in really good shape. Well, I got to the nine-hour mark, and I was feeling good. In fact, I was doing stuff around the house and uh, doing dishes. And, like, I, I was feeling fine. I, I had a little bit of arm pain. That was it. This is from the second shot. And I thought, wow, I actually dodged all the bad side effects. It's, I can't imagine it's going to be a problem at this point if it's nine hours and there's nothing bad. Then we got to 13 hours, and I still did not feel sick. And I still didn't feel bad. But all of a sudden, I felt very tired. And I said, oh, well, 
it is five in the morning. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be going to sleep now anyway. So, yeah, I'm more tired than usual. And that's probably somewhat from the vaccine, but, you know, big deal. So I'm a little more tired than usual. But I, then I started feeling real tired. So I got in bed. Three hours later, I woke up and all those side effects were there. The massive fatigue, the muscle and joint pain, the chills, which I forgot to mention, and the fever. So I was like, crap. <laughs> just It was just delayed. Well, I had read that just about everybody who got bad side effects from the second shot, it lasted right around 24 hours. Or from the moment you start feeling them, in 24 hours, you're usually better. So the whole thing is usually like a 30-hour process, where six hours after the shot, you start feeling side effects, if you're going to. Then you have them for about 24. After 24, you're all better. So 30 hours later, you're, you're almost fully back to normal. Well, that wasn't my case. My problems started 13 hours into it. And I didn't really feel sick until about 16 hours into it after sleeping a few hours. And then it dragged for days. So here I was waiting for a day to pass and said, okay, I'll feel better. Nope. Next day I feel just as bad. And I say, crap, (laughs) what happened to it being gone the next day? Nope, not for me. So anyway, it took until three days from the time I got the shot until I was starting to improve a lot. And I still wasn't all better that day. So I thought, well, this sucks. And then not only that, once I felt all better, or just about all better, then uh, I started having these lingering problems over the next few days where just some weird things were happening where I didn't quite feel 100%. So finally, about the six-day mark is when I really, really felt all better. But if I want to talk about the really difficult point, it was kind of from like the 13-hour mark after the first shot, or after the second shot, for about uh, 48 full hours after that. Is about how, so it was like two really full bad days of this. That was the second shot. So I wasn't looking forward to the third shot, but I talked to a number of people, including my own mom, who had the second shot and didn't get a good reaction with it. And then the third shot was cake. Third shot was real easy. So I was semi-optimistic coming in, especially my mom being half of me genetically. That's the one that's most relevant, obviously. I thought, okay, well, there's a good chance I'm going to be okay from this third shot. In fact, she got the second shot side effects worse than I did. So uh, I came into the third shot feeling somewhat optimistic. And the optimism, the optimism was misplaced. It was a very similar progression for me for the second shot. Now, I determined from looking back at the second shot that I pretty much had everything in half speed. Everything was, if you take the normal timetable of the shot and uh, just slow it down by a factor of two, that's about the way it progressed for me on the second shot. Well, that same thing happened here. So I was feeling very good, like, like nine hours after the shot. I remember I was uh, with Benjamin, and I was saying, Ben, I feel really good right now. I mean, I, I even forget that I had the shot today. It was, uh, I feel totally normal right now. I mean, my arm hurts a tiny bit, but other than that, I feel great. And Ben said, yeah, but remember what happened last time? Don't, don't feel so confident. <laughs> and he was right. I said, no, 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 I know, but it just, wow, I, I, I just hope it doesn't happen again because I, I feel really good right now. Well, he was right because at the 11-hour mark, I started feeling really tired. I go, oh, no, here we go again. Your immune system just slow plays you, man. It, that's what it was doing. And then uh, it hit me 
two hours earlier than the previous one. It was 11 hours instead of 13, but I was really tired about 11 hours. And a few hours later, there came all the side effects that happened the previous time. And I had the bad fatigue, the bad muscle and joint pain, the fever, the chills. Except this time, the fever is worse. This time, the fever got near 103. It got to 102.8. And I started wondering, when do I take something for this? Because I was really holding back taking any kind of pain reliever or fever reducer because I did not want to interfere with the vaccine doing its work. So I was refusing to take any of this stuff. But then I said, well, like, how, how high do I let the fever get? If it gets to like 104, do I take something? Like I, it was hard for me to let it get past 104. I said, at 104, I have to. If it gets to 104. I, I haven't had 104 since I was uh, a kid. But if it gets to 104, I, I got to take something. If it, maybe even at 103 and a half. Well, we never got there. We never quite made it to 103, but it did sit consistently in the mid-102s for for the entire day. And boy, was the fatigue bad. It was the worst fatigue I felt in my life. What would happen is I would get myself out of bed. I was so sick of being in bed. I couldn't even sleep because I was hurting so much. Like My muscle and joints were hurting so much I couldn't sleep. And and my neck and like I had a headache too, an indirect headache from the being in bed so long. So I just couldn't sleep. But if I tried to get out of bed, I'd be awake for like, three minutes, and then I'd feel like I need to get back in bed. And that's the, the way the whole day went. I didn't do anything other than just lay in bed. I also had, like, no appetite. Massive fatigue. It wasn't quite as bad as what I've heard described for people who have a really bad case of COVID, where they, like, can't even get up to go to the bathroom. I was able to do that, but, like, if I'd be up for a few minutes, I'd feel like I need to get back in bed. That's how I felt, and I've never had it that bad before. So, Drew, when you're sick... How often do you take your temperature like in a day? I'm going to guess it's um, half a dozen times a day. That, you're probably right. About that? Yeah. I, I don't know what it is, man, but when I am in a little bit of fever or whatever, I don't even take my temperature. You know, I don't even bother. I just like to see where I am. So I always like to see where everything stands. But anyway, I, 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 so I had the bad muscle and joint pain, the t- really bad fatigue, which is much worse than last time. Muscle and joint pain, also worse, but not way worse than last time. I had chills, though, really, to be honest, the previous time, the chills were worse than than this time. And uh, I had kind of like a constant mild nausea to where I didn't feel like I was going to throw up, but I kind of like, it was like just uncomfortable, like an uncomfortable mild nausea where even thinking about food was very unappetizing. And where that just kind of added to the whole uncomfortable feeling. And... uh, I just felt awful that entire day. And then the next day, I had a very hard time sleeping, but the next day uh, I I still felt really lousy, even though the fever declined to like 101-something instead of 102-something. And I still wasn't taking anything. Then, near the end of that day, I developed a new problem. I started getting real bad uh, stomach issues. Diarrhea, stomach pain, just a lot of stomach issues came out out of nowhere. So I'm sure that had to do with it. So I had that now on top of it. Then finally, the next day, I finally got some good improvement, really on the same timetable. So I had like really 48 full hours of feeling awful and then some significant improvement where I still have some problems and some issues. Also, I I forgot to mention something I had this time I didn't have last time was dizziness. I had uh, like I I had a hard time walking around without worrying I'm going to fall down. I didn't fall down, but uh, I, I was like holding the banister when I'm going down the stairs. And, and when I'm walking around, I'm just really 
aware of the fact that I'm not quite feeling normal as far as the you know just walking around. Like I I was dizzy this time for those two days as well. I just had so many things at once, and finally I had that day where things were improving. I still had the diarrhea, but I was willing to accept that with the My other things. God, Druff, how many symptoms did you have? Like a ton. Incredible. That's what I'm saying here. Like it's a, so, so you see why I kept delaying radio. Uh, now it wasn't just that. Some of the radio delay also had to do with some internet problems, where the the internet was being intermittent, and I didn't want to try to run the show and have it fail. So it wasn't just this. There were some other days which were missed because of. Uh, internet problems and other things going on which are unrelated to this but uh when there were these like okay no i think we'll be good tomorrow no i think we'll be good tomorrow that that was that was the reason that was happening was that uh a lot of it was just not feeling as good as i thought i would i also had problems where i thought i was better and then i kind of just felt fatigued and i felt like okay enough to just be around at home but not do a whole long show because the truth is if you think about how long this show is when I sit down, if I feel crappy already, like it's just going to be a terrible show, and I'm going to hate it. I'm going to hate doing it. Because uh, if I feel crappy at the end, that's one thing, because I know it's about to be over. I can't sit down for a six-hour show where i got to talk the whole time and feel crappy at the start. So if I feel like I'm about to sit down and, and feel lousy at the start, that's when I delay the show. So that kept happening. Anyway, now you guys see why the show didn't happen. If you wonder how am I feeling today, I'm fine. Uh, obviously, I couldn't be that bad if I went to a Dodgers playoff game yesterday. So yesterday I would have done it, but yesterday I went to go see the Dodgers game. Uh, on Wednesday, you wouldn't want to do it either, right? I mean, e- even though it would be physically daunting to talk for six or seven hours, you probably aren't feeling all that motivated or enthusiastic about doing it when you're still not feeling great, right? Right. That's what I'm saying. Like the show wouldn't even yeah. be good, and I just would be like not enjoying it the whole time. So that's yeah. You'd be like, ah, how many of those a dick? And, you know, that's normal. <laughs> Let's just move on. Let's go to the next thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So so and like when it happens towards the end, I can actually kind of fake that I'm feeling okay and pull myself over the finish line. Like there there have been some times I felt really lousy at the end, and you could never tell from listening to me. But uh, I, I couldn't do it the entire time. So that's the reason we had our delays. And I feel okay. We would have done it yesterday if it would not have been for the uh, Dodgers game I went to. But I thought I might go. That's why on Wednesday I said, okay, it's going to be Friday. Because I thought I might go Thursday to the Dodgers. And I didn't want to trick people and say we're going to have it on Thursday. I go, oh, no, 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 we're not doing Thursday because of the Dodgers. So I just said, let's just do it Friday when there is no Dodgers game. And I know for sure I can do it. So that's why we are here tonight. And uh, so we should be back normally next week on, on Friday. I don't see a reason why we would not be. And uh, before I I close out this segment about the booster, I want to talk about the World Series of Poker and also whether I would do this booster again. So regarding doing it again, like let's say in April 2022, I would do it if it does seem there's a need to do it to give myself the protection I'd like to have. However, I will do one thing differently because some people have asked me, are you really going to do this to yourself every six months? Are you going to put yourself through these type of symptoms for a few days every six months? That sounds awful. And the answer is yes, it is awful. And I was thinking this as I was going through these symptoms that I don't know if I can bring myself to do this every six months. It's just, it's just too often to voluntarily make myself feel this way for a few days. I, I had to think about it. Like, am I really going to do this if it comes up again? Because now I think the chance is pretty high. This is the way I'm going to feel every single time. 
So what I decided is I'm going to do like a compromise with myself. Instead of choosing between not doing it and doing it but not taking any pain meds, I'm going to do it but take pain meds as necessary. Because the worst part of this was all of the pains. Because that also made it hard to sleep. It, it, the whole thing made, was so much worse because I could, could not take anything for it. So while it's not ideal to take something for it during while, you know, while the booster's working, it's not even proven that this harms it. It's just a, a theory. It's a theory that taking uh, anti-inflammatories or any kind of painkiller could interfere with the vaccine working as intended. However, it is believed more that you just don't want to take something before you get the shot. But taking it after you get the shot is much less of a deal. And in fact, it may not even matter that much if you do it. So there's some people that will take Tylenol or something else after and not even care. When I say some people, I don't mean morons. I mean actual doctors. I mean people who are very intelligent, people who are very well informed with things like this. And they, it's just their opinion that painkillers after the fact don't really harm anything. So it's possible that's the case. And I was putting myself through torture for nothing. But anyway, I, I've decided I'm not going to tolerate these type of terrible side effects for days every six months. I'll just take the painkillers and hopefully they'll moderate it some. If I take them and they either don't work or uh, this, it's like still terrible, then maybe I, I will think about whether I want to continue doing this or maybe not doing it every six months. Maybe do maybe doing it every eight, even though I just told you not to. So now, what if, what if you were like me, Druff, and every time you got the shot, you had absolutely zero side effects? Would you then? Just do it on a regular basis? I would, but I'd actually do something else. I may actually be paranoid enough to go like get an antibody test afterward to make sure that's really working. Oh, now uh, you're trying to get me paranoid. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you. That, that's, that was my... Well, I'll tell you because I had that thought. When I had the second shot and I went 13 hours without really any kind of reaction other than a little arm pain, a little of me saying, crap, you know, like I'm, I'm happy I didn't get a reaction, but uh, what if this didn't work well? What if I'm going to be vulnerable? And then then that concern went away when everything hit me very hard. But uh, um, that that would be the way I'd feel right now if I were you, is that I'm glad I did not go through all this crap, and I'm glad I can take another booster in the future and probably be fine. But yeah. is it working? <laughs> like, that would be my, my concern. So I would probably go get an antibody test at, at some point, and uh, like some point after one of the shots and see if I really have a lot of antibodies to this. Well, you know, odds of me of them injecting me with some random thing three times, it's probably pretty unlikely. So you would think that I would have, if I had no reaction every single time, you would think that probably it's just, I, I'm just not having a reaction to it, you know? Yeah, I think you're fine. I'm just saying I'd probably be paranoid about that. Uh, at least that's one thing I don't have to worry about. I don't have to say, wow, I didn't get enough reaction to this. I, I hope it's working. Man, I hope your paranoia is not contagious. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Going down... But the the reason I said that I I had no real great reason for getting it is I'm not I'm not really putting myself in situations where I'm very likely going to be exposed anyway. You know I'm not doing a whole lot of uh, it's just in my day to day work. You know I'm not exposed to lots of people. I'm not playing at the World Series or anything like that. But I kind of just figured I might as well get it if I had a a motivating reason like you do. Um, where you want to play the World Series and you want to do, um, you know, some other stuff like seeing baseball games and stuff. 
I don't know, man. The number of symptoms you said, though, it sounds pretty bad. I it was. Know. I mean, I, I hated it. I, I, I can't tell you how much I hated those two days, especially the, the first of the two bad days was just a horrible day I would not want to repeat. It just, it was, that was, remembering that day is what's making me say, I'm going to do the painkillers next time. Because like, I, I could not go through that day every six months. And then the one after it, which was a little better, but still pretty bad. Like to, to have those two every six months, it's just far too often. So um, I, I have to consider that because a, a lot was hitting me and it just, it, it was no fun. I'll, I'll say that. So anyway. Although me, me having just gotten over a cold, I mean, one of the underrated things I think is the feeling that you get when you you finally get over some kind of sickness. You know, you kind of wake up and it's like the dawn of a new day, and I, I think it's kind of an underrated feeling. You know. Well, you know what? I just had that feeling also because I had a cold. Also, I got that cold from Benjamin, so I had to. I actually had to wait uh, to even. Uh, I, I should have looked into it before, but it didn't. I I hadn't even looked into the vaccine and the possibility and all that while I had this cold, and then I had to make sure a few days passed from the cold. And then, then I said, "Okay, I think enough times passed." And then I went and got the uh, the vaccine. But yeah, I know how that feels. Like I, the day the day I felt significantly better from this vaccine, it was such a relieving feeling because it it was I finally got a good night of sleep and woke up and I go, "Okay, it's only been a few minutes now, but I actually feel a lot better." And I got out of bed and I go, "Yep, I feel a lot better. It's not perfect, but I can tell I'm a lot better. I was actually able to drive that day." Because I couldn't drive for the first two days, I was just so dizzy and I so, so fatigued. So I, I was yeah, uh, yeah. When you're sick, it's like a death march. You, you wake up and you're like, oh god, I don't even want to wake up. I feel like shit. Yeah, you know? yeah. It, it was terrible. So um, I'm glad that's passed. And having gone through that, and this will bring me to my last part of this segment. Having gone through that, I said to myself, I do not want this to go to waste. I do not want to. have... I do not want to have to done this for nothing because like you, there's many times where I'm really going through long stretches where I'm not in major positions of risk. But uh, two things that were coming up very soon, which were of significant risk, were uh, going to Dodger Stadium with over 50,000 people crammed in one place. Now, yes, it's outdoors, but uh, some of it isn't, like when you're walking through the hallways or uh, getting a Dodger dog or uh, even just sitting there with that many people outdoors, you've got to think it's an elevated risk. And then, of course, the World Series of Poker. So I thought, okay, i got to do these things after going through all these side effects. Now I've really got to do it. So I uh, went to that Dodgers game, even though the series was looking pretty bad for them, down three games to one and with no starting pitcher for Thursday. And uh, I bought the tickets. I went. Turned out they won very easily, so that was nice, and Benjamin had a good time there. Took him. And the World Series of Poker. What about that? Well, that's still going on. In fact, if you take a look at the 3K Limit Hold'em event, you will see that one Eric Benzamokin is playing right now. He's playing the 3K Six-Handed Limit Hold'em. Hopefully he's still in, because I know he just took a bad beat. He was texting me. I was thinking about this, and I'm not going to end up being there for any of the uh, Limit Hold'em events. This is the last one going right now, this uh, 3K Limit Hold'em. Really, most of the events I wanted to play already concluded. But there is the main event, and uh, there's a PLO8 event that is coming up uh, fairly soon, like I think on October 31st. In any case, I really would like to go. So there is a... uh, 
pretty good chance you will see me at the World Series of Poker at some point. I'll leave it at that for right now. So I'm still finalizing my plans. But uh, there is a fairly good chance that 2021 will not pass without me playing at least one World Series of Poker event. It's not going to be my usual full schedule of events. Well, full schedule by my standards, not like uh, people like Ryan LaPlante who play like 45 events. I'm talking about, I usually play like 10, but not going to be anything like that this year. It's too late for that. And it's not like I'm going tomorrow. I'm not. I can't. You may see me there towards the end. I will give you more information as we get closer and as my plans are finalized. And if you're going to be there towards the end, please let me know. I'll be happy to meet up with you. Or if you see me in the hallways, uh, welcome to come up to me and say hello. If I don't know you, (laughs) please say who you are quickly. So uh, I don't wonder if you're some psycho, but uh, I'm always happy to have people uh, meet me and... uh, I've always enjoyed meeting the people who have seen me around at the World Series, and uh, some people will come up and say they've listened since the show began nine years ago, and I'll never have heard from them before. These are people who've quietly listened and never made contact, and they see me and they say something. I've, I've even had people at my table who, like, we're playing for hours, they don't say a word to me, and they say, oh, by the way, I really like your show. I go, wow, you listen? They go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been listening the whole time. I go, really? Have you ever texted me? No. You ever posted on the forum? No. Okay, well, I'm glad you listened. Thank you. And I've I've had had dealers say they listen. In fact, uh, the guy who posts on the forum now, uh, Shoeshine Box, has even called into the show a few times. Uh, He is a dealer of the World Series, dealt to me a number of times, and he's even recommended the show to people when he's dealt to me. So I thank him for that. So yeah, I think you probably will see me at the World Series this year, which is partially because I got this booster and partially because they're really not having a COVID problem this year, which I'm very happy to see. I thought it was going to be a disaster, but looks like I was wrong and looks like if you have a room with a lot of people together of whom almost all are vaccinated, which is the case here, you just don't have very much transmission. And that's great. So looks like the World Series of Poker is safer than we thought it was. I think that it should actually be studied, to be honest. I know it can't be completely studied because you won't have full data, but the fact that we haven't had one known COVID case that hit any kind of uh, known or semi-known player who's been there day in, day out, playing 12 hours or more a day, I think that's uh, a very, very good sign. And that makes me feel even better about going there with three shots now where most of them have had two. Yeah, it sounds like the biggest danger you're going to have at the World Series is from Caesars, right? Yes, <laughs> from yeah. Caesars fail or by uh, just criminals in the Rio breaking into my room, which we'll get into uh, near the end of that uh, World Series segment. So, okay, let's talk about Phil Helmuth. Phil Helmuth is having a very interesting World Series, and there's been some good and there's been some bad. The good has been his performance. He's done extremely well this World Series. I don't even think he's entering that many events. Like, I don't even think he's just rapid-fire entering everything, which makes this even more impressive. And uh, a lot of people are surprised, given that Phil Helmuth had, coming into this year, 15 bracelets, which is more than anyone else by far. 
Would you believe he has never been the World Series of Poker Player of the Year? Which is really strange if you think about it. I'm I, surprised. I didn't think of it till now. But when I say now, I mean like in the last uh, few weeks. But if you look at all the banners when you're in the Rio of the World Series Player of the Year, it's never him. So he just scores a bracelet here, a bracelet there over the years, and it added up to 15 bracelets. And obviously he's been uh, tremendously successful there. But he's never had some super dominant World Series where he's just constantly owning. He just uh, seems to do well enough to where he just keeps popping off uh, bracelet year after year. Here are some uh, facts they gave about Phil Helmuth on WCP.com as I'm reading his player profile. Helmuth is the all-time World Series of Poker bracelet leader with 16, because he just won one recently. He's also the all-time World Series of Poker leader in caches and holds several other World Series of Poker records. I like this part. Known as the, quote, poker brat for his temperament at the table, uh, particularly after taking a bad beat. (laughs) That's actually in his official profile on WCP.com. At 24 years old, Phil Helmuth defeated Johnny Chan heads up at the 1989 World Series of Poker main event to become the youngest WSOP main event champion in history at the time. It has since been uh, eclipsed. With his victory at the 2012 Europe main event, Phil Helmuth is now the only person to win both the WSOP main event as as well as the WSOP Europe main event. Okay, so those are some facts. He has cashed a total of... uh, $15.5 $15.5 million. Of course, he spent a lot in buy-in, so that's not his profit. But $15.5 million, 16 bracelets, and 177 caches. He is the leader in both of those. But let me tell you how he's been doing in the 2021 World Series. September 30th, he entered the horse event, the 25K horse, which was event number two essentially the first uh, open event of the World Series. He finished in sixth place. Then event number seven, the Dealer's Choice Six-Handed, $1,500 buy-in. He finished 18th. That was on October 3rd. October 4th, he then jumped into the 10K08 championship event and finished fifth. So he made his second final table, finished fifth there. Then, remember that was the one that uh, Ari Engel won. Then, on October 9th, he entered the seven-card stud championship, 10K buy-in. I'm, re- I'm only reading the ones he cashed in, but as you can tell, uh, he, he spends a lot of time in each of these events where he's uh, getting this deep, so he can't play anything else. So, really, he hasn't entered that many. He's really final-tabling most of what he enters, which is pretty amazing. So, he then enters as the seven-card stud championship, 10K buy-in. That was where he had the blow-ups on the stream on Poker Go, which brought up a lot of controversy, which we'll talk about shortly. And he finished fourth there. Then, on October 15th, he entered the No Limit Deuce to Seven Low Ball Draw event. And that's where he won his 16th bracelet. And then, just in case you think he's uh, done enough this World Series with a sixth, fifth, fourth, and first, then, on October 18th, he entered the six-handed dealer's choice for 10K and finished second. And that was to the very tough uh, Adam Friedman, who's won this event for three World Series in a row. So he has first, second, fourth, fifth, and sixth this World Series out of not that many events. 
Now, these events mostly are not big field events because these are large buy-ins. So it's not like these are 3,000 entrant events that he's final tabling this much. But still, these are final tables at the World Series of Poker against very tough competition. And look, it's not all No Limit Hold'em. Look what we have here. We have Horse. We have 08. We have Dealer's Choice twice. Well, actually, one of those was in the final table. But as far as the final tables, it's, it's Horse, 08, Stud, uh, No Limit, Deuce to 7, Low Ball, and Dealer's Choice. Like, it's, it's one, one of everything, pretty much. The thing he hasn't done is No Limit Hold'em so far. He doesn't have a single No Limit Hold'em cash yet. One of the previous criticisms of Phil Helmuth was that all he can do is win big field No Limit Hold'em championships, but that's about it. That he that he's good at beating fish in No Limit Hold'em, but aside from that, he doesn't really have much talent. Well, obviously that's not true. You see what he's done here. Has nothing to do with No Limit Hold'em. Also, prior to all this, look at how he keeps owning people in these heads-up challenges, including people who are assumed to be better than him at heads-up No Limit Hold'em. So I will say this for Phil Helmuth, that he has proven that he's not just a one-trick pony in poker. He's not someone who was beating the game when the game was a lot different, but can hang with the tough players of today. This is someone who just continues to win at the World Series of Poker year after year after year, and this so far is his best year ever when he's like 56 years old. So that's another impressive thing if you think about it. He's not one of the young guys. He's 56. And he obviously has less energy than the younger players, and I don't think he's spending the time that some of these younger players are doing are spending with the, uh, the simulations and... Uh, with all the solvers and all of that, I, I know he does some studying to improve his game, but this is mainly through raw poker instinct that he is just very, very good at knowing where he is in hands and letting other players hang themselves. That's why people will watch him and they will see him as a player they're not afraid of. He's not an intimidating player in that he's not pulling fancy moves on you where you end up feeling like a fool at the end. What he's doing is he's basically inducing you into making mistakes, not pressuring you to mistakes, not hitting you with overaggression to where you don't know what to do, but to where he just seems to be making the correct move where as it goes on, he seems to be accumulating chips and you're not, and you're losing against him and you're watching other people lose against him. And that requires... Uh, a certain level of natural feel for the game that allows you to know where you are in hands and and know where you stand and uh, really understand both your opponent and yourself and being able to maximize that. And that's kind of like a timeless skill that no matter how much the game changes around you, you can always use that largely to your advantage. And that's why there is this misperception for a long time, despite his tremendous results at the World Series, that Phil Helmuth actually isn't that good. So anyone who says Phil Helmuth isn't actually that good at poker is a fool, and you have to look at his results, not just this year, but overall at the World Series of Poker, and there's no way you can say that. So poker-wise, Phil Helmuth has been very, very impressive. And I will say that, and I can say that despite any of my other issues that 
I've had with his uh, representation of UB and his behavior at the table and things like that. I've even had uh, spats with him at the table. Some of them I kind of uh, semi-instigated, but uh, I only did so after his behavior at the table was very poor in general. I did make the policy that I was never going to just start up with Phil, just for the sake of starting up with Phil, except for one time, except uh, when I wanted to... uh, humiliate him about UB on national TV. I attempted to on the ESPN uh, final, uh, the ESPN main event feature table that I was on with him in 09, but of course they uh, did not air that part and I was also warned that if I continue then I will get a 20 minute penalty and I was short stacks that was going to effectively bust me so that was the end of that. But anyway, poker wise as far as his skill, especially these uh, World Series tournaments he's really the best player I've seen, at least right now, like a, right now the best player at the World Series of Poker is Phil Helmuth. I think his results, both long-term and this year, would confirm that. So he might end up being player of the year this year. And the only reason I say might is that there's another tournament monster here who's really blowing up big in this World Series, and that is Anthony Zinno. Anthony Zeno has won two bracelets already, and he's entering a ton of events. But Ant Zeno is just really killing it as well. So he and Helmuth have pretty much been back to back, uh, neck and neck, with being player of the year. But it's going to be one of the two of them. I don't think anybody else is all that close, and both of them continue to do very well. And both. You know, either would be a deserving 2021 World Series of Poker Player of the Year, to be honest. The funny thing with Anthony Zinno is unlike Helmuth, who's been successful in poker for decades, Zinno was a nobody for quite some time. In 2012, Anthony Zinno, I don't know how he got to know Brandon, but uh, he was begging Brandon to help him learn how to beat the... Limit Hold'em bot at Caesars, which uh, a lot of us used to earn seven stars that year. And he was telling Brandon that he's uh, broke, he's not doing very well, he's trying to be a poker pro, it's just not working out for him. (laughs) Brandon helped him, and then shortly after that, Zinno blew up huge, and now he's uh, very, very successful and one of the best uh, tournament players out there. So it's pretty much between him and Helmuth. And in fact, they were both at the same final table in one of the events that Zinno won. I want to talk about the blow-up that Helmuth had, because this has gotten a lot of attention, and it really should. Yeah, I'm here for the dirt, Drew. Yeah, and it really, it really should get a lot of attention, because I've said this for the longest time, because when I first saw Helmuth complaining on TV, I erroneously thought this was an act for TV. I thought, okay, Helmuth is probably a decent guy, and and d- this isn't really his personality. He's just playing it up for TV because it's a character that makes him interesting. That's that's what I thought for a while. Then I, w- I actually played with him, and I was playing with him in a setting where nobody's watching. So it's not televised. It's not going to be televised. It's not streamed. It's not in the Amazon room. It's not anywhere anyone's going to be watching. We're off in some back room playing $1,500 Limit Hold'em, and, and he's behaving the same way. And I said, oh, crap, this isn't an act. This is 
Phil acting the way he really wants to act. This is this is really him. He just isn't suppressing it. That's what's going on here. It's not that he's playing it up. It's that he's not suppressing it. So I said, "Wow, I, I, that's you know that's not appropriate." So another thing that I erroneously believed was that he's really only aiming this at pros who can take it. But that's not what he's doing. I've seen him go off on recreational players, and I look at the face of the recreational player when he's going off on him, and it's like pure horror. Because I guess for these guys, it's, it can be fun or entertaining to watch him do this on TV. But when you're the one, when you're the recreational player being told by Phil Helmuth, the greatest World Series of Poker player of all time, how awful you are and how stupid you are. And, and this is why he makes so much money. And, and he's basically making you feel like a chump. It's not fun. Now, I don't care because I, I know Phil Helmuth. He doesn't get to me. In fact, I, I kind of laugh it off and give it back to him. But the average recreational player is very intimidated by this because this is like one of the greats of the game. And, and he's telling them how horrible they are. And th- this is why he wins so much, because of people like them. So Never meet your heroes, Druff. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I've watched it happen right in front of my face where he does this to recreational players that he knows are recreational players. And I see all this, and I think, you know, I think if it was anyone besides Phil Helmuth that this wouldn't fly. But he's allowed to get away with whatever he wants because he's one of the one of the greats and biggest names of the game and the World Series loves that because it's like free marketing for them. Because people want to come out there and sit at the same table with the guys they've seen on TV, with the big names they've seen. So the World Series loves it when Phil Ivey plays, when Phil Helmuth plays, when Daniel Negreanu plays. They 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 want to make sure that these guys are happy. And that these guys are going to keep showing up. And the last thing they're going to do is ever discipline any of them. They're going to really, really avoid doing that. So these guys can get away with things that I can't and that you can't. And that's always bothered me. Because it really should be the same rules for everybody. And I can understand where uh, there's the temptation to give favoritism to certain players you'd like to see be there. But... The problem is it comes at the expense of other people, like like in this case with Phil Helmuth berating people, and they'll, they'll never say anything about it. And uh, a lesser thing, like this doesn't affect that much, but it still kind of isn't a good look. When, one time when I uh, had Ivy at my table, when the day was over, Ivy just stood up and walked off. And I go, okay, isn't he going to bag his chips? Nope, the floor man goes and bags the chips for him. Now, if I stood up and just walked off, and was too good to bag my own chips, I'd probably come back the next day to a penalty. But not Ivy. Ivy, the, uh, he, of course, he's too good to bag his chips. Uh, he just walks away, and the floor manager is expected to do it for him because he's Phil Ivy. So it's things like that that kind of bother me. If you do not want to play with the commoners and, and be treated the same way as the commoners, then don't play. Nobody's forcing them to come play the World Series of Poker. So I've always felt people should just all be treated the same, and we're not. And... There's a certain small super class of players that get to do whatever they want. And then there's the rest of us. And I am part of the rest of us. That is unfortunate to see. And I've called it out for years and years. But it's kind of fallen on deaf ears. And nobody's really cared very much. But this year, finally, people are starting to care. I don't know if it's going to really mean anything. But at least this year, people are starting to take note. And it took Phil Helmuth acting like a complete fool and just really, really in a foul mood that allowed this to happen. Now, keep in mind, 
It's not like Phil was having a bad World Series. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Phil had already finished sixth at the 25K horse and fifth at the 08 event. And he was at the final table now at the seven-card stud event. And while I'm sure Phil wishes that he won those previous two, you can't win every time, even if you're Phil Helmuth. So he made now three final tables in a short time. Keep in mind, the World Series began on September 30th. Here we are October 9th, and Phil is already at his third final table. So he should be very happy with his performance. He shouldn't be in a bad mood. But for whatever reason, he was in a bad mood, and he was behaving very poorly. And this was being streamed on Poker Go. Now, again, he wasn't doing this because it was streamed on Poker Go, because I've seen him, and he would have behaved the same way if it were in a back room somewhere, and no yeah, one could see this. It's yeah. not an act. Yeah, it isn't. <laughs> so no. so I, I had some people say, oh, come on, he's doing this to entertain everybody on Poker Go. No, he's not. No. You might be entertained by it, but that's not why he's doing it. Can you so, imagine what his how the braiding would have gone if he'd been bricking everything this year? Yeah, yeah, right. That's, I, was like, I was like, what's he so upset about? I'd be, uh, you know, if this is my third final table in nine days and like maybe third final table out of like five events I've played, I would be on cloud nine just in general. So hey, He should have some natural Xanax going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, he'd be pretty chill. So the, 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 the worst part of his ranting, and keep in mind he was just constantly complaining about every hand. Now, he did take some pretty bad beats, but so do all of us at tournaments. But he, nah, he, it's never never happened to me, Drove. I've never had a bad beat. You may not. It seems like every time you play the uh, PFA free roll, you win. So it may be true. Oh, please. Not even close. But the the worst part of his ranting, beyond just like 40 F-bombs he dropped during the broadcast. like I'm, I'm not even kidding, like 40. But uh, the worst part was where he threatened that he was, if he didn't win this tournament, which he didn't, that he was going to burn the fucking place down. Now, I have a feeling if I announced while I was at a final table and take a bad beat that if I don't win this tournament, I'm going to burn the fucking place down, I have a feeling I would get a disqualification and then booted from the World Series permanently. And I know this because there is somebody who is currently banned from the World Series who's not as big of a name as Phil, of course. And he did make kind of a similar comment. And that guy can't come back. But Phil Helmuth, right there on Poker Go, says he's going to burn this fucking place down, referring to the Rio, if he doesn't win the tournament. Now, fortunately, it didn't burn down because uh, you know he didn't win the tournament. Somehow, it's still standing. However, he said it, and it's all on camera, so I can, I'm going to play it to you shortly. So listen to this is a montage of Phil Helmuth acting very badly at this seventh-card stud event. I think I'm going to burn this fucking place down if I don't win this fucking tournament fucking burn this fucking place down. Damn motherfucker. Fucking punish him. He pops me on the fucking turn. How does he get fucking rewarded for that bullshit fucking play? Fucking overplay their hands against me. That's why I win all these fucking tournaments. Miracle fucking river. God damn it. What the fuck is going on here? He popped at every fucking street like he was going to get me out of there. Some fucking bullshit. By the way, this is all going on throughout the tournament this isn't one speech this is him like throughout the final table didn't you at one point get penalized for cursing no no i mean isn't isn't that a thing that can happen though um I'm imagining it? it 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 can it used to be if you even say the word fuck then you get uh, a penalty yeah. that that got done away with a long time ago and oh, then it okay. became if you aim this at somebody else that uh you you can get penalized i don't know if that's still there but he didn't get any penalties here 
Fucking Sounds Zeno. Sounds like he's got Tourette's, man. <laughs> Fuckers. Oh, fill that out. I'm gonna pop him. Oh, and there go the cards. Unfold. What the fuck can I do? Except the next Might turn I'm gonna overplay a fucking hand, take you out. I mean, the fuck? I let all those Poor fucking dealer. hands go when they three-bet me on three, three, three. The fuck do you think I fucking have? So unfucking fair, man. Play like a fucking genius to get down here every fucking day. I think I'm gonna burn this fucking place down if I don't win this fucking tournament. Okay, so so dreadful. It's just cringe to fucking listen to that, man. Yeah, so this went out like throughout. Like when, whenever he was in a hand, and then it didn't go well for him, he'd he'd blow up in one of these speeches. And of course, the worst part of it was saying he's going to burn the fucking place down if he doesn't win the tournament. So people finished watching this, and Anthony Zeno ended up winning this tournament, and Phil finished fourth. But people finished watching this and we're like what the fuck like <laughs> what, what did we just watch here this is this is worse than usual with it by phil standards this is bad and he's like a foul-mouthed child yeah <laughs> like he's 56 years old and he's acting this way and the people are going how much is the world series going to take how much yeah. are they going to tolerate this because this becomes very clear that you can even say you're going to burn down the building if you fill helmet and nothing happens. And if you're anybody else and you act this way, you get all kinds of penalties or you get disqualified or you may even get banned from, from Caesar's properties. So Druff, if you go there, you got to see how many fucks can Dan Druff uh, get away with at the table. Yeah, I don't think like, that see, many. See how many you can do. I, I know the number of times I can say that I'm going to burn the building down. I already know the answer to that. Zero point zero i guarantee if i say anything about burning down the rio that i will be escorted out very quickly like i not only don't ever have that thought if i were to ever say it like i know i'd be gone and even if i wanted to say it i would not say it knowing i would be gone but phil helmuth you can say it on poker go and you won't be gone you can just continue with no penalty so why does the world series maybe maybe druff maybe caesar's you know, given the, the state of disrepair of the Rio, maybe they got a good insurance policy they don't really mind. Yeah, maybe anymore. maybe he'll do them a favor down. there. Burn, burn the fucker down. Go ahead. <laughs> and when asked why Phil was allowed to get away with this, they claimed, the floor claimed, that uh, they weren't watching, they weren't listening to him. <laughs> Somehow all these F-bombs, 40 F-bombs throughout the entire final table plus the speeches plus the threat to burn it down somehow they didn't hear any of it i don't know if uh, helen keller was the one who was the on the floor this time but it must have so been this is be- going to be the player of the year draw i yes. don't know if this is sending the right me- messages to uh mr Helmuth. well you know uh, maybe anthony zeno will save the day and he'll be the player of the year but yeah they, that was uh, pretty uh, egregious what happened there and it started up a conversation about whether this is something that should be tolerated or if it needs to stop. Well, on Twitter, people were going off on Phil really hard. Even Chris Moneymaker got into the act. He said, the WSOP really needs to have one set of rules for all players. Some players are unfairly banned, while others can get away with anything with no issues. Is it hard to enforce the rules universally the same? This is from Chris fucking Moneymaker. This is, this is a guy who probably could get away with uh, misbehaving. He doesn't. Chris is very nice there. But, but he could get away with being a jerk. And he's saying there should be one set of rules for everybody. This is someone who could actually benefit from favoritism and is calling this out. Uh, he is right, though, that there are some people who are either unfairly banned or ones who 
are banned for essentially the same thing of what uh, Phil did. Uh, if you remember on this show, we had Luke Vrabel on, and I believe he got an unfair ban. He was at a final table, I think, of Colossus, and he was there with, uh, and Matt Affleck was there too. And Matt Affleck's friends and his girlfriend were really, really, shall I say, aggressively rooting for him and were constantly hassling Luke from the rail when Luke was trying to concentrate. They were constantly taunting him and insulting him from the rail, and Luke was getting pissed. And he started complaining about this openly and started yelling at them to shut up. And anyway, he got in big arguments with the floor man, and eventually Luke was uh, banned from the World Series, which sprung from this whole thing. And uh, looking at the whole thing, while Luke probably could have handled it a little better and, and not uh, gone off as badly as he did, he didn't do anything that egregious which would have uh, warranted a ban. And it was clear that Matt Affleck's girlfriend and friends were harassing him while at a final table. So I, I thought that has to be looked at, too. Like, if, if someone is being harassed while at a final table by people on the rail for somebody else competing with them, then... If their reaction isn't very good or not optimal or they really are going off on the floor, you should say, well, the floor didn't do its job. So, yeah, the guy's pissed. And, yeah, if the guy went off too much about it, then it's kind of understandable why he was so mad. They're playing for a lot of money there. So he's still banned from the World Series for what happened there. And uh, he still can't play. And then another one who was banned for something similar to what happened with Phil Helmuth was uh, Sam Panzica who's on Twitter as uh, bestindabiz51, bestindabiz51 on Twitter. He is right now banned from Caesars Properties. And uh, here is the story that he told. He uh, tweeted this out four years ago, but it's gotten attention again because of uh, the Phil thing and its similarity to what Phil did. He wrote, uh, for the main event final table... There are two different kinds of wristbands, one to get you on the rail and one to get you in the crowd in the Penn and Teller Theater. I guess that's where the main event final table was at the Rio. I went into the bathroom at one point and my wristband to be on the rail got ripped off, but I still had it in my hand. I tried to get back to the rail and the security guard said that I'd already seen a few times told me I can't get up there with a broken wristband. I'm mad, but I go into the regular crowd with my two friends who didn't have the rail wristbands. We we sat in the last row of the theater and watched it and at one point... uh, uh, mind you, I'm drunk and probably being louder than I should. I, I say, I wish I had an AK right now. Nothing more. Now he's referring to an AK-47. So obviously that's not a smart thing to say. At at this point, some random like 50-year-old guy who was sitting a few seats over gets up and comes around the back of my seat and puts his hands around my throat and says, I'm going to take you outside, little boy, and show you a lesson. I do nothing to him and just start laughing in his face. Security guard A comes over as they see my getting assaulted and breaks it up. And some randoms in front of me tell security guard A to kick me out because I'd been loud and swearing a lot early in the night. Uh, So security guard A walks me down the stairs and security guard B walks me out of the Penn and Teller Theater. I roam around the Rio till the next break and see Sean Deeb with a bunch of extra wristbands. I ask him for one to try to get back in. How does Sean Deeb just have wristbands with him? Like, (laughs) Why was he carrying that around? I get in, and then probably a minute or so after being in there, a security guard B sees me and is like, what are you doing back in here, and takes me outside the theater again. Security guard B asked me for my ID. I told him I didn't have it. He asked me where I was staying. I told him Cosmo. He said he was going to escort me to the cab and get me back to Cosmo. I go back to Cosmo and pass out for the night. 
In the morning, I wake up to see that Ryan Reese is heads up for the main. So obviously excited, hit up some friends to see what they're doing. We get lunch at the Rio and kill some time playing blackjack or something. About 30 minutes before plays to start, we're waiting outside the theater to get in. And then security guard B sees me and says, we have to have a talk. We walk over to the security desk in the middle of the gaming floor. And I ask him if I'll be able to watch my friend play heads up for the main, referring to Ryan Reese. He says, maybe. At that point, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm either going to get banned for a day or something small or be able to watch heads up. We get to the desk and he goes, so what happened yesterday? I tell him I was a little drunk, drunk. I got kicked out for being loud and swearing. He then tells me that an informant, mind you, nobody in the crowd even knew what security B looked like, just what security guard A, uh, which is the one that was upstairs and kicked me out, told him that I stood up in my chair and said I was going to mow everyone down with an AK-47. I tell him, no, no real person would ever do that. That's the most absurd thing I ever heard. He responds, well, you said you were drunk. How would you know? I ask him if we can look at the video cameras. He says there aren't any any of the theater, which I find hard to believe. I then ask him if I could call two friends who were with me and who were sober at the time to come down and back my story. He refused this. At this point, he tells me I'm being 86 for life. I try to plead my case, but he's on a massive power trip and having none of it. At this point, he's escorting me out of the casino, and while he is, I run into my friend Austin, who is with me, and he asks me what's going on. I go, they're 86 in me because they're saying I stood up on my seat and said I was going to mow everyone down with an AK-47. So, anyway, he told that story four years ago, and this has gotten attention again because people have been saying it's time to let Sam Panzica back into the World Series and back onto Caesar's properties because the, uh, the AK-47 comment, well, yeah, it's a very dumb thing to say. Uh, it didn't appear to be a real threat, and it's just something dumb he shouted when he was drunk. And and, and truthfully, if Phil is going to be allowed to say that he's going to burn the place down if uh, he doesn't win the tournament, that's really not much worse than saying, I wish I had an AK right now when drunk. And uh, as, as far as all the other stuff that happened, I mean, it, it doesn't sound, it sounds like just a lot of nonsense to me. So obviously from this story, it does sound like Sam was drunk and obnoxious in the crowd. So I don't mind the fact that they kicked him out that day. I wouldn't even mind it if they just said, no, you've been too disruptive. You can't come back and watch. I don't care if it's your friend heads up for the bracelet. You just can't come back in. Like, I'd be totally fine with that. Uh, I'd have, even him getting banned for the AK thing. I mean, he's saying, well, nobody heard me say the words. I'm going to mow down everyone with an AK-47. I just I wish I had an AK right now. But he's admitting he went that far. So if he got banned that year and then uh, appealed it, I would say let him back with a stern warning that if he ever gets drunk and disorderly again, he'll be gone for good. That's, that's what I would have done, because I think from this whole story, it's pretty clear he wasn't someone who was uh, looking to create violence. Now, interestingly enough, in case you think he was kicked because of uh, oversensitivity because of the Stephen Paddock thing, no. This happened about uh, three months before Stephen Paddock shot up the, uh, that event outside the Mandalay Bay. So it was not because of Stephen Paddock. It was three months beforehand. But anyway, there's been some pressure on the World Series to let Sam Panzica back in now if they're going to let this helmet thing go, which they obviously did. And I have to agree with that. I, I, I'm not saying I defend uh, Sam's behavior here. I think uh, he did a lot of stupid things here, and you've you got to watch the way he behaves. You, if you can't uh, drink and behave normally, if you're going to say things like, I wish I had an AK right now and all this other stupid stuff, then, and if you're going to be so obnoxious that people in the crowd want to attack you, you, you probably shouldn't drink when you're in the crowd there. If it were up to me, I'd, I'd give him one more chance here. And, and Jeff, I have a wild prediction. What My is that? wild prediction is that Sam is not going to be unbanned. They're just not going to bother. They don't care. 
and absolutely nothing is going to happen to Phil Hellmuth. Well, I will say the second thing is definitely true because we're now well past the helmet thing. This happened uh, about a week and a half ago, and nothing's happened. So <laughs> you're correct about that. And, uh, yeah, Sam has not been let back in as far as I know. Court Garcia, who is a friend of Sam's, tweeted on October 13th, we all need to tweet the World Series of Poker to bring back Panther Sam Panzica one one time, let's flood their timeline. It would also be super cool if Phil Helmuth were to pull some of his strings on this happening, especially given some of the controversy surrounding him the last couple of days. Now, you may say, oh, come on, he can't pull strings. He, he This isn't Phil's decision. Well, actually, it kind of is. Uh, Phil Helmuth did allow someone back in who was banned for life, and that was Jared Blesnick. And I know this because the one who found it out was me. Yes. Jared Blesnick was banned for life after some bad behavior where he uh, tore up cards and crumpled cards and was just a complete dick, and they uh, finally were done with him. And I guess they had previous problems with him when he was losing, so they told Jared that he was banned from the World Series forever. And Alan Kessler found me in the hallway, and he said, I have a poker fraud for you. I said, okay, what is that? And he says you got to figure out why Jared Blesnick's back after three days because he was banned three days ago for life, and he's already back playing. I said, really? That's interesting. Uh, he was just following the Helmuth system. I mean, this is this <laughs> bad behavior is all part of the, the Helmuth system of poker. So yeah, well, he that's... Can't be held liable for he that. might have, because uh, apparently he is friends with Phil Helmuth, so what yeah. the story ended up being, and I, I was the one to find this out. Nobody knew why. It was a mystery, and I was the one who found out. And I brought this public that he got in because Phil went to Jack Effel, the tournament director, and said, hey, look, Jared had a bad day. Do me a favor. Let him back in. Just you know, tell him uh, he's, he's really going to be watched closely. That <laughs> If he does one more thing, he's gone. But give him one more chance for me, please, Jack. And Jack said, okay, Phil, we'll do it for you. And he undid the whole thing, and Jared was back playing. And then when Poker News asked Jack Effel if this was true, because they had an interview with him a few weeks later, and they said, by the way, we heard that uh, you were the one who got, uh, or that Phil was the one who got Jared unbanned. Is that true? And he said yes. So, verified my story right there that nobody would have known if I hadn't brought it out. I I got a bit lucky in finding it out. I'll say that. But I was trying to find out, and I was fortunate that I was successful. Let me just say that. But you guys know I'm good at, at a lot of times finding the untold story in these situations. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I, I've gotten a lot of these over the years, and that was one of them, and it was proven correct. But yeah, Phil can go to Jack Effel and say, can you please unban such and such? And they will. So believe me, if Phil went and asked them, hey, can you undo the Sam Panzica ban and tell him he's got one more shot, I'm sure they'd do it. But okay. Phil hasn't shown any interest in doing so. I don't care about it that much. I don't really know Sam Panzica, and I do agree he did some things that he shouldn't have done, and it's understandable why he got banned in the first place, but I, I think the Luke Rabel ban is much worse because that one shouldn't have happened at all. That one, the World Series itself, had fault, and they don't want to admit that. So, what, Whatever happened to Jared Blesnick anyway? Is he still around? I'm not sure. Uh, he, he does definitely have a temper, and... <laughs> Uh, he does definitely have some tilt problems too. I've played with the guy before too. You know, when he's when he's on his uh, normal game, he's very good. But uh, that that guy can tilt pretty easily. I'll say that. So, uh, Anthony Zinno, who was 
the eventual winner of that seven-card stud event and was the target of a lot of Phil's rants, he took it all pretty well. He said, ha, 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 Phil Helmuth is the only poker player on Earth that could find a way to make seven-card stud final table entertaining for all. So, I mean, it's kind of a good point, but it's also he's easy to be point. in a... It's, it, <laughs> but yes, but he's in a good mood because he just won a bracelet. So, I mean, it's... You, you can let this roll off your back much more easily when you're the winner. Mike Mattisau, who is a close friend of Phil's, said, Another thing nobody gets about Phil Helmuth is that all players he berates love him and think it's funny. See, that's not true. I've, no. I, I've explained that before. Uh, they texted him after the tournament to tell him how fun it was when he was on the rant, so everyone needs to chill. That's just him. He's a great guy, but a little nuts like me. <laughs> that was from uh, Mattisau. Someone made a joke Magic the Gathering card featuring Phil Helmuth that's called Burn the Fucking Place Down, Sorcery. Choose one. Win the tournament or burn the fucking place down. And then it has a quote at the end. Name one instance where I've been unreasonable. (laughs) So people made a lot of uh, little parodies about that, little gifts about this. But it is kind of a serious issue because they really should start treating everyone closer to the same than they currently do because if you're a big name in poker there's a lot you can get away with i've seen it personally and it's not even just behavior at the table because not everybody's like phil there's big name poker pros who don't misbehave like phil ivy he doesn't berate anybody but phil ivy walks away with that bagging his chips which everybody can't do and I, I watch them go use any bathroom they feel like. So at the main event, while the rest of us have to sprint over to the nearest bathroom and try to not miss any hands, the big names can walk into the employee bathrooms or any other bathroom they want that's usually restricted and use that bathroom. Like They can do things like this that we can't. And I see it. I, once I mean, even, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the, uh, the dealers are required to hold out their, their cupped hands so Phil can pee in him if he's got to go, you know? They might. I once had a big-name player who I was talking to during the break who said, oh, yeah, I, got, I go to the bathroom. You can walk with me here. Oh, I got to go, too. And, and so we start walking, and he starts walking to the employee area. And, and I go, wait, 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 why are we going here? He says, oh, no, it's fine. I go, it's fine? Oh, it's fine. So he just brings me into the employee issue, employee area, and all the dealers are pissing by us. And we're just standing there at the stall. We're the only two non-dealers you know, pissing in the stalls there. And I felt a little weird, but this guy just felt it was completely normal for him to be able to just walk in and use that bathroom. And... Um, I felt fine because I was with him, so I, I assumed that uh, people there knew what was going on. That you know, he brought me in there, but it—it's you don't see anybody else doing it because they don't allow it. They'll—they'll they'll tell you to get away. That this—if they see you doing it, they'll say don't do that. And uh, there's a lot of shit like that going on with people using different entrances and employee-only entrances and ways to get in. There's a whole lot of whole lot of stuff like that that goes on. Yeah, and there's some things if you just know about them, then you can do it. You don't have to be a, a special name. So th- I will admit there are some things along those lines that I do, but not because I'm getting favoritism, but more just that I, I know it exists and know how to do it. Maybe a tiny bit because they know me, so I'm not a stranger to them. And I've gotten that feeling before that like I'm, I might be getting a little better treatment than the total unknown player. But it's not very well, large. They fear for their jobs, Struff, is what it is. They know your <laughs> reputation procedure. Like, well, oh I, I, will I don't s- want this guy complaining to the manager about me. And I will say this, that this may not be the case anymore because uh, Seth Polanski's not there anymore. What I will say is that they were aware 
of this show, and they didn't like when we criticized them. They didn't tell me to stop, but they were aware of it, and they didn't enjoy it when it happened. So I actually had a little pull from that standpoint where if I complained about something, that they would take it seriously. I'm not saying I could just like dictate what they would do, but at least my complaints would be taken a little more seriously than the average person because they knew I had this site in this show. So that, that was nice. But uh, as far as my own behavior, though, like I, I couldn't get away with the things that Phil or any other uh, big-name player could do if I did that. I don't then know. I think there are, there are a number of strippers in Vegas that their story is that they used to work a hostessing job and then this guy named Todd got him fired, and they they were reduced to stripping. I mean, you're yeah. just ruining lives everywhere, Drew. The sad thing is this is going to go around Twitter. They're going to say, uh, breaking news about Todd Wittellis. You know he's getting uh, hostesses fired and making them to strippers? You know, he's, his own co-host said it. That's not news. That's not news. You, you've, been, you've, been, you've been firing minimum wage employees for, for decades, right? I haven't sent anybody into stripping. As far as you know. Well, maybe they made more money. Maybe it was a upward career move. I'm sure they are, actually. Hey, if you had a shot, because you, you said that Phil Hellmuth and Mike Matisau are, uh, are friends and everything. If you had the chance to go out and have beers with one of the two of them, which one would you pick? Oh, I would pick Mike. I, I've gone out with Mike before. And uh, it was one hundred percent. I would. Yeah, I mean, he, he was very pleasant, very nice to go out with. Actually, Mike Matisau. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, well, I w- would also think he'd have some fun stories to tell, and Phil would just be talking about himself the whole right. time. That's would would happen, right, that's what would happen. Phil can only exist in a world where it, which has to do with him. That's always been the case with him. He's just uh, always got tunnel vision, like whatever affects Phil is what sparks his interest. And uh, Mike is, is not that way. Now, Mike... You know, he's got his own issues and he acts up and he's got, you know, he's an imperfect person for sure, but uh, uh, he's very different from Phil. And uh, now there are some positives to Phil besides his poker skill. There are some positives to him off the felt that I will give him credit for. For example, I believe that Phil Helmuth, despite spending long periods of time away from his wife at the World Series and other tournaments he goes to, doesn't ever cheat on her. There's, there's never been a story about Phil Helmuth messing around on his wife. He's been married a very long time. And uh, from all accounts, he's faithful to her. And in fact, we even have some uh, independent uh, audiovisual evidence that this is true. There was once a, a video he did from his uh, Vegas house, which wasn't a very nice house. You would expect him to live in a much better place. But uh, he had this little house he lived in Vegas. And in the uh, video of the inside, there was a toilet paper roll right next to his bed. <laughs> so I said, you know what? You can be grossed out by that, but uh, at least that says he probably uh, is not cheating I, on his I'm wife. I'm picturing that juxtaposition with that old picture of him with his, his white boobies hanging out yeah. on the, the guardrail. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, on yes. The balcony? Yes. <sighs> so it may not be a nice visual, but I'm, at least it indicates he's probably uh, doing that in lieu of cheating. So I'm, sh- I'm sure his wife is happy that uh, that's what he's doing there. So that's Maybe that's he had a cold drop. I mean, come on, give the man a break. So I mean, the, the truth is, because he is a, a f- famous poker pro, there probably are a lot of women who, who would uh, mess around with him and have sex with him just to say they had sex with Phil Helmuth. But uh, from all you I think so, yeah, honestly? yeah. I mean, maybe 
Yeah, there definitely would be. I mean, the ones that are much younger, like the early 20s, may think it's gross because just like from his age. But uh, even some of them would do it. But I, but like ones that are around 30, 35, I, I bet there's a lot that would do, you know, just because he's Phil Helmuth. But I would think they might be worried they get berated. I can't believe this bitch used her teeth. <laughs> wow, this is the worst blowjob. You know what I mean? I could see yeah. going off on him. That's you know? true. That's true. That would be a concern. But anyway, he, from all I hear that he's faithful to his wife, I don't think he means badly where he's like, he's not looking to hurt people. It's just like, he just goes off. He just doesn't think of people. He's just inconsiderate. But he's not, uh, he's not actually looking to be evil or, or be a terrible guy. He just, uh, just kind of goes off and then doesn't really think of how it affects others. So there's a lot of people who think worse of him than I think he deserves. Uh, I think even with the UB stuff, uh, where I have a lot of criticism of how he handled that and how he basically didn't leave until months before it went down anyway, and uh, he continued to wear UB gear after the cheating scandal, I, I think a lot of this was, again, him just looking too much with tunnel vision and not having the ability to see how other people see it. And uh, this is not an excuse for him, but there are some who did this from an actual place of evil to screw everybody else to co- to actively cover things up that wasn't really him he was one who was kind of more willfully ignorant to the whole thing he he i would definitely buy that about him i yeah. would buy that, that so it's probably just you know not maliciousness it's probably just ignorance or just not paying attention to anything other than what's going on in his world yeah know? and not wanting to pay attention like if people want to tell him he just doesn't want to hear it so that's why i'm not yeah. defending him i'm not saying like he was tricked and that uh, he was a victim, too. No, he wasn't. I mean, he, he should have spoken out. He should have left it earlier than he did. He, there's a lot that he should have done there that he did not do. However, I don't think he cheated anyone there directly, and I actually don't even think he was trying to help with a cover-up. I think he was just uh, willfully ignorant and, and very quick to accept the stories of the other people at the company who were telling him everything's fine and uh, and didn't want to look into it further because that was good enough for him. So... Like, I, I really don't uh, hate Helmuth or anything. I just, I, I see all his flaws, though, and I, and there's a lot of things he really should be doing differently. He, he shouldn't just be allowed to go off, like, the way he does, and the recreational players don't enjoy it, and I see it. I've seen it personally. I've watched it happen in front of my face several times. I've even seen pros that don't enjoy it. That's what's funny. It's like, you would expect the pros would all just give it back to him or not care, but I've seen the pros look intimidated. Like, they don't want to say anything. They just kind of sit there quietly and awkwardly, and they kind of wish it wasn't happening. I can see it. Like, I, it's not like there's a ton of people going back at him. Really, from what I've seen when I've played with him personally, the only one willing to go back at him has been me. <laughs> Even when there's other pros at the table. I've watched him berate other pros really hard, and they just sit there quietly. I'm not saying I'm the only person in history to have gone back at him. In fact, I know I'm not, but I'm shocked at how infrequently it happens. And, you know, I don't care. I'll say something. Like, the one thing I'll say with Phil, like, I'm not worried that Phil is going to do anything bad to me for me going back at him. He's not going to fight me in the parking lot. He's not going to hire people to beat me up. Like, he's, he's not going to do anything vindictive. So, like, nothing's going to happen. He's not going to try to get me banned. Like, really, nothing's going to happen. It's just going to be me and him arguing. It's all it's going to end there. So, uh, as, as far as, like, people to argue with at the table, he's actually a pretty safe one to go back and forth with. Let's say it did escalate, Druffy. You think you could take him? I don't know. Phil is a pretty big guy, though. Phil is like like six foot five, 
and uh, you know, pretty large. Now, I do I have a little bit of an age advantage over him, but not that much. Only seven years. I don't know. Uh, he does have a size advantage. I don't know what shape he's in right now. I think that would determine it. Yeah, I think I could take him. <laughs> anyway, on that note, I got to get some. Okay, you got to go. Yeah, I know. I was, I was dreading the moment that Cal was going to say, oh, it's late. I got to go. I, I can't do this anymore. I know. I'm tired. Okay, well, thank but you I'll, for. I'll, I'll uh, listen as I go to sleep. Thanks, Drew. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on, Cal Watt. Glad we had you here. And uh, welcome to come on here anytime. All right. Later. Good night. So that is, uh, or was Cal Watt. I'm back alone here. By the way, this is not up on the agenda, but uh, there's a pretty big game going today on Hustler Casino Live. If you remember, we had uh, Ryan Feldman on here for a long interview, very interesting interview, about uh, Hustler Casino Live and his moving from Live at the Bike over there. And he's done a tremendous job with just really getting some interesting games going. And uh, the Hanson kid... Bart Hansen showed up on Poker Fraud Alert's forum today and posted about a pretty amazing game they have going tonight. I, I believe it's over at this point, but it started at 5 o'clock Pacific today, and it was featuring uh, Garrett Adelstein, uh, Phil Ivey, Matt Berkey, and uh, Tom Dwan. And then uh, there is a Euro player named uh, Mickey, M-I-K-K-I, Mickey Mays, M-A-S-E. And he's just known as Mickey, but apparently he was really killing it tonight. Uh, someone texted me tonight that he was just uh, destroying everybody and that uh, he was uh, up 280K. And Ivy was down 150K. I know it's just one game, but apparently this, uh, this guy, uh, Mickey, was just really uh, killing some of these crushers on that stream. I mean, that's a pretty tough game. Phil Ivey and uh, Garrett and Tom Dwan. Wow. But Hanson is going to be commentating. Of course, Ryan Feldman put it together. It was really a huge mistake on the part of Live at the Bike to let uh, Ryan Feldman get away. I mean, clearly that guy has some talent with putting these things together. You could tell by listening to him on this show that this is someone who's really like a go-getter, someone who is uh, very much a hustler, which I guess is appropriate now that he works at The Hustler, someone that you really would want producing a show like this, where you've got to round up people to play in the game. You've got to get interesting lineups there. You need a guy who's good good at uh, marketing, good, guy good at sales, guy good at uh, making things happen and getting people together. And uh, he's really been putting together a lot of lineups that people want to watch. So I believe that Hustler Casino Live is presently winning this battle of the streamed L.A. area poker games. Just getting better and better as far as these lineups. So that went tonight. I believe it's already over because it was almost five hours ago, almost six hours ago. From the chat room, let's read some things here. Padre33 says this run has been... Incredible by Phil Helmuth, one of the top five tournament players of all time, but his cash game is trash. I remember the limit games at UBAP used to get lists 20 long when he'd come. His results were horrible. I will comment on that. Yes, I was in those games. I was one of the guys who you would see there playing with him. And yes, 
there was a funny screenshot, I may still have it, of everybody sitting out when Phil Helmuth busted, when he was down to zero. Everybody was sitting out waiting for him to reload. And this pissed him off, too. He was just typing up a storm in chat that everyone thought he was the fish. So I will say, compared to the good Limit Hold'em players of the day, this is late 2000s, that Phil was not as good. But he's improved since then. He's improved his mixed game. He's improved all of his limit games. He has improved his No Limit Hold'em cash game. So back then, I do believe that in the cash games, he wasn't very good. But that's one area where he's gotten a lot better. So it would be interesting to see how he plays Limit Hold'em nowadays. Now, it's possible he's still not that great at Limit Hold'em compared to the very good Limit Hold'em players now. But maybe he's improved enough to where he'd be able to hang with them. It's very possible. Padre33 also said that this kid, Mickey, on the stream, on the Hustler Casino stream, has an unorthodox can't-win style. He'll give it all back. CGen said, Helmuth was classmates with Chris Farley in Madison, Wisconsin. Talk about a juxtaposition of lovable versus unlovable. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, the Madison connection is actually what got some of these guys as UB pros who you hadn't heard of before. If you notice back in the day on UB, there were some people that were listed as site pros that were not big names. And then if you were to look into their history, you would see that they have a connection back to Madison, Wisconsin, where Phil was originally from. J-Lip, who I haven't seen before, but J-Lip in the chat said... uh, Blesnick is uh, selling baseball cards in the hallway. Blez sports cards. I don't know if that's true. He feels like uh, WSOP, then he says, feels like WSOP management is a cartel. <laughs> I wonder about Blez sports cards. Though. Is, is he really selling that in the hallway? Like, does he have a booth there? I, I haven't heard about that. I think I did hear about his sports cards thing, but I, I didn't know he was in the World Series hallway selling it. Okay, so moving on, I want to talk about Adam Friedman a bit. Adam Friedman was at first known for crying on TV at the uh, WSOP main event. This is many years ago. This is the mid-2000s. But uh, he took some kind of bad beat, and uh, they actually showed him crying. Now, he wasn't the only crier on TV. Uh, Mike Matisau actually cried at one point. So there was, we've had more than one crier. But that was how uh, Adam Friedman was originally known, and people online were kind of making fun of him, that he was the, the crybaby of the World Series. But since then, uh, Adam Friedman has grown up, and we don't see him crying anymore. And uh, he really seems to be a very good player, and he's had some very good results. But where his results have been best were at the Dealer's Choice event. For some reason, he really is killing the Dealer's Choice event over the last few years. So this is the first time that there's ever been what's known as a three-peat in a single event. It is actually very hard to win the same event two years in a row. And I'm not talking about three, I'm saying two. Two years in a row is very hard to do because there's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of luck involved in tournaments, And the fields are big enough, even when they're not huge, even if they're 100 people, they're big enough and they're talented enough to where it is very hard to run well enough to where you win two years back-to-back in the same event. But Friedman managed to do this in 2019 when for the second year in a row, he won the very tough 10K Dealer's Choice Championship event. 
He was going to go for a three-peat in 2020, but then the event did not exist because the live WSOP did not exist in 2020 due to COVID. So that event took a year off and resumed in 2021. So he played it in 2021 and he won it now for the third time in a row. And I don't know the next time we're going to see that. I mean, I guess he can go for a four-peat next year. But he's become the first World Series of Poker player ever to win the same event three years in a row. Or three consecutive series. It's not actually three years in a row because of 2020, but three consecutive series of that event going. His opponent, heads up, was none other than one Philip Helmuth. He managed to beat Helmuth, despite of all, all of Helmuth's uh, WSOP success this year, and take it down. He said, I've waited 28 months to play this tournament with a pandemic and the delay this year. All I kept saying was, just get me to day two. I just want a chance. I don't need to win this tournament. I've got nothing to prove. I've got literally nothing to prove. It's just a pure challenge to see if I could do it. He posted a picture on his Twitter of three different tournament cards that you get at the end. If you cash, they give you a card that says the event and the place you got. So he has the card that says WSOP 2018 one place, event number 18. WSOP 2019, event number 35, one place, meaning first. And then uh, WSOP 2021, event number 36, one place. Of course, these are all the same event, the dealer's choice. He said, this event is so much different from every other 10K event at the series. People that play this tournament, they want to play it again and again. It's so addicting. There's so many games that we don't usually get to play in tournaments. There's so many different thought processes and strategies that don't exist in any other event. You've got to be thinking about so many things from the moment you sit down on day one all the way until the end. It's just such a unique tournament. Now, what he's saying there is that the dealer's choice event is whoever has the button in front of them, the dealer button, gets to say what game they want to play. And you have a very large list of games you can choose from. And this is different than a typical mix event, because a typical mix event, it just changes, and no player has control over it. But here, every hand, the game can change, and usually the person's going to pick the game that they're either best at, or that they think they're best at compared to the rest of the table. And there is even some strategy in picking that game. Like, for example, um, maybe you want to pick a game that you're not best at, but uh, that you're pretty good at, and someone who has a lot of chips at the table isn't that good at. You notice that's their weakest game, so you want to try to knock them out. So there can be various thought processes involved in uh, the game you pick, and you have to constantly analyze the table for how good everybody is at each game. So it's not just about uh, what game you're best at, but also uh, really what you're looking for is the biggest skill gap in a positive way between you and the rest of the table. So you've got to constantly evaluate the people at the table, not just the games they're picking, but how well they're playing each game. So he's saying you've got to constantly watch, you've got to constantly be thinking. And other events aren't like this. Other events, once you fold your cards, you could pretty much uh, tune out. He's also saying he didn't feel he had to prove anything winning a third time in a row, that he kind of came into this relaxed. He wanted to give it a shot, but he came in relaxed knowing he already won back-to-back, and that's a pretty big accomplishment anyway, which I would agree. So he was up against Helmuth, and being up against Helmuth, there is one problem you may not think of, and that is Helmuth has a big rail that want to see him win. Like, a lot of people want to see Helmuth win bracelets. So Helmuth had already won his 16th, 
and he was just off that. And now, what if he won a 17th? How excited would a lot of his fans be? So there's always a lot of people on the rail cheering for Helmuth very loudly. And it can be tough when your head's up and the crowd's against you. And I don't know if the crowd in this case was against uh, Friedman. I'm not really aware of how the crowd was. But I know this has happened before. I remember I talked to Yuha Helpy, who uh, won a bracelet recently. But Yuha Helpy is a Finnish player. And uh, I got to know him from uh, playing Limit Hold'em with him in the mid-2000s. But he almost won a bracelet much earlier, and he got heads up with Helmuth. I forgot which event, but he got heads up with Helmuth. And people kept cheering. Like, I think this is the Helmuth's 10th bracelet. They were going 10, 10, 10, 10 the whole time. So loud and obnoxious crowd cheering every time Helmuth would win, very much on Helmuth's side. And he said it got to him. He didn't play his best game because the crowd was so pro-Phil and against him. Not because they didn't like him, but just they loved Phil and they wanted to see Phil win. So it's tough. It can be tough just for that reason alone. Uh, Mike Mizraki has won the same event three times, but he didn't do it three years in a row or three series in a row. He won the 50K Players Championship in 2010, 2012, and 2018. This almost happened in uh, 09, but it didn't because uh, Thang Lu finished second in the uh, 08 event. I'm not sure if it's the 10K or the 1500, but Thang Lu finished second in 07 in that event and then winning it in 08 and 09. Now, there wasn't any drama because the second came of the first one of these three years. So there was never a point where Thang Lu thought they were going to win three in a row and then just barely missed it. But had Thang Lu managed to win instead of finish second in 07, then this would have happened 12 years ago. But it didn't because it was a second instead of first. So this is the first time it happened. And I really don't know if it'll happen again, though. This is a very tough thing to duplicate. And now he's got a shot at a fourth time next year. And if he does that, then I bet we'll never see that again. Now, he did give praise to the way Phil Helmuth played. Friedman said, I simply outcarded Phil. He played great the entire time I played with him. I picked off a couple of his bluffs in spots where I was pretty sure he was bluffing. So, very uh, complimentary towards uh, Helmuth's play. But nevertheless, he ended up winning the event. Anyway, congratulations to Adam Friedman, an incredible accomplishment. And we'll see if he can pull off a fourth time next year. Yeah, Matt Affleck is another one who uh, cried during the main event. I forgot about that. Jay Lip pointed that out as well. <laughs> I don't know how I let that one get by. I definitely knew about that. I just mentioned Matt Affleck earlier in the show, referring to his girlfriend and his friends that were taunting Luke Vrabel into just flipping out and getting himself banned. And, you know, Luke actually banned me, blocked me from Twitter two years ago over something stupid. And uh, then I think even last year, like, me and him were kind of getting at it a little bit, and he was being negative towards me. I'm like, what the hell are you? Like, I was, I was on your side. I had you on the show, to, the show here to back you up. And he's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. You know what? I, I, yeah, he, he unblocked me, and he uh, apologized and said, yeah, you know what? This guy, he's cool. He backed me when this whole thing happened. A lot of people wouldn't. So he gave me credit for 
giving him time on the show and speaking out on his behalf when a lot of others were blaming him. Okay, so I want to get to the situation with the main event schedule changing. And that's part of the reason I haven't yet announced uh, what I'm doing with the World Series myself, because I I had a plan, and then this kind of uh, threw a wrench into that. So it looked like that anyone who wanted to fly into the U.S. and play the World Series was not going to be able to, because this was not allowed by U.S. rules regarding COVID, and it looked like it was not going to be changing in time for the World Series. So international players just could not fly in. Well, this just changed a short time ago. This is from the U.S., nothing about the World Series, but the U.S. actually changed the rule about this. And then I had a feeling it was going to change the way the World Series was going to handle things, and I was right. What happened was the U.S. said that starting November 8th, everybody who is vaccinated from another country that wants to fly into the U.S., can now do so, and without no quarantine period. If you're vaccinated and you can prove it, that you are allowed to land in the U.S. November 8th or later, and then just come into the country and do what you will, which means that international players could now fly into the U.S. on November 8th and play on November 9th. Problem was, the main event begins on November 3rd, And at the time, the last day one was going to be on November 6th. So they were going to miss this. However, you are allowed to buy directly into day two, which I hate. I hate the very late registration. I think it's unfair. I think it favors players with very deep pockets who just play a ton of events. You may ask, well, why don't I do that? Why don't I, I, if, if I can afford to do it? Why don't I buy in late? Why don't I take the best advantage I can get? And the reason is because I enjoy the World Series. I enjoy actually the play of the World Series. So I don't want to register as late as possible just to give myself a small additional edge, maybe even a moderate additional edge, not even small, uh, but then immediately come in short-stacked. Now, in the main event, you're not even that short-stacked. The main event, you can skip the entire first day and come in only a little below average stack because... uh, Like 60-something percent of people make through day one. But I don't like this. I don't like the late registration with a full stack because it allows you to skip past people who bust and then you can't bust during that time. So it is an advantage to start where other people are already gone. And the closer you can start to the money, then the bigger advantage you get. Now, at least at the World Series main event, you can't start that close to the money. You're quite far from the money when you start. But so I don't like it. I don't like the buying into day two thing. I think it just favors those who enter so many events and have so much money that they don't care if they buy in and they last a few hands and they're gone. And it hurts recreational players. It hurts players who aren't recreational but are only going to play a few events and want to get some play out of it. It hurts those people and it helps those that are going to be there for 45 events so they, they don't care. Anyway, I'm not going to rant about that any further just saying that you can enter day two. So I noticed there were two day twos. There was day 2AB, which is for flights A and B, which was on November 8th. And there was day 2CD, which is for flights C and D, November 9th. I said, wait a minute. Now I guess the international players can fly in on November 8th 
and then buy into day two CD on November 9th. So as long as they don't want to play day one or, or are willing not to play day one, they can now enter the main event. And I wondered how many of them would take advantage of that. In fact, I tweeted about this as soon as I saw the report from Fox 5 Vegas, which is a TV station in Las Vegas, that this was going to be allowed to enter the country on November 8th. Well, sure enough, very quickly after I put out a tweet saying that and other poker pros were responding to it, the World Series of Poker made an announcement. And I have to imagine that uh, they either saw my tweet about it or they uh, just were aware of it themselves and decided to jump quickly and act. Could have been either one. But anyway, they put out the following on October 15th. Attention international players. In response to news of the easing of travel restrictions into the U.S., we are pleased to announce the addition of two more Day 1 flights. November 8th, Day 1E, 11 a.m. November 9th, Day 1F, 12 p.m. Hmm. And then it says, registration now closes at 3.40 p.m. on November 10th, Day 2CEF. Now, that may confuse you. But basically what they're saying here is they've added two additional flights. So whereas before you had to enter either on day A, B, C, or D, which is November 3rd, 4th, 5th, or 6th, now there's E and F on November 8th and 9th. But then what happens to day two? Because now there's two additional day ones. Does it move the entire World Series of Poker up by uh, two days? Well, not exactly. Actually, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. The, the days were November 4th through 7th originally, not 3rd through 6th. So day one through day 1A through 1D were supposed to be from November 4th through 7th, and then the next two days, the day 2, 2AB and 2CD, were supposed to be on the 8th and 9th. And then the combined day 3 would be on November 10th. That was the original plan. But now here you're going to have one day, day 1F concluding on November 9th. So obviously day 3 cannot be on November 10th. So what they ended up doing is they ended up shifting it to where day 2AB was going to be on uh, November 9th and day uh, 2CEF was going to be on November 10th. CEF meaning that days 1C, 1E, and 1F will play together and ABD meaning days uh, 1A, 1B, and 1D will play together. So anyone who plays the main on November 4th, 5th, or 7th will play the first day two, whether it's on November 9th, which will go at the same time as day 1F. And then anyone who plays on the 6th, the 8th, or the 9th will play day 2CEF, which is on November 10th. And now day three will be on November 11th. So it's pushing the whole thing back one day. And it is pushing the day twos also back one day. So everything's moving back one day and there's two additional day one flights. So it's not a huge impact, but what does happen is if you're planning for having uh, more or less downtime in the main event, you have to take note. For example, if you enter on November 4th, you're going to be waiting a long time to play day two. So let's say you play day 1A on November 4th. Your day two is going to be November 9th. So five days later, instead of one day later. So you have four days off in between day one and day two. If you enter November 5th, you have three days off between day one and day two. If you enter November 6th, you also have three days off between day one and day two because you're playing the second day two. 
So it would be all the way to playing on November 7th, which is day 1D, that you would be playing only two days later. You have just one day off. So if you play November 7th, you'll be playing again November 9th. And if you play on uh, the last starting day, day 1F, you actually won't have any breaks at all. If you play day 1F, you would play day 1 on November 9th, day 2 on November 10th, day 3 on November 11th. So you'd have to decide, if you're playing the main event, if you like having days off, and if so, how many. If you like having a ton of days in between, then play November 4th. If you like having one day in between day 2 and day 3, one day each, uh, you'd want uh, the D flight. If you want no days off, if you just want to get the thing over with as fast as possible, then start on November 9th, which is day 1F. What I am wondering is how this is going to change the way people decide to register. Because I don't think there's ever been six starting days before. I think the most they've ever had is four. And what the pros, for the most part, love to do is enter the last one. I don't know why, but they've always loved the last one. So for that reason, I've always avoided the last one, thinking the softer feel will be on anything but the final day. So what I've done is I have taken care to register on a day that not only isn't the final day, but also will keep me away from the pros on that day for as long as possible. On day three, everybody combines, but prior to day three, you can avoid them. Why do I want to do that? Because I I don't want to play tough players. I'm there to make money. I'm not there to play the toughest competition. So the better chance I can get at getting softer competition, the better. And if I make it deep, I'll get the tough competition anyway. If you want to avoid that tough competition, you're going to want to enter either on November 4th, 5th, or 7th, because that'll put you in the day two ABD. However, maybe that won't be true this year, because remember, 1D was supposed to be the last day, so it's possible that some of these pros had already planned on 1D being the day they play, and now that they've added these two flights, these people are still going to keep to the same plan. Maybe they don't even know about the change. Maybe by the time they find out, it'll be too late for them to change, or too late for them to want to change. So this is interesting. This is the first time, to my knowledge, that they have ever added two flights to the main event after the schedule's already been published. Now, I'm not complaining about that. I think it's fine. Uh, I think it will make the main event a bit harder because people who fly all the way from another country to play the main event tend not to be fish. Most of the fish at the main event are businessmen, like recreational players from the U.S. who just want to give it a shot. Most of the people from Europe and other countries are pretty good. So this is actually going to make it a little bit harder. Now, the field's so big, it's not going to have a significant impact, but uh, you're not happy to see international players coming in because they are much better than average overall. That's not to say that U.S. players are bad. It's just that since this event's in the U.S., that it's a lot easier for bad U.S. players to come play it than bad players from other countries. If you're going to come that distance, you're probably pretty good. In the U.S., there's a lot of middle-aged and older guys who have plenty of money to where 10K isn't a big deal, and they just kind of always wanted to do it. And I've played with a lot of these guys over the years. And to me, it's pretty amazing how most of these guys are dead money and have very little chance of making it to the money. And I'm pretty shocked they put 10K into that, but I guess they just wanted to play. That's what makes the World Series of Poker main event a high-value tournament. That's why 
this is different than every other 10K event, which tends to be pretty tough. The WSOP main event is a mixture of tough players and a lot of soft players. And you hope to get early tables of players who are not very good. And some years, like 2019, I get a great starting table, where great meaning great for me that people are not very good. And then other years, like 2014, I get a very bad starting table, where surprisingly, it's a very tough table. And I just don't get those recreational players. In fact, 14 was so weird because I got a very tough starting table. It broke. I said, thank you. I'm glad. Move me anywhere else but here. And I got moved to an even tougher table. So I got two really tough tables that did not make it out of day one. Not just because it was tough, but I just had a lot of cooler hands. I'm actually very good against recreational players, against players who are soft. You may say, well, yeah, of course you are. Everybody is. I said, no, 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 no. Not like you think. Of course, everybody is better against uh, weaker players than tough ones. But with me, it's to a bigger extreme than most people. Because I, I can really think like the recreational players do very well. So I have a very good feel for where they are in hands. I have a very good feel for when to put a lot of chips in against them and when to fold. And I, I can make some real good folds against them. And I can also extract a lot of money at them when, when I have the best hand and I know when to bluff them and when not to bluff them. I just uh, I have a really good feel for this type of players. So if I get dropped to one of those type of tables, as long as they don't run terrible, I'm going to do very well. So that's always what I'm hoping for for the main event. And sometimes you'll even get lucky, and as the event goes on, you can get a good table. I got a few surprisingly good tables in the 2019 main event as I made it all the way to day five. But then I also got some really tough tables. Like my late day four table was really brutal. Very, the entire, like, actually, pretty much the entire day four was very tough. Like my day five table, where I busted from, was a much easier table than my day four table. But my day one table was tremendously easy at least until near the end of the day when some better people got moved in. I was the youngest one just <laughs> at my table. I was 47. I was the youngest one by a, at least several years. But it wasn't just by age. It was just like they were, they were older and, and none of them were, were any good. So that's why that's an event you don't want to miss if you are at least a decent No Limit Hold'em tournament player. And if you are going to play the main event, as I always say, you need to forget everything you know about how you play No Limit Hold'em tournaments regarding the pace of play. So you need to tone down any kind of uh, gambling at the beginning. You don't put your chips in in 55-45 spots or 60-40 spots. You just don't because there's much better ways to get them in. You basically wait for others to hang themselves and also play small ball and try to win small pots and get value out of small pots without putting yourself too much at risk. That's the best way to do it. And if you watch, that's how the most of the good players are playing it now. Even ones that are known to be aggressive and known to be pretty uh, tricky at the table, they, they don't do that at the main event in the first few days because it's a mistake to do that. Because it's so slow. Each level is two hours and the blinds move up really slowly and it's very deep. And there's a lot of recreational players. So the best way to do it is to just avoid pitfalls. Just be careful. Let others make the mistakes, not you. Let others make big mistakes. You can make some small mistakes. You can take some small chances, but you don't take big chances. 
In 2017, I did it real well. 2017, I uh, first two days, I didn't have great cards, and I had a very nice stack going to day three, just making all the right moves. I knew exactly when to bluff, knew exactly when to fold, knew exactly when to put in minimal money when I had a great, good but great hand and I had a feeling I was against something tougher, something, you know, not tougher, but better. I mean, I, I saw things so well those first two days against both good players and bad. And then day three, I just came in, ran badly and played badly. And I didn't make the money. Very, very disappointed. Anyway, my last main event experience was good, though. Finished 128th, cash 59K. That was my very last World Series tournament. I have not played a World Series tournament since July 2019. But I'll let you know what my plans are at the end of the World Series pretty soon. Finally, as far as the World Series goes, I want to talk about Sean Deeb and his claims about what happened to him at the Rio. This is a pretty interesting claim of his and disturbing and kind of scary if you're going to stay at the Rio. But Sean Deeb, of course, a very well-known pro, very outspoken and often says uh, offensive things on Twitter. Sean Deeb said on October 10th, so it's now 12 days ago, he said on October 10th, nothing like waking up at 6 a.m. to somebody who's inside your room robbing you. PSA, meaning public service announcement, to all staying at the Rio, make sure you latch your door at night, and sadly the person ran away. We will see if security can actually do their job or not and find them. Now, Sean Deeb is infamous for tweeting very, very bad English where you can kind of barely understand him if you try really hard. But I think you got what he was saying there, that he woke up at 6 a.m. in his Rio hotel room and that there was some dude in there stealing stuff that he didn't put a latch on the door and somehow the person got in and he woke up to see someone stealing in his room. Which is pretty scary. You know, you're you're sleeping and you you hear some noise and you you open your eyes and there's some dude in the room going through your stuff stealing. I mean, I I imagine that. And how do you know the person doesn't have a weapon? And like I I would not like to wake up to that. I would hope it's a nightmare. Anyway, Sean said that uh, they ran away when he uh, yelled out at them or whatever. So he did not uh, catch the person and. At the time of his tweet on October 10th, progress had not been made in identifying who it was or how it happened. So what really happened here? Was Sean Deeb targeted because he's a high-stakes poker pro and that people know he probably has money on him? Was this a random break-in? And if so, either way, how did the person do it? Now, he didn't have the latch on the room uh, closed, so all they had to do is... uh, either use a key if the door was properly closed or just push it open if he didn't close it all the way. But somehow this person got in and he also wasn't clear about what he meant by, quote, robbing him. It sounds like someone was stealing from the room and when he noticed this, they ran off. So did they know he was in there? Did they hope to sneak in while he was sleeping and steal? And if so... Why didn't they break in when he was at a tournament? Because it's not that hard to figure out when Sean Deeb is there and not there. You just look for when he's in a tournament, and then when you know he is, 
If you can get into his room, why not steal then? Then you have plenty of time to go through all his stuff and take it. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to realize that, that a well-known poker pro who is there to play tournaments, that you just wait till he's in a tournament and you can have plenty of time to go through all his stuff if you have a way into his room. So why come in at 6 a.m. when he's sleeping when you risk being caught? And clearly this person didn't want a confrontation with him because they ran away when Sean woke up. So we have had some people making up stories about the Rio or changing the story as to what really happened. There have been a number of cases where people have claimed that their room has been burglarized or their safe broken into at the Rio, only to find out that there were some suspicious circumstances that made it seem a lot different than the initial story. For example, when money or other valuables disappear from the room, and it turns out that person has a roommate, or when it turns out that person is backed and that money is gone now. Well, it doesn't take a genius to think, well, if there's a roommate, it's most likely the roommate, not this random thief. And uh, if it's someone who's being backed, it's usually an excuse for why the backer's money was lost. So if the person shoots off the backer's money in the pits and has to explain why they can't enter any more World Series events, then they say, oh, someone broke into the room and robbed me or stole stuff out of it when I wasn't there. So... A lot of times when these stories come out, I'm very skeptical, especially if the person has a roommate or is a backed player. It seems like these stories never happen to people who are not backed and don't have a roommate. However, in this case, Sean Deeb did not have a roommate, and Sean Deeb likely is not backed. I believe he's doing pretty well and does not have a backer. So that does not make him someone who's as likely to be making up these stories. Furthermore, while Sean Deeb is often an asshole, which he will admit himself, he is not known to be a liar. So he does not have any history of just outright making up stories on Twitter. That's not to say he couldn't, but he's not someone who has done it before, and that's not really known to be part of his personality. So while it's possible that he made it up, I don't think it's that likely. I think he probably is telling a true story. However, there's still a lot of things we don't know. How did the person get in? What were they stealing? Exactly how were they going through his room? Were they going through his suitcase? Did they get into a safe somehow? Did he have a safe open or was it locked? Uh, Did he have any valuables outside the safe? Or did he go to sleep with the safe closed? By the way, it actually is pretty smart to go to sleep with the safe closed because just in case somebody can find a way into your room without waking you, or even with waking you, that in order to get into your safe, they would have to force you to open it. They uh, couldn't just grab something and run. So that's why it's not wise to go to sleep with a big brick of uh, 30K worth of bills right next to you or on the table. Because if somebody finds their way into your room when you're sleeping, they could just grab it and, and take off. Whereas in the safe, they'd have to pull a gun or a knife or something and force you to open it, which a lot of people are not willing to do, even if they're going to break into your room. So whoever did this... Div- they didn't want a confrontation. It looks like they were not going to force Sean to do anything. It looked like they were just trying to steal until he woke up, and then as soon as he did, they took off. Maybe they targeted him because he's a very large guy, and they figured that he couldn't catch them. Yeah, if you've ever seen Sean Deeb, he doesn't exactly look like a blazing fast runner. He's tall. He's like six foot two or so from what I've seen, but very large, very, very heavy. So, I mean, this is the guy who... I couldn't even picture running. 
So even a below-average runner could outrun the guy. And it's possible that whoever did this knew that and knew that they could just take off running and Sean wouldn't be able to catch them. Now, there's something that happened in 2013, and we had someone on this show who was a victim of it, and uh, he had a hard time getting the Rio to help him. This was a double check-in where, due to incompetence at the Rio, they accidentally gave someone an existing room that had a person already checked into it. It was just a mistake at the front desk. Someone was double-checked in. So a guy named Eric Sonstegard, who is uh, willing to die, willing number two die on Twitter, in 2013, someone was double-checked into his room. Eric was not in the room when the guy came in. So the dude comes in and sees Eric's stuff there, including cash, including an iPad. So this guy who notices he's double-checked in decides to steal from the person who was checked in first, which was Eric Sonstegard, and stole Eric's iPad and uh, 2K. So what happened was when he noticed this stuff was missing and he went to complain to the Rio, the Rio acted real sketchy about this and didn't want to tell him anything. Finally, they called him back in and said, hey, we have good news for you, Eric. Here's your iPad and here's 1K. Actually, I think it was 3K stolen. So they said, here's 1K back that the guys took and here's your iPad. We're not going to tell you who it was. We will admit to you it was a double check-in situation. It was an accident. But uh, the guy said that he thought it was his own stuff and he got confused when he was collecting his own stuff to go back out. And he grabbed your iPad and your 1K and sorry. And uh, Eric was like, wait, 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 wait. It was 3K, not 1K. And they're like, no, no, he said it's 1K. And Eric's like, well, no, it wasn't. It's, it was 3K. And the guy obviously either lost or is keeping my other 2K. So they would not tell Eric who it was. They would not call the police for him. They would not help him. They said, here, look, we got you back your iPad. We got you back your 1K. That's it. Matter closed. Goodbye. And he he was beside himself. He didn't know what to do. So he came on this show and called it out. And uh, I gave him some advice. And between this and him going out on Twitter about it and him following the advice I gave, the Rio backed down and gave him the other 2K. Because they couldn't verify that 3K was stolen. But my point was, look, they acknowledged they screwed up and it was very clear to them that this dude stole. So you can't just take the thief's word for it. So either they've got to make him whole and just give him the other 2K and just believe him, or they've they've got to be very, very cooperative with the police investigation, which it seemed like they didn't want to do. So with that in mind, from eight years ago, that's the first place my mind went when... Sean Deeb was talking about his story. And in fact, uh, Eric is still on Twitter and actually brought my attention to it. And it's like, hey, Todd, remember this? And I'm like, yep, I remember very well. So first place my mind went before he even brought my attention to it was, yeah, this reminds me a lot of this double check-in story. I wonder if this is what happened to Sean. I wonder if this guy just came into the room at 6 a.m. thinking it was an empty room that he was checked into and then sees a guy sleeping and then decided to take the opportunity to steal before uh, the guy wakes up. And maybe he didn't even know it was Sean Deeb. Maybe he just sees a guy sleeping and sees some stuff out and says, hey, I'll steal it. And that's still possible. It's still possible that's what happened. So I was wondering why Sean didn't give us more information. Like, why didn't Sean find out who entered his room? Because provided that a key was used, they can see who the key was assigned to at the front desk. So why weren't they giving him this information? Why can't he at least find out 
some information as to what happened. So he can find out if a key was used around 6 a.m. Or if, w- if there's no key used. And if there was a key used, he can find out who it was assigned to. Things like that. I said, Deeb should be able to get info from the front desk regarding whose key it was it was used to enter the rooms. So who was it? 6 a.m. is also the worst time to break into a poker player's room as they're highly likely to be there. This could have been a double check-in situation. It happens sometimes at the Rio. And once the dude was there, he could have just ran off in fear when Deeb woke up. I don't even understand what is meant by robbed what was stolen. So Deeb actually responded to me and he said, I need to get a lawyer for that info regarding how that person entered his room, who it was. And he said, also not saying anything publicly what was taken for obvious reasons. So that's strange. It's not obvious to me. I mean, maybe I'm stupid, but someone else messaged me like, uh, what obvious reasons? Like, that's what I was thinking. How is it obvious that you don't say what was taken? You can say what was taken. It's not going to hurt your case. Well, Steven Jacobs, remember Steve's bets from 2000s era poker stars? I was on his podcast recently. He's an attorney based out of New York City. Uh, he said, let's do this. I'm at your service. And Sean Deeb asked, can you operate in Nevada? He said, yep, we work in all 50 states because he's part of a firm. So I guess they have lawyers there that work in Nevada as well. But Deeb was saying that he needs a lawyer in order to get the information as to who entered his room and under circumstance, what circumstances was the door open. Because they can look, if they see no key being used, then they can say, hey, no key was used. You must have not closed it all the way. Or we saw a key was used uh, from another guest that we assigned to your room, whatever. Like He's telling me he needs a lawyer for that, which I don't believe. I don't believe they say to him, we're not telling you. We're not telling you if someone entered your room. We're not telling you if a key was used. We're not telling you whose key it was. We're telling you nothing. Get a lawyer. Or we're not telling you anything, Sean. I don't believe it. So that's the part where I think something's weird. Now, they may have told him this. He may have, he may have spoken to an idiot who told him this. So I'm not saying Sean's a liar. I'm saying I don't believe that to be the case. I don't believe that if Sean didn't press really hard, or if he did press really hard, that he would get this info. I think he just spoke to a dummy there who said, we can't give you this stuff, and uh, if you don't like it, get an attorney and have them talk to us, have them talk to our legal department. Probably something along those lines. For legal reasons, we can't tell you, have your attorney call our attorney. Probably they told him that. I would not give up with that. If it happened to me, let's say I had the exact same situation, that I didn't latch my door, which I would have, but let's say I didn't, and I wake up, and there's a dude going through my stuff, and I yell out to him, and he gets up and runs, and I don't catch him. By the way, can you imagine Can you imagine if it's 6 a.m., you're in the hallway, and you see this dude taken off outside of a hotel room? holding stuff and then you see Sean Deeb in his underwear and his big stomach flopping around chasing the guy <laughs> imagine that scene oh my gosh oh my god imagine like like if Sean even like followed him down to the lobby and they're like you see like Sean Deeb in his underwear running through the Rio lobby trying to ch- catch the guy now that would be entertaining let's say this happened to me and I didn't catch him exact same thing as Sean Deeb and all I know is some of my stuff is missing and some dude was in my room at 6 a.m. stealing stuff while I was sleeping. I would go right down to the front desk and I would not leave until I had answers. I would say, as the person who is renting this room, I have a right to know who just used a key to get into my room. 
and how they got this key. So is it a staff key? Is it a maid's key? Is it a key assigned to a guest? And if so, why are you assigning a guest my key to my room when I have not authorized this? I want to know what happened, who came in, and I have a right to know this. And I have a right to know either who you assigned this to, or at the very least, that you will give this to law enforcement if I call them right now and report this. So if you don't want to say who this is, if you say, look, we accidentally assigned your room to somebody else, I have a right to know that part. I have a right to know how it happened. But if they don't want to tell me who they assigned it to, just like what they didn't want to tell Eric Sonstegard eight years ago, I say, okay, because it is my word against his, whether uh, he stole stuff. So, okay, if you don't want to tell me this, I want your word that if I call the police and they call you right now, you will tell the police that. Because at the very least, they should cooperate with law enforcement. And I would get their commitment that they're going to do this. And if they say no, I'm not going to say, well, okay, well, you know, thanks for trying, bye-bye. No, I, I will stay there. I would stay there and keep pressing. And I would ask for higher and higher managers. And if there's no such th- person there at 6 a.m., which is possible, then I'll say, okay, when is one coming in? 8 a.m.? Okay, I'll come back down here at 8 a.m. But I would not give up. And I would not be pushed over to talk to legal about this. I would get to the very highest manager, the property manager of the Rio, whoever that is right now. And I would demand to talk to him and say, I want this info. I want to know how this happened to me. I have a right to know that. I may not have a right to know who you double-checked in if that's what happened, but I do have a right to know what happened and also that you will cooperate fully with law enforcement and immediately with law enforcement to identify this person so they can investigate him. And that's what you have to do at a minimum. But I can picture Sean Deeb just being too passive with this. I could picture him just being told, well, sorry, it's a matter between lawyers. Get a lawyer, then you know, have him contact our lawyers. We'll see what we can do for you. Because I have been pushed to legal before for stupid things. Nothing that has to do with a crime. But like when I was improperly charged tax at a Caesars property, and I was telling them that they charged me improperly, and here's the Clark County law that backs it, they said, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll get a hold of our legal department, and you can talk with them about it. I said, no, I, I'm not talking to your legal department about a tax that you mischarged me. That's, a, that's not uh, what they should be doing, and that's not who I should be having this conversation with. You, if you're charging tax incorrectly, if you guys want to consult them and uh, find out if it's correct or incorrect or why, then go ahead. But you shouldn't be dumping me on legal because I'm not looking to sue you for this tax. I'm looking to have you take this off because it's erroneously charged, and here's why. Here's the law. And if you think I'm wrong, then bring it to legal. But I shouldn't have to go to legal. And I shouldn't have to get a lawyer about this. That's where legal should not get involved. Now, legal should get involved if I am going to be suing them for something or threatening to sue them for something. But legal, I should not be pushed to legal to find out things that other departments should be dealing with. So so here, this is a security matter. This is not a legal matter. It's only legal in the fact that a criminal act occurred against Sean Deeb from what he says, and I believe him. Like, I, I believe he woke up to a dude in his room who was stealing stuff. So I want to make it clear here, I don't think Sean is lying. I believe he woke up to a dude stealing stuff who ran off when he yelled at him or whatever. So, okay, now it is time for them to tell Sean what really happened. 
But I know that they sometimes won't. I know they'll sometimes be difficult because that's what happened with Eric. With Eric Sonsdegard, they didn't want to tell him they double-checked him. They just said, look, a mistake happened. That's all we're going to say. Here's your stuff back. Now leave and shut up. That's basically what they told him. Here's your iPad. Here's your 1K. Now go. Goodbye. And he's like, no, it's 3K. No, it's 1K. Goodbye. That's what the guy said. Which guy? You know, the the, the guy we, that um, accidentally took it from you. Sorry. And it took a lot to get out of them that they even double-checked the guy in. They wouldn't even explain what happened for a while. And this is not just confined to the Rio. Hotels are notorious for wanting to cover their own ass when they make mistakes which result in uh, guests being victimized in some way. All they want is the situation to go away. So you'd like to think that they're going to help you and they're going to jump on investigating whoever stole and they're going to report them to the police. That's not what happens. They just want it to go away and stop and, and, and shoo you away and make it as possible as, as difficult for you as possible to make a further headache for, for them. So they think by giving you less info that that will happen. So if they give you an extra level of burden of having to hire an attorney to find out what happened, you're probably just going to say, screw it. Because there's an expense, there's a lot of difficulty, there's a lot of uh, time you're going to waste on this. So if it's not enough money that you're out there, you're probably not going to go that far. You'll probably just say this sucks and bitch on Twitter and that's it. But I would be the guy who'd keep pressing this. I would be the one demanding answers. And I think he could get them if he were to press hard enough, especially because he's a fairly big name in poker, Sean Deep. He's not like Phil Helmuth level, but he is a very well-known poker pro. Like, Sean Deeb is much better known than me. In fact, when I ended up in that terrible warehouse, that hot, non-air-conditioned warehouse during the Big 50 event two years ago, so was Sean Deeb. And I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, who's even more uncomfortable here than me? And I see, like, 400-pound Sean Deeb there, or whatever the hell he weighs. And I'm going, he's got to be miserable here. If I'm miserable here, he's got to be worse. So I actually tweeted to him, it was hard to reach his table. Everything was so cramped there. Like, it was hard to even get over there and talk to him. So I, I tweeted to him because he mentioned he was there. I tweeted, and, and I saw he was there. I said, can you say something? Because I'm saying things, and they're not doing anything about it. They're they're being very slow about getting the air conditioning fixed and moving us out of this room. And I, I think you could make this happen faster. And uh, it would really help if you were to say something. And for whatever reason, he wouldn't. But I had that thought that he was a he was the biggest name in the room. I thought if Sean Deeb said something, it may actually get us moved out of there, whereas with me saying something, it was not going to happen fast enough. I knew by the time I could get action taken, we were going to be moved out anyway, which is what happened. We got moved out towards the end of the day because they just didn't need it anymore. So I think if Sean Deeb kept pressing and said, look, I'm, I'm a pretty big name in poker, I'm going to really, really press this in the public eye. So I want to know what happened. I think they tell him. And I haven't heard much more about this. This is back on October 10th. I haven't heard if he actually got a lawyer. I haven't heard if he's found out anything more about this. I'm scanning down his Twitter and I'm not really seeing anything about this since this happened. I see him more talking about Phil Helmuth than anything else. So I'm kind of thinking he's going to give up. I'm even wondering if uh, he's going to get a lawyer to pursue this. I'm scrolling through that thread he started on the 10th, see if there's any updates. It looks like there's not. There's like 150 replies, and he's replying to some of the replies, including me. 
but I'm not really seeing anything here as far as updates. So it kind of looks like he's just letting this go. Unless there's something happening behind the scenes. Maybe I'll try to get an answer from him. You know, I might even message him privately. I have kind of a weird relationship with him, in case you're wondering. You may wonder, like, do Sean D and I get along? Do we like each other? Do we dislike each other? Um, we don't get along great, but we don't hate each other. And it was kind of weird over the years. We'll have times where he bashes me and says bad things about me. And we'll have other times where he'll message me privately about uh, helping out with something or uh, calling out something he wants to see called out. Like I, it's, I've gotten both things from him. <laughs> so I, I don't know what to say. So this is definitely not a guy I'm buddies with, but he's not an enemy, an enemy of mine either. We've kind of had a tense relationship at times, but nothing that bad. So he's someone at least I could message and say, hey, what's the story with this? And if you'd like some advice, I can give some to you. Because I'd like to see him solve this. When I was expressing some skepticism with this whole thing, not, not like that he was lying, but that he wasn't telling us enough and we, 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 want, we should know more so we could figure out what's going on here. Because this doesn't just affect him. If there's someone who could just access any hotel room he wants who's stealing from people, that's something all poker players should know. So this wasn't just about concern for him. This is concern for everybody, including myself, if I go to the Rio. That's why I was pressing these things. And someone will say, hey, you know, just because Sean is a jerk on Twitter doesn't mean that uh, you, he's a liar or that you should be taking this lightly. And I said, I'm not taking this lightly. I, mean, I don't think he's a liar. I'm just saying that we need to know more. But anyway, I think I will message him and I'll ask him what's going on with this and can I help? Because I'd like to see whoever did this get caught. And I'd like to see the Rio's feet held to the fire over this matter. CGen in chat wrote, I got double-checked into the Westgate once. I was laying on the bed and a couple walked in. They gave me an immediate upgrade. <laughs> yeah, I would hope so. I've never had that happen before, but it's more common than you think. It's not super uncommon to be che- double-checked in. It could happen in a variety of ways. Uh, uh, one way it can easily happen, by the way, is if uh, the computer system is very slow to update, so if you get checked into a room and then another person at the front desk simultaneously is trying to check somebody else into the room and their system hasn't uh, updated with the new information yet, it hasn't refreshed yet, then uh, that can happen. But of course, uh, the way CJan is talking about it and the way Sean Deeb talked about it and the way Eric Sonstegar talked about it, they had all been in the room for quite some time. So this wasn't like minutes later. So this does sound to me like just some kind of uh, error happened in the system that didn't show that uh, someone was checked into the room. There also could be a user error. There could be ways to do it where the room could be already occupied and maybe can still be checked into another guest and that there isn't something that prevents that from happening when there should be. Like every competently designed system that manages uh, hotel reservations should not allow this to happen. If you try to check someone into a room and there's presently someone there, it just should absolutely not allow that to happen. But I don't know how it's been happening, but it does happen. Oh, and so CJN actually said it was minutes later for him. So that one probably was a, a refresh issue where a second agent checked somebody in at the same time and hadn't seen on their screen yet that uh, it didn't pop up yet that that was already checked in by him. Usually when this happens, it's innocent. 
but then sometimes people will take advantage of the opportunity. And it's very sad. It's very sad that like someone who just at a hotel not to steal or commit crimes, they get double checked in and they walk in. And if the person's either sleeping or especially if the room is unoccupied and just the original person's stuff is in there, but there's no person in there, then sometimes people will take advantage of it and steal, which is crappy. Like, if I saw this happen, what I would do is I would immediately uh, walk back out. And if uh, there was someone in there, I'd quickly tell them, oh, I just got checked in here. I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm going to go back down and complain. (laughs) And I suggest you do, too. Like, that's what I'd say, and then I'd leave. If I came in and there was nobody there, but I saw someone's stuff there, I would also immediately leave and then go back down and say, someone's stuff is in here. I think you double-checked me in. It would never cross my mind to go through their stuff and steal things, and it would definitely not happen where if I saw stuff out in plain sight that I would steal it. Like, I'm serious. Like, let's say the person had $10,000 just sitting on the table. It wouldn't even slightly cross my mind to grab that $10,000, even if I knew I could get away with it. Because that would just, like, be outright stealing from someone. It's terrible. So I wouldn't do that. But there are people out there that they just see the opportunity and they will steal. Especially gamblers who may not have the bankroll they wish they did. And this is an opportunity to get that bankroll. And CGN says he goes to a lot of hotels and he only had that happen that one time. So it, it isn't that common, but it, it, it does happen enough to where you got to think about it. Disposition asked CGN in chat just now, you just finished cranking it? No wonder you didn't invite them in. Probably yelled at them to leave. <laughs> to be honest, whether I had finished, quote, cranking it or not, uh, if a couple walked in, that's something I wouldn't want to be part of. I would not want to have a threesome with another dude involved. That is not the slightest bit appealing to me, no matter what the girl looks like. Okay, so uh, we don't see anything more about this. I, I can't say that much more. I think I will message Sean Deeb. I should have done this already, but we've given him his uh, two weeks or so. It's been 12 days since he said so. So something should have happened by now. And if something didn't, he may be letting it go, and he shouldn't let it go. He's still at the Rio. He should jump on this, especially someone like him who has a good social media following. He's got almost 40,000 followers, most of whom are poker fans. So they look real bad for the Rio if they just will not tell him, won't help him. Like If he presses this hard, they're going to have to answer to this. I, I guarantee you they're going to have to answer to this if someone like Sean Deeb is pressing, pressing, pressing that they won't tell him what happened. That would look horrendous for them. But if he mentions it once on October 10th and lets it go, then yeah, everyone will forget it. Because not everyone's sitting here worrying about Sean Deeb's hotel room. Most people don't think much about this anymore. People just let the story pass by and then move on to the next thing. So it's very easy to uh, get distracted by Phil Helmuth saying he's going to burn down the Rio or Adam Friedman winning the same event three times in a row. Like That starts to occupy your mind instead of Sean Deeb's hotel room. Let's move on here. I want to tell you about a bizarre story involving chess with dice. And you may think, who wants to listen to this? Chess with dice. Sounds like the most boring story ever. Well, not really. It's just kind of weird. And it involves two longtime poker figures. And I guarantee this has not been covered anywhere else, not just on podcasts, but anywhere on the web. You won't find this anywhere else except Poker Fraud Alert. And this is a reason that you should pay attention to Poker Fraud Alert because we cover a wide breadth of topics 
in poker and gambling and sometimes even other areas. But stuff like this will get missed by nearly everyone else. And sometimes like this by everyone else. So we will cover a lot of things that people will not find and do it pretty thoroughly. And this is one of these cases. This is a poker fraud alert exclusive of the chess with dice situation and what appears to be some kind of rivalry between two old school old school poker figures. So let's talk first about Jack McClelland. He's been around in poker for a long time. He is best known as a uh, tournament director. He is 70 years old, and his career in poker spans back about 40 years, maybe even more than that. He was the director of the WSOP in the 1980s. He was the manager of the Bellagio Poker Room from 02 to 13. So for quite some time, he was the manager there. And he was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame, not as a player, but as uh, a non-player, in 2014. He's officially retired. The very last thing he did was manage the WPT 5 Diamond event. He does not have any World Series of Poker bracelets, and I believe he's made two World Series of Poker final tables prior to the one we're going to talk about. But this isn't really that much of a poker story and more of a poker-adjacent story involving two people associated with poker. So he's more of a poker industry figure who also sometimes plays poker. He has uh, about $350,000 on his Hinden Mob results for tournaments, and this spans back uh, to 1983. And, you know, he plays when he can, especially now that he's retired. He made the final table of the 10K seven-card stud event, which began on October 9th, and that is the same event where Helmuth had his F-bomb laid in meltdown where he threatened to burn down the Rio. And that actually gave a little more attention to Jack McClelland because he was at that table. Now, Jack didn't really do, out, do anything that notable at the table, and he finished fifth and cashed 40K, so good for him. But this is not about anything that happened at that table. This is about Jack's appearance at that table and what he was wearing. And a few people noticed that he was wearing something a little bit strange, and it was never explained on the broadcast, even though he had it on the entire time. So Jack McClelland was wearing a hat and a mask that had a logo on it that was chess roll. That was what it said, chess roll, exactly as it sounds. But... Nobody understood what that meant. What is chess roll? He actually has a mask. It says chess roll on it. He has a hat, chess roll on it. But what? what is that? What is chess roll? I'd never heard of chess roll. You probably haven't heard of chess roll. So what is chess roll? And why was 70-year-old Jack McClelland promoting it? Well, it turns out that there are now competing chess with dice games out there. And I'm hearing about some bad blood between the principal men involved in these two chess with dice games. 
So in 2014, British poker pro Peter Costa, who is now 65, filed for a patent for a game that he called Chess Game with Specialized Dice. And the patent goes as follows. Chess Game Using Specialized Dice. Abstract. A method of playing a game where two players use a checkered game board, three specialized dice, and traditional chess pieces. More specifically, the checkered board can be a traditional 8x8 chess board, or it can be an expanded 10x10 board. Additionally, three specialized dice each display one traditional chess piece per side of the die. Therefore, each die will have one king, one queen, one rook, one knight, one bishop, and one pawn depicted on it. In the most basic sense, the game involves making movements each turn based upon the depictions that show up when three dice are rolled. Now, I don't know exactly how it works. I don't know why there's three dice involved. But it has something to do with where you roll the dice, and depending upon which pieces show on the dice, from on the dice instead of numbers, it has pictures of chess pieces, like the pawn, the king, the rook, the bishop, etc. And depending on what's shown on the dice is what you're allowed to move. So that's the additional dimension now to chess, that it plays like normal chess, except what you can actually move, the piece you can actually move, is dictated by the dice. So it restricts you somewhat. And this idea was something that uh, Peter Costa came up with. I actually had Peter Costa at my final table, the very first final table I ever made, in fact, the very first World Series of event I ever played. And I put a bad beat on him. I had Queen Jack in the big blind. He had aces under the gun. And I flopped a gut shot. He bet the flop. I called, and I hit the gut shot on the turn. And I check-raised him. And then River was not quite a blank, but it would have made it like a one-card straight was then possible, which made his hand even worse. So I bet, and he took a while to think about calling, and then finally called. Because each bet was pretty big. This was was limit hold'em, so... He was considering folding, but it was pretty hard to fold there, given that he had the top set and only loses to a straight there. Anyway, Peter Costa has been around poker for quite some time. He already seemed like an old guy back then, back in 05, but I guess he wasn't that old. I guess he's the same age I am now. Seemed older than that, to be honest. But he's 65 now. He's been around the poker scene for decades. Jack McClelland been around even longer. And Peter Costa has a lot of different patents he's filed over the years related to gaming. Looks like he's just trying to create the next big thing in gaming. I've been taking shots at this going all the way back uh, to the 2000s. None of them really caught on from what I could see. And he actually filed for a number of patents that have to do with this. There is one from... uh, February 2021, called Chess Game with Chance Elements, which is very similar. Chess Game with Chance Elements from December 13, 2019. So a number of these have been filed, all pretty much saying the same thing. I'm not sure why there's multiple patent applications, and I'm not sure if any of these were granted. In fact, from what I've heard, none of them were granted. I'm going to play you a presentation that he did for a game called Chexy. Now, Chexy is the name he gave to Chess with Dice. C-H-E-X-I, Chexy. If you'd like to see this presentation, which I probably won't play in full, 
but I think it's like a seven-minute video. It's not very exciting, but if you want to see him giving the presentation with a bunch of people in the room and explaining Chexy, presumably this was a potential investors meeting where he's pitching it to people. But he's been soliciting investments for at least a few years now into Chexy, which he thinks has a potential to be big for some reason. So listen to this meeting he had, which is publicly available on YouTube. If you just look on YouTube for Chexy, C-H-E-X-I, or just go to the Poker Fraud Alert thread in the Poker Community Discussion Forum, you can see this video, and you can watch it yourself with Peter Costa right in front. Well, this is simplicity at its best, really. What, we, what we've done here is we are now able to replicate the entire poker model. So if you imagine what poker is today, how it's presented all over the world, how it's played all over the world, we are able to replicate that, but apply it to the chess market through checksing. And let me stop it right here. The sound quality is not the best, but that's just the way it is, the way it appears on this video. Nothing I can do about that. And this was actually recorded before the miniseries The Queen's Gambit came out. So in case you're wondering and think he's talking about how chess was having kind of a comeback because of The Queen's Gambit, that had not happened yet when he did this. This was in 2019. Because the, the biggest problem chess has always had and it's a, it's a problem that they've thrown money at in the past and trying to overcome, but they can't overcome it because the game is too elitist. It's for, it's for the masters, it's not for the masters. So imagine if for poker, for example, uh, you have 600 million players and only 2% two, 2 could win, or even 1%, because that's what chess is. So now with chess... Actually, it's kind of true. <laughs> that kind of is true about poker. I don't know what percentage wins in poker, but long-term, it's not very high. And that's why so many poker pros fail. And I'm surprised that Peter Costa doesn't know that. Again, I don't know if it's 2%, but I'm not saying that in a given day that only 2% are winners. Obviously, that's not true. But because of the rake eating people up, and also because people tend to keep gravitating to higher and higher limits when they can beat lower limits and then won't go back down, you pretty much have a lot of players rising to the highest level they can't beat <laughs> or the lowest level they can't beat. They, they rise to that and then lose there and then they never go back down. So even though they beat previous levels, then they lose there. So you, you have the biggest sharks at the top swallowing up a lot of the money and then the rake swallowing up a lot as well. So you really don't have that many long-term successful poker pros. You mostly have people who slowly bleed away money. But that aside, let's go on. See, anybody can beat anybody. And so what we are able to do now is totally replicate whatever poker does. Social, real money gaming, digital, live, everything. Uh, so that's what Chexley really is. So, uh, is that it? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's how easy it is. I mean, there's not a lot else to say apart from that. So what we are doing, we are developing the apps. We want to bring it out on the market first. We already have a team in place. And, and it, it's quite funny how this happened because the guy I sent an email to is actually a high-ranking chess player. I didn't know. I, I've known him for 20 years in the industry. Oh, by the way, I'm Peter Costa. I played the Chexy and uh, I, I've founded uh, Play Chexy. 
I'm a poker player. So I've been in the gaming industry for the last 20 odd years. And I went from poker uh, to an obsession with creating games. I like to solve problems. And I, there was not a bigger problem than what the chess industry was faced with. Uh, because they can't monetize chess. Because it, uh, you're only going to have one player winning a tournament. They held um, a tournament here in Vegas a couple of years ago. I met with a guy who uh, put it together, he did a great job. He got a million dollars in sponsorship. And I said, this model can't work. He said, yes, but I've got a million dollars, you know. I said, it won't work. Because, I'll tell you what, I will bet on the number one ranking player winning the main event. And he actually did. And that is the problem. He didn't raise money for this year. Because without the masses, you can't attract sponsorship and TV and what have you. And this is what we were able to do with Chexy. So I started reaching out once we did the demo. Let me stop here. Let me tell you what he's getting to. He's trying to say that Chess is a game where it's too skill-dependent. So where a really good player is always going to beat someone who isn't very good. Or even a really good player will beat a good player almost every time. So you don't have a lot of variance where you have chess players facing one another who have some kind of skill gap that's big enough it's just not going to happen very often where the worst player wins. Now, you can have two who are fairly close in skill where one's better than the other, and the one who isn't as good can win sometimes. But it just doesn't happen often enough, and he's saying that's the problem with chess is it doesn't work for the masses because the masses are never going to ever be able to compete. You don't have it like in poker where you'll have someone who gets lucky for a tournament who by far is not the best player but manages to win. In chess, that doesn't happen, and he's saying that's one reason that it's really being held back. Okay, I mean, I can kind of get that. It's also not exciting to watch. Poker at least has some exciting moments to watch on TV when you have the whole cards and you have all-ins and things like that. So you you can have things that are exciting for the masses to watch with poker, and that's what was discovered in 2003 with those whole card cams. Chess doesn't really have that. That's what he's missing. He He's acting like if we remove the overskill element to chess as far as appeal to the masses, that then it can be monetized very easily. That's not true, because it's still not going to be interesting to watch. But what he's trying to do here, this chest with dice, is introducing more of a chance element to it that brings down the skill factor to where skill isn't as important as it was before. It still matters, but top players in chess could still lose to average players with this new dice scheme where there's this random element which just won't allow you to make certain moves. So as a grandmaster, you may know the very best move to make right now where an average player wouldn't, but if the dice don't let you, then you can't do it. So if the other player, if the average player gets better dice rolls, then he may be able to beat you simply by who he's allowed to move. So that's the whole point of Chexy. And he founded a company called Play Chexy. And he's he's of the belief in this video here, which it looks like a conference call between a room of people on Peter Costa's side, presumably people who work for Chexy, and uh, 
than a room of people on the other side who are presumably potential investors. I didn't quite understand exactly what this is. The video is just called Chexy. But I'll play a little more of it. I reached out to one of my contacts. And as I said, I, did, I had no idea he was a high-ranking chess player. He looked at my email and laughed uh, at chess with dice. It just doesn't work. So I got him on play the demo. He was hooked within two minutes. He played 12 games. And now he's put a team together that wants to take Chexy to the max. Now what we can do with Chexy is everything. We can focus on social apps, but the ultimate is to create a real money up online operation. We want to be the poker stars of the chess world. And poker stars, they make five, six, seven, eight million a day, whatever it is. And we can do that with Chexy. So you see where he's trying to go with this, that they're going to run an online site where people play Chexy against each other for money and that they'll grow huge and they can become the next poker stars and it could just print money and it's a wonderful idea and all they had to do was add dice to the game and they can just make money hand over fist. Just take the traditional game of chess, throw dice into it and bang, you got a money maker. Everyone's going to love it. Everyone's going to play there and you just keep collecting rake and you all pat yourselves on the back for a job well done in bringing this wonderful chess variant to the masses and making chess a game accessible to all. Well, then why hasn't this happened? Have you heard of Chexy prior to the segment? I bet you haven't. And I bet you have never played any chess with dice game. I bet you haven't heard of any chess with dice game prior to this segment. You also might be asking, what the hell am I talking about with Chexy? We're supposed to be talking about chess roll, which was on Jack McClellan's hat and mask. Why do I care about Peter Costa and Chexy? I'm sure you can probably guess, but I will link the two together pretty shortly. Anyway, he was soliciting investors in this manner. I'm not going to play the rest of it. There's like another three minutes, but whatever. You get the point. Seemingly, Peter Costa got a boost in 2020. Remember, this video I just played was in 2019. He seemingly got a boost in 2020 when The Queen's Gambit came out. The Queen's Gambit, for those of you that don't know, was a mini-series about a female chess player. It was fiction. This was not about a real person, but it was about a female chess player from the time she was a little girl until she was a young woman and how she eventually became a champion. And it was interesting. It was well done. People enjoyed it. A lot of people really liked it, even if they really had no experience with chess. You didn't have to be someone that knowledgeable about chess to like the Queen's Gambit. And uh, this really got a lot of people either interested or reinterested in chess after watching that series. The sales of chess sets hit like an all-time high after the Queen's Gambit came out. You can still watch it on Netflix. It's still there if you haven't seen it. Phil Helmuth watched it in November of 2020. He said, I just watched The Queen Gambit. Great series. I invested in a game called Chexy. Chexy, chess with dice, levels the playing field. With the right rolls of the dice, an intermediate player can beat a grandmaster. Kind of like it is in poker. Playchexy.com, hashtag chess with luck. So that's what uh, he tweeted on November 6th, 2020. So he got Helmuth to invest. That's what Peter Costa managed to get Helmuth. I don't know how much he put money into this, but I don't know how much Helmuth put into this. But P. 
Peter Costa got Helmuth to invest, which pretty impressive, I guess. So I think Costa had his handout to a lot of people and pitched this to a lot of people, and he got some believing in it, like Helmuth. What would happen if you go to playchexi.com? That is P-L-A-Y-C-H-E-X-I.com. Remember, this was being pushed by Helmuth in November of 2020. It's only 11 months ago. You get a black screen. That's all. A black screen. Nothing on it. So presumably, playchexy.com no longer exists. And I can't find any website for it. I can't find any way to play the game of Chexy. It just isn't out there. I don't know what's going on with it, because here you had Peter Costa talking about it in 2019 in this investors meeting. You had Phil Helmuth, who sunk money into it sometime in 2020. But the website's actually black. It's not like it's coming soon, not like it says we're down for maintenance. It's actually black, and it's been this way for at least a week now from the time I first tried to take a look at it. So let's go back to Jack McClellan and Chess Roll. Chess Roll is the same thing as Chexy. It really is. Listen to this. This is from Chess Roll's website. They do have a website. Unlike Chexy, they do have a functional website, Chess Roll. Your move is dictated by the roll of the dice. Each player has a set of three dice. Hmm, sounds familiar. If the dice show a pawn, a rook, and a queen, you are only allowed to move one of those pieces. The results of your dice will appear on the, these highlighted bars that are located in the upper right and left corners of the screen. Similarly, the pieces that you're allowed to move are highlighted on the board for easy visualization. So it sounds like for the three dice, I think I'm t- trying to, uh, I'm starting to understand this better. Sounds like whatever pieces come up on the three dice are the ones you can move and everything else you can't. So chess roll does exist and you can find it at chessroll.com, exactly as it sounds. But it sounds like the exact same game that Peter Costa was pushing and the patents he was applying for. It sounds like the exact same description. So what's going on here? How come Jack McClelland is involved with this chess roll game and Peter Costa is pushing this Chexy game and yet they seem to be the same game? How do we have two guys in the poker industry pushing the same game under different names? And is it possible they ever had a connection before? Well, the answer is yes. I found on the web, on a site called opencorporates.com, which lists uh, a bunch of information about uh, corporations, and you can search on there. It's called the Open Database of the Corporate World. So LLC is listed there. It says incorporation date, December 26, 2018, as a domestic LLC in Nevada. And it was, it has the following directors and officers as of the date of this uh, opencorporates.com entry, which I have to imagine has changed by now. But uh, here's the list of directors and officers. You have Jack McClelland, other, so there it is right there, the law offices of James D. Sullivan, agent, must be a lawyer they were having helping them do this. Peter Costa member. Peter Costa member again. And William Tricarico member. It looks like it's Peter Costa, William Tricarico, 
Jack McClelland and some lawyer named James Sullivan, who were the directors and officers of Play Chexy at some point. I don't see the date of this entry. That's what was listed here and obviously was the truth at one point, unless the site has it wrong, which I doubt it because they're just harvesting this from uh, some publicly available data that's made for the public to look at if they so are inclined. So uh, I, I doubt there's an error here. And in fact, from what I've heard in my research of the matter, Jack McClelland was part of Chexy, and in fact, I am hearing that he invested into Chexy. But he is wearing a hat that says chess roll, and chess roll seems to be the same game, except it's under a different name and it's a different company. So what is going on here? Why is he not wearing a Chexy hat? Well, I have heard a rumor that Jack McClelland had some kind of falling out with Peter Costa and Chexy and left and decided to start his own version. Yeah, well, I'm going to go build my own theme park with blackjack and hookers. In fact, forget the park. So he started Chess Roll to compete with Chexy. Now, why is that okay? I asked that to the person who told me of this rumor, of this falling out, which I would think is a pretty good theory, given that uh, McClelland was definitely part of Chexy at some point, according to that opencorporates.com, and no longer seems to be, and instead is pushing this chess roll on his hat and mask that he wears at the final table. I don't know if he wears that hat and mask everywhere, like when he has to wear a mask when he goes a lot of places these days indoors, does he wear a chess roll mask, or is that specifically for TV? Either way, he was really trying to promote it on that stream. And I don't know what exactly happened between the two of them, but it does really appear that Jack McClellan left Chexy at some point and started his own version of pretty much the same game. But how can he do that? Why couldn't Peter Costa just sue him for it? Well, apparently, from what I am hearing, and I haven't verified this, but what I have been told and what I'm hearing from certain people in the know about this, or at least who claim to be in the know about this, I have been told that this is something you can't patent. Even though Peter Costa has been trying, he has not been able to get it patented because you cannot patent chess and you cannot patent dice games. You can't just say, here's a game with dice, I want to patent it. And you can't patent chess. So this left... Peter Costa kind of out of luck that even though he made a variant of chess with dice that the addition of dice isn't enough to qualify for a patent and you can't even patent dice games so that really leaves him out in the cold as far as getting a patent and it can be very difficult to claim any kind of legal right to this concept that's what I'm hearing that's why I'm hearing and I, I that's why Jack McClellan seems to have been able to do this, according to the person who is familiar with the situation who discussed it with me. Now, this may not be correct, but uh, that's what I was told, and it sounds plausible. But my question is why? Seriously, why? Are you excited about Chess with Dice? I'm not. 
I think you probably aren't either. So let's say there was a website. Well, in fact, there is Chess Roll. I haven't tried to actually sign up for it or play it, but let's just say Chess Roll is functional and is active and you can sign up for it and you can deposit real money and play against people there. Would you really have the desire to play chess with dice for money? Probably not, right? It doesn't sound that exciting. I think part of the reason it's not exciting is because it takes a while to complete. Chess is not a fast game. Chess is a game that you go back and forth and you make your move, they make their move, blah, 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 blah. In fact, some people play a chess match over a period of time these days. You'll have people online start chess games and they'll make a move, then they'll wait for the other side, and they'll wait for the other side. It can take months to complete a game. In fact, I have a relative, and I don't know if he still does this, but uh, he used to play chess by mail a long time ago. And that is really slow. (laughs) You'd do one move and then send a letter to the opponent who would then make the move on their chessboard, then they make the move back and mail back to you the move they want to make. And I would think that would take years. I've never done it, but this relative of mine told me about it. But even if you can play online, unless you're both committing to be there and actively make moves, this could take a long time. But let's say you do. It still takes a while to complete. It's not like a poker hand, which never takes very long to be over, and then you move on to the next one. So someone who wants action, which is what gamblers want. Gamblers want action. Gamblers want money flying back and forth. That's why poker is appealing to gamblers, because you're constantly putting money in the pot. And the hand is over, and you get another hand pretty soon after, even if the current hand either doesn't work out for you, or you fold it before any action on your part. Chess is not like this at all. Chess, you're putting money in at the beginning and and playing out this uh, match with someone, and then... I guess you start another one when you're over. Maybe you can play several at once, but still, it's not the same thing. Now, you can say, well, look at sports betting. Sports betting, you're betting on a game that takes hours to play. Yes, but you don't even have to watch it. If you don't enjoy watching the sporting event you're betting on, you don't have to. You can bet on it and not even look at it till the next day, see if you won or lost. Or you can bet on it and check updates on the score every so often. But here you have to actively be part of it, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and just to pull out a heads-up win against somebody. It's not even like a poker tournament, which takes some time, where if you do make it a very long way, you're probably going to get paid pretty well. Here, you, you have to play a long time just to win one match. So to me, already that takes away a lot of the allure to gamblers. And also, you have to even have a desire to play the game itself. And to me, it just kind of feels weird. I'm not a big chess guy, but if I was a chess guy, I wouldn't really find much appeal in a version of chess where I have to only move if the dice say I can. I would find it frustrating to know I need to make such and such move, but I'm not allowed to. And then my opponent gets a better roll, and then he can make the better move. It's different than the luck of the draw in poker. It's different than taking a bad beat on the river in poker. This is seeing a move right in front of your face that you want to make and should make and can't make. I have to imagine that would drive people crazy. It just doesn't seem that fun. 
So chess with dice, to me, does not seem like something that would catch on. Whenever you have something new that's supposed to be revolutionary and is going to get a lot of people interested and excited, you have to think like the masses. You can't think like yourself. You can't think what you would like. You can't think what is an original idea or what you think is a clever idea or what you think you would find fun or even what your friends would find fun. You have to think of how the masses think. You have to think about how the intended audience is going to receive it. And uh, you can feel like they're going to like it. You can hope they're going to like it. But you have to be honest with yourself. Are they going to like it? What are they looking for? And are we providing it to them? You can't just say, oh, well, chess is really not succeeding for the masses because the masses, for the most part, aren't very good at it. And uh, they know if they play someone tougher than them, they're going to lose. So if we could only eliminate that element, everyone's going to love it. Not necessarily. I mean, even if what you're saying is true, there may be other reasons that the masses just don't like chess. It's too slow. They, they might see it as too cerebral. It may be hard for them to make chess in their mind as something that they would uh, bring into the gambling realm. It's something that feels unnatural to people. You have to look at all these things. You have to look at what is the average person going to think. Well, listen to how Calwatt reacted. He hadn't heard of this before I mentioned to him. Now, he's not an average guy. I'll say that. But still, he's someone who is newly introduced to it. And he's like, oh, who'd want to play that? Why, why is that a good idea? <laughs> Immediately, that was what he thought. He didn't say, oh, that seems cool. I want to try that. No, no. he thought of like, what? Who's going to like that? If you start getting that reaction from just people you introduce it to, who are being brutally honest about how they feel about it, because Calwatt could be brutally honest because he knew it wasn't my idea, so he knew he wasn't going to hurt my feelings by criticizing it. So he just bluntly said, this doesn't seem like it's appealing, or some form of that. And I think that's the way most people will react. I think you bring this to the masses, and they're just not going to want to do it. We saw a little of this with Phil Galfond and his Run It Once poker site, where Phil created a site that he thought he would like, or he thought that pros should like, and he thought that recreational players should like, but not what they did like or would want to like. And they put a lot of effort into features that people really weren't that into and didn't focus on the basics enough. And then he got mad, then he got frustrated with the poker pros who were criticizing it, saying, you guys don't realize how good you have it. You, you just can't open your mind. What's your problem? And it was like the angriest I've ever seen Phil Galfon get. Usually he's very jovial and easygoing. And here you could see he was starting to get pissed because they were probably losing a lot of money. He was starting to get pissed because his vision of what was so revolutionary and interesting wasn't shared by everybody else. Everybody else, for the most part, was like, whatever you're bringing to us here, we don't really like. We're really not into it. Just bring us a good site. Bring us a good, solid poker site. And why aren't you doing that? Why, why are you bringing all these weird features we don't really want? <laughs> so so uh, it pissed him off. You could tell. And we talked about that before in the show. And that was a case of just not thinking like the target audience is going to think. He was thinking the way he wanted them to think. Someone who is very good for the most part, but not even perfect at this, but someone who's good for the most part at that was Steve Jobs. And 
with the iPhone, he came out with something that he knew the masses were going to love, and they did. And he came up with a number of other concepts in uh, electronics and personal computing, which were appealing to the masses. Some of which even took a little while to catch on, like the whole idea of the um, graphical user interface being integrated into the operating system of a personal computer. His computer was not the first to do that, but he was the first one to really bring this to the masses. And even then, people weren't quite ready for it, and it more caught on later when Windows got popular. But Steve Jobs had a good feel for that, but at times, he made the same mistake. Like with the Apple Lisa, which was an early version of the Macintosh, which just people really didn't want in 1984. And with his next computer, another failure. So even Steve Jobs, who was very good at this, sometimes made the mistake of thinking what he liked versus what the masses would like. But at least he had some big hits, too. The most notable being one of his last hits, which was the iPhone. But if you don't have the talent to do that, then you're going to lose a lot of money. And that's how a lot of these uh, so-called revolutionary ideas never get off the ground because they really never have the potential to get off the ground. It's not even a matter of poor marketing or lack of funding. It's just it's not an idea that really excites anybody. And sometimes people have a hard time thinking like others. They only want to think like themselves. So Peter Costa seems pretty convinced that this is going to be huge one day. But he's been trying this for seven years and it hasn't gone anywhere. And apparently he's raised a bunch of money from guys like Helmuth. And we have a site that has a black screen and nothing else. You can't play Check C anywhere, from what I can see. And Chess Roll, I guess you can play, but I don't really see anyone playing it. I don't know how long it's been around. Maybe very new. And McClellan seems to be trying to get it going, since he has that uh, Chess Roll hat and mask on. But I don't see that catching on either. I don't care how many times he makes the final table... And where's that on stream? Which is kind of funny that he never said anything. Like You think at some point he would quickly mention, hey, if anyone wonder about my hat? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a chess with dice game I started. Like, at least say something like that on the stream <laughs> to get people interested. I don't think people are going to go take a look at what chess roll is. I mean, I looked, but not many people are going to unless uh, they're really interested in figuring it out. But I just don't see how this is going to be something that ever will catch on, even with the interest in chess from the Queen's Gambit. But if you are going to try to do it, you really had to come hard at it last year when the Queen's Gambit was all the rage and everyone was watching it. Because we're now already a little bit past that. People aren't really watching it anymore because it was a one-off miniseries. And that was that. It's not going to have a sequel or anything like that, so it's, it's over. So it was... Uh, a seven-episode miniseries that was released in October of 2020. So it was released a year ago. In fact, right now, since we're past midnight, we're actually on the year anniversary of the release of The Queen's Gambit, October 23rd, 2020. So as you see, uh, Phil Helmuth got around to watching it about a week and a half later on November 2nd and mentioned that he had invested in Chexy. And I do wonder if those two are connected. I do wonder if... He invested in Chexy first, and then the Queen's Gambit made him think of it, or if he watched the Queen's Gambit 
and then invested in it and then tweeted about it. But even with Phil Helmuth tweeting about it on November 2nd and including the website playchecksy.com, apparently it didn't go anywhere because now the website's gone less than a year later. I don't know how much money was invested in Playchecksy, and I'm, I'm not sure what was done and where it is and what's happened. And maybe it's still in development. Maybe they took it down because they're still developing it. But it doesn't look like it has yielded very much yet. And chessroll.com, that's at least up, but I don't hear anyone talking about it. You can click play now. I hadn't actually tried that before. <laughs> now it's loading on my screen here. So it looks like it's loading some kind of browser game. Let's see what comes up. I should have done this before, but I just wasn't interested enough. That's a little interest I had in this whole thing. I was more interested in the story about like what happened with Peter Costa and Jack McClellan than actual chess roll. So it's doing a little animation. Then I had to set up an account, which I'm not going to do here. So I guess you can set up an account on chess roll and then play. I may try this later just out of curiosity. But I, I have a feeling there won't even be anyone on there to play me. Or if there is, it'll be like a few people. So it does not look like it's really a very big thing yet. It may never be. On Chess Roll, there is a My Partners link. And I don't understand what these partners are. Grant a gift, proper wild, bioforce, and the longest day. What the hell are those things? It says, you deserve better. Challenge your limits and dare to do something different. What? Play with confidence and test your luck. What do they mean by challenge your limits and dare to do something different? Today, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to challenge my limits. What are you going to do? Are you going to go skydiving? No, I'm going to play chess roll. <laughs> well, chess roll, what's that? Oh, it, it's chess with dice. Challenge your limits. How does that make any sense? I, I can't see playing a modified version of chess is challenging your limits in any way. In fact, it looks like this is the opposite. You're actually not challenging your limits. You're challenging your limits is trying to beat a really tough chess player. Not challenging your limits is putting an element of luck which handicaps that chess player so you might be able to beat them. It's kind of like saying, uh, I'm going to challenge my limits by playing LeBron James one-on-one, but we're going to tie his shoelaces together, and then I have a chance against him. That's not challenging my limits. That's uh, handicapping LeBron where he has to hop, and then maybe I can beat him. <laughs> Challenge your limits. That, that's pretty much what this is. It, it, pretty much, it pretty much is like playing an NBA player one-on-one but tying his shoelaces together. I don't see this one doing very well. All right, let's move on. I want to give you a Mike Possel update. And I told you guys I will always give you updates as to uh, what is going on. And this is not a huge update, but still it is worth mentioning. And it was covered by Haley Hintz, who's been covering this whole story pretty aggressively, as Jennifer Newell has always has also. And uh, they've both done a very good job. So Mike Postel filed an amended list of creditors to the bankruptcy court involving the involuntary bankruptcy petition that was filed by myself and Veronica Brill via our attorneys because we're trying to get our 
attorney's fees paid because Pasla has not paid us. He owes us about 27k each in attorney's fees and he's just not sending the money. So Eric Benzimokin, who is a bankruptcy specialist, has put together the paperwork to put him into involuntary bankruptcy, which basically makes it a lot easier to look into his actual assets, hopefully get us paid, and possibly paid ahead of some of these other creditors. So he has attempted to get it dismissed, and it was unsuccessful. So he had to then submit a creditor's list, and then the court would decide what to do next. So he listed $271,000 worth of debts that he claimed he had to 25 different creditors. The largest of those debts is to his mother of (laughs) $82,113. He says he owes that eighty-two dollars to Mom Rose Possel, and it says loans for multiple family court and previous attorneys needed. Family court is in reference to his ex-wife. He's had a custody battle with her. If you remember, his ex-wife appeared over the summer in a video interview with Veronica Brill. There is always suspicion in bankruptcy court when somebody claims that they owe money to a relative. Sometimes that's put there on purpose in order to uh, get the relative paid first. And then, of course, the relative quietly reimburses them the money. So that's a trick some people like to attempt to use. But for that reason, usually those debts are given the lowest priority. So this way people can't pull that trick. They will also do that to pad the amount they owe to make it uh, more difficult for creditors to get money out of them. But but courts are wise to this. But anyway, he seems to be trying it. So I don't know if he really owes his mother 82K. It is possible that his mother did put up 82K on his behalf for these things. But that doesn't mean that she should be paid back first. She could just be putting up the money for these attorneys for her son because she loves him, but not because it's a real loan. Then there's a lot of uh, credit cards on there that are uh, for balances like 2000 4000 and 5000 And these are all round numbers, as I mentioned before. They're not like 5113 which means he's either estimating or he used up the entire credit line to the penny. And something that a bankruptcy administrator will do is they will examine these credit card debts and see if any of these were run up intentionally. Sometimes when people realize that they're going to be forced into bankruptcy or that they're going to voluntarily file bankruptcy, they figure, okay, well, might as well max out my credit cards and buy what I can at the moment because it's all going to be discharged anyway. What can happen here is if it's determined by the court that this was done on purpose because it was figured that they probably will never have to pay back any of this, that these uh, charges can be ruled as beyond normal and uh, they actually could not be discharged as part of the bankruptcy. We are uh, 
going to have to wait to see uh, what is ruled on this. In that uh, same filing, he did attempt to attack Randazza and Veronica. One of the things he was claiming, he's been claiming all along, is that he shouldn't have to owe Veronica her attorney's fees because someone at Randazza's office helped her start a GoFundMe page to raise funds to pay her legal fees, and she was successful in raising it. So since she raised money for her attorney's fees that they've already been paid, he should know it. So what he still doesn't understand, I I don't know if he doesn't get it or if he's just trying this as a futile attempt. What he doesn't understand is that's not how attorney's fees work. It doesn't matter where the money came from. It matters whether the losing side should have to pay attorney's fees because their suit was considered improper. And that's uh, all that really matters in a case like this. So if it's determined that the suit was frivolous, which happened in this case, and through the anti-slap statutes that he has to pay attorney's fees, he has to pay reasonable attorney's fees when he loses an anti-slap motion, they don't have to further investigate where those funds came from to pay the lawyers in the first place. That is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you paid them yourself. It doesn't matter if the attorney is going to... uh, hold off collecting them until he sees what he can get directly from the plaintiff. It doesn't matter if a third party puts up the money for you. It doesn't matter if you ran a GoFundMe to raise the money. It, all this doesn't matter. All that matters is that uh, it, reasonable attorney's fees were actually incurred and that the work was actually done by a licensed attorney and that the court has ruled that the fees should be owed. That's it. It doesn't matter how that money may or may not have already been paid. And this has nothing to do with me. These complaints he's making are not about me. It's about Veronica and her attorney, Mark Randazza. So I'm not doing this as a personal defense of myself. I'm saying that uh, he shouldn't be obsessing over this because it's stupid. The court doesn't care about this. It's a very straightforward thing in California and in Nevada and in several other states that if you lose an anti-slap motion, you owe the attorney fees, period. And whatever is determined as reasonable attorney's fees, that's what you owe. That's it. Matter done. You, you can't bitch about it. You can't say, well, no, 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 look, look, they already got their attorney's fee paid by GoFundMe. It doesn't matter. That's totally irrelevant. So I don't know why he keeps thinking he's going to convince the court that she already got her attorney's fees paid, so he doesn't owe it. It doesn't work that way. What's also a little bit weird is that uh, he's claiming that he's still making his car payments. He said that he uh, has $18,533 that he owes Ford. He said that he has been uh, making his payments. He said, I've made and continue to make all the car payments on time through Ford Motor Credit Association in regards to this particularly fi- particular finance debt. So he is making car payments somehow, but everything, somehow everything else he's not paying. He is not making any attempt to pay us. None. And if I'm wrong about this, I, I know Pasa likes to listen to these segments that I do about him. Mike, if I'm wrong about this, then, then start sending money. Make payments. You, you don't have to send the whole 27 k in one shot. You want to send $1,000 right now? Send $1,000. Yeah, start making payments. If, if you're serious about making payments, then make them. But to me, it looks like to me, you were just not paying. You have no desire to pay. You're not going to pay. 
I have not seen anything indicating other than that. So basically, these entire proceedings are to force Mike Postel to pay the attorney's fees. Some people are very pessimistic about what our chances are here to get money out of him. Some people say, oh, you'll never get a penny. Why are you wasting your time with this? Not so fast. I'm not saying it's guaranteed that we will get these fees paid. But I'm also saying it's not hopeless. It's not even close to hopeless. And that's the whole point of this involuntary bankruptcy. And keep in mind, Eric Bensamoken is an expert in bankruptcy. This is what he does the most. He has skill in other areas, but bankruptcy is a big-time specialty of his. So he's dealt with this type of thing before. So possibly needs to tread pretty carefully here. And honestly, he should just pay what he owes. I know he doesn't want to, but this is his fault. He could have let me out of this case a year ago when we asked him to. I should not have been part of this case. That's why I feel no guilt here. Regardless of how you feel about Mike Postle and his play on the Stone Stream, even if you think he was wrongly accused, I should not have been part of this suit because I was not the one to bring these accusations against him. I was not the one to blow up the story. I was covering this story when it was already a huge story. Why did I cover it? Because I run a site called PokerFraudAlert.com, which covers all stories in poker and gambling that are notable, especially ones about any kind of accused scam or scandal. So we were covering a huge story. That's all we were doing. I did not bring this out. I did not promote it. I did not uh, make it bigger. It was already huge by the time I said or typed a word about it. And Mike knows that. And for some reason, I was dragged into this anyway and not let out. We told him. I was never a major part of this. I should be dropped from it. Regardless of what he thinks of me, I should be dropped from this. I do not belong in this, no matter what he thinks I did or no matter what he thinks uh, I said that he feels is inaccurate. I do not believe I said or did anything inaccurate. But even if he thinks that, he can't say I'm a major figure in this. So I shouldn't have been here. And he knows it. So I incurred attorney's fees to have to fight this. I didn't want any of this. I mean, look at my behavior through this whole thing. Be honest here. Look, look at my behavior through this whole thing. Have I been exploiting this for attention? I mean, I've been talking about it when things happen, but have I been trying to uh, use this to elevate my status in poker or anything like that? No. Even when I've appeared on uh, other podcasts to talk about it, it's because they've come to me. And if you don't believe me, ask any podcast where I've mentioned this. Ask if they came to me or if I came to them, and they'll tell you they came to me. So I have made no attempt to use this to bring any kind of uh, traffic to my site or to profit in any way or to change my reputation in any way or to uh, make myself more popular in poker. You'll see that I haven't done any of that. I've, I've been factual the whole way. I've told you guys what's happening, what's going to happen. I've been honest and transparent throughout. And, uh, 
right when the lawsuit was dropped on me, the first thing we said to Postle is, please let me out of this. I want no part of it. And he said no. So when someone does that and they abuse the court system and they make me have to get an attorney to do real work to get me out of this, which I shouldn't have been part of in the first place, and refuse to let me out, and if the attorney does a lot of work, I'm finally out, then yeah, somebody's got to get paid for all that time. That attorney who had to put his valuable time into it needs to get paid, and it should not be for my pocket, because it's not my fault. The person whose fault it is is the one who filed the frivolous lawsuit who would not let me out of it. So that's why I have no sympathy. And the whole way we were trying to speed this through, too. We were trying to get this done fast. And he kept putting delay after delay after delay, and it, it just ran up the bill even more. We didn't want it. We kept saying, let's speed this up. Let's get this going. Let's be done here. But you'll see, my actions the entire way were just to get out of it and be done. That's all I wanted the whole way. And I was never a major figure in this whole thing. I mean, go ask anybody in poker. Go ask anybody in poker, who are the major figures in the Mike Postle situation? You'll hear names like Veronica Brill. You'll hear, of course, Mike Postle himself. You'll hear Justin Kouradis. You'll hear Joey Ingram, Doug Polk. Maybe uh, Scott Van Pelt of ESPN for giving it national publicity. You'll never hear the name Todd Wittellis. Never hear the name Todd Wittellis. No one's going to say I was a major figure in this. No one will even say I was a minor figure in this, except for being part of this lawsuit. I I became a minor figure once I was sued. That's the funny thing. I I wasn't a figure in this at all until I was sued. That's when I became a minor figure, because of his own lawsuit. So I don't know what Possible thought he was doing here. But we tried. We tried to tell him, let me out. If he let me out, he would owe me nothing. And we told him that. All righty. Let's move on here. I know I make that same rant every time, but it, it just pisses me off to think back to it pisses me off from a year ago when I'm just sitting on Twitter. I remember I, I, got, I was reading about Trump and his COVID. That was the day Trump got COVID. And I'm sitting on Twitter and then I, I learn that I'm part of this lawsuit that they'd been alluding to, but I wasn't sure if it was really going to happen. And then not only did it happen, but I see that I'm part of it. And then I, uh, I put it out to the public for everyone to see. But boy, my heart sank when I was part of that because I'm like, what a pain in the ass this is going to be. I knew I was going to win. I just knew it was going to be a pain in the ass and I didn't like it. And I had a little hope that maybe Mike would come to his senses and drop me out of it. And then attorney Eric Benzamokin said, nope, they are refusing to let you out. And I said, shit. Well, I guess we will be in this for some time. But I thought, okay, one day Mike will owe attorney's fees for this and he will realize he made a mistake and here we are today okay so uh let's move on to talk about elon musk's boring company it's gonna be a boring segment about the boring company the boring company digs tunnels under las vegas that's really what they do and they've already dug one tunnel which is a little bit short of a mile under the las vegas strip The purpose of these tunnels is to provide an alternate means of transportation to where it does not involve traveling on the roads, which are frequently jammed with traffic, especially in the Las Vegas Strip. Teslas are to be the form of transportation in these tunnels. So you 
get in a Tesla, which is supposed to drive itself, but the early version of this is going to have drivers. But the Tesla is supposed to drive itself. And then you will get out at uh, whatever stop that you told the Tesla that you want to go. And supposedly this will be a lot faster way to travel throughout the Strip than any sort of uh, vehicle you would drive above ground or walking. That this is a quick way to move back and forth on the Strip. It's just a tunnel with uh, self-driving Teslas. So Elon Musk got permission to build this, and he did. There was a bit of an embarrassing situation not too long ago, which I discussed on this show, where someone managed to get into the tunnel with his own car. And it's not clear how this person did it. And it was an embarrassment because this these tunnels were supposed to have great security. Because some people were a little worried, you know, what if some bad people get under these tunnels and do bad things, you set bombs or whatever. Uh, you got to have good security. So, or, or what if someone just drove a car in there and started ramming all the Teslas in there? Who, who knows what could happen? But uh, they, ensured, they assured that they had great security there and then some just weirdo who wasn't even in there maliciously. The guy was kind of in there to have fun and screw around. He was breaking the law, but he wasn't in there to cause any harm. Uh, he, he somehow got in there and he didn't seem very sophisticated. So that was an embarrassment for them. Anyway, despite that, they're, they're going forward with this. And uh, this opened, uh, it opened this year. But as I said, it, it still has human drivers. And it uh, actually, it's under the Las Vegas Convention Center which I believe is uh, by the old Hilton. And uh, it has two 0.8-mile tunnels, but that's all it's got at the moment. But what they're really looking to do, and they proposed in December of 2020, is to have a massive expansion of these tunnels that would allow the system to work through pretty much all of Las Vegas. So this would work for locals, too, not just people who want to travel around the Strip. So this is going to be called the Vegas Loop, and it would allow people to ride in these Teslas to the Las Vegas Convention Center, the airport, hotels on the Strip, the football stadium, and uh, other locations throughout Las Vegas. They claim that once it's complete, that it would carry 57,000 passengers per hour and that they'll be able to build this all with their own money. They won't ask the taxpayers to pay any of it, so no public money would be involved. Each of these stops that would take pl- that would be uh, in these tunnels, such as at uh, under hotels or any other business that would want a stop there would have to get uh, a permit. So they'd have to get a lot of permits to get this done. So it's not going to be something that's really rapid, even just for the permit process. Uh, They changed the proposal. At first, they were claiming that they would have whatever businesses they're stopping at pay them to have such a stop uh, as far as uh, constructing it. But now Elon is saying, no, we'll we'll just pay for the whole thing. We'll we'll figure out where we want to create these stops. We will pay for their construction and uh, 
that's that. So there, at, at first, the belief was that this is helping both parties. It's helping both the uh, boring company and wherever they're stopping because then it's easier to get to these places. And in order to get approval, they scrapped that idea and said, you know, we'll, we'll pay for the whole thing. We're, we're not even trying to extract money out of these businesses. We're, we will pay for everything and we will just make the money because people have to pay to use the system. At one point, it was uh, thought that the tunnels, instead of using Teslas, they would actually use uh, sleds or pods to bring people around. And uh, they also were going to allow cyclists and pedestrians under there. But uh, these things uh, were scrapped and they ended up using Teslas. They also attempted to get this going in Chicago, L.A., and other places around the country and failed. Vegas is the only place that has uh, been warm to this. They have not yet finished creating the software that's capable of uh, driving the cars themselves. So that's what the delay is at the moment. The uh, cars have human drivers. And uh, I'm looking at this map that is uh, was tweeted out on October 20th by Clark County itself. And it shows where th- this would be going. And on this uh, map, it looks like it would be stretching from uh, downtown, where the Fremont Street Experience is. All th- that's as far north as it would go. And the farthest south it would go would be Allegiant Stadium, which is a little bit southwest of the Mandalay Bay. It also would go to the Thomas and Mack Center on uh, Tropicana Avenue to the east. And as far as west, it would go as far as the Orleans. And uh, it would also go to the Rio, the Gold Coast, and the Palms on the uh, west side. I'm looking, and I assume one of the stops is the airport that's on the way to the Thomas and Mack Center, which is uh, an arena at UNLV. But it doesn't explicitly say it's an airport stop, but it looks like it is an airport stop at 284 East Tropicana. It also would be stopping at uh, pretty much every casino in the Strip area. And I'll read them all going north. So the very furthest south is the Mandalay Bay. Then the Luxor. Excalibur also goes to the Tropicana, New York, New York, MGM Grand, Park MGM, former uh, Monte Carlo, Aria, Vidara, Cosmo, Bellagio, Paris, Planet Hollywood, Caesars Palace, Rio goes Gold Coast Palms, uh, Wild Wild West and Orleans to the left, or to the west, that is, Harrah's, Link, Venetian, Mirage, Treasure Island, Palazzo, Wynn, Encore, Resorts World, Westgate, Circus Circus, even Fountain Blue, if that ever comes to exist, Sahara and Stratosphere, and then it gets all the way north to the Fremont Street Experience and the Plaza. So this would not be going to many areas that would be frequented by people who are residents of Las Vegas. Like, you're not going to be able to ride this from near your home in Las Vegas to, like, a restaurant somewhere else in Vegas or a shopping mall within Vegas. This is really uh, a thing stretching from downtown to about the uh, Allegiant Stadium area 
and a little bit west and east to certain places like Thomas and Mack Center, the airport, and uh, the Orleans, it is a lot farther than it presently goes. Right now, there's only two 0.8-mile tunnels. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking where they are right now. So right now, it goes from the convention center to the Encore and also the convention center to Resorts World. That's all pretty much you can go on it right now, which is pretty useless. I don't know even who'd want to use that right now. I presume this was kind of like a test run to see if it can work. And then they're trying to get the whole thing going. Because the way the way they're proposing it, which has been approved, that looks like it would be useful. Going from the convention center to the Encore, the convention center to Resorts World, unless you're staying at one of these two places and going to a convention, it's not very useful. The tweet from Clark County says, Expanding and moving forward with plans for the Vegas Loop, Clark County Commissioner just approved an agreement with a boring company to establish and maintain a transportation system that will go under Las Vegas Strip. It will also go to Allegiant Stadium and UNLV. Some details from the boring company on the Vegas Loop. The, pl- the company's plans also call for an emphasis on the use of local contractors and local workers. Boring also envisions expanding the line to other areas of the Las Vegas Valley. So I guess they're hoping at some point that they're going to go to some other places other than these main destinations. Who knows? I don't know about the safety of these tunnels. Like, what if a terrorist got under there and set a bomb? Could this be a problem? Or could someone who was uh, looking to cause a problem go in there and uh, attack these Teslas and the people who are in there and you're kind of a sitting duck. You're in a tunnel. You can't really get out. Uh, How much security will they have there and how good would the security be? They claimed it's state-of-the-art, but apparently it wasn't because some weirdo got in there without a lot of effort. There's a lot of questions I still have about it. Also, with anything underground, you have to wonder, especially in the West, like if an earthquake happens, how well is it built to withstand that? Now, I know these are questions that have been asked about tunnels everywhere. And we we really haven't seen an issue with tunnels and and crashing down during earthquakes. But, you know, Vegas can have earthquakes. In fact, I felt one at the Rio in July of 2019 when I was there for the main event. And I was woken up by an earthquake on the day of the event. So you can have earthquakes there. And you definitely can have people committing uh, acts of mass violence, like what Stephen Paddock did. So I hope the tunnels would not be susceptible to that. I hope they would have proper security to prevent that. I also wonder if it's kind of a claustrophobic experience in there. I've seen pictures of it, and the tunnel looks pretty small. It's not like what a tunnel looks like when you drive in one. When you drive in a tunnel, usually it's uh, pretty tall, and it's pretty wide, to where, uh, number one, there tends to be traffic going two ways. Number two, there tends to be a good deal of room on each side to where you don't feel like you're closed in. You don't feel like uh, you're just squeezing through. You, you're aware of the fact that you're under something, either uh, going through a mountain or going underground. You, you, you're aware of that, but uh, you're not in a small space. You don't feel claustrophobic in these uh, tunnels that you're used to. But this 
tunnel under Vegas, the pictures I'm seeing of it posted by Clark County, it looks like a pretty small space. Now, maybe it doesn't look that way from the car. Maybe only looking at it from the outside, it looks this way. But I would have to think it kind of looks this way from the car because you could be sitting in the front and looking right out and you're seeing like this. It looks like you're in a cylinder. It looks like you're, you're going through a small pipe. It looks like your car is squeezing through a pipe. I would find it unnerving, not so much moving through this, because if you're moving through this, you'll know it'll be done soon, you know, soon enough. But if there's any kind of problem where the whole thing jams up, uh, I would think it would kind of suck to be in a jam there. I, I guess you could maybe get out and walk if necessary, but it, it looks like it may not even be wide enough to really open the door and squeeze out. It looks really narrow. And think if there's like a big jam and you're just stuck in there for hours. Like at at what point do you just get out of the car? And does the car even let you out? Is there a way to open the door and walk out? There may not be a way to do that. It may lock you in so as to prevent people from getting out and causing a problem. So like, can you imagine just being stuck in there and there's like tons of cars behind you and ahead of you and you're in this little tunnel? That kind of sounds like a bad nightmare, right? Imagine being stuck in that situation for hours. And you don't know what's going on. And maybe your cell phone doesn't work under there. I don't know. I I think I'll stick to driving. I, th- I think I'll stick to my car above ground. And I'll use my little tricks from being a former Vegas local to get around and not have to go on the main strip to get places. Because there's a lot of ways to get around the strip without actually driving on Las Vegas Boulevard. So we shall see. But it doesn't look that appealing to me. Especially if they all jam up there. If it's moving pretty fast, like, I guess it's not that bad. Though it takes a while to get from downtown to the Strip, even if there's no traffic. So it still could be unnerving even if it's moving. And, and you're in this thing for, what, 15 minutes or something. It just doesn't have an open feeling at all. So that's the update with the Boring Company and with the tunnels. I will let you know what progress they make in the coming months and years. Dan Bilzerian is back in the news, and that's because he's been promoting his book and uh, telling various stories on uh, podcasts. So in this case, Dan Bilzerian is claiming that he has a challenge on the table for him to play in a $50 million freeze-out where he and billionaire Alec Gores would each put $50 million on the table and play until that money is on one side or the other. It's been called a $100 million freeze-out, but that's not really true. You don't really call a $100 million freeze-out when the combined amount is $100 million. It's really a $50 million freeze-out, 50 on each side. So each side either wins or loses 50 But that's still a lot of money to play for heads up. Dan Bilzerian has been talking about how uh, he's made a lot of money playing poker. For years, he's been saying he's one of the most successful poker pros anywhere because he plays in lucrative, high-stakes private games and crushes them. And this has allowed him to make his fortune. And a lot of people have doubted that. There have been a lot of allegations that his dad has passed... uh, money that he made, in some cases uh, through means that are questionable, and passed that to him, and that the poker thing is a story and a cover. 
And some have said that Bilzerian just isn't very good at poker. And it's unlikely that even in these private games that he would have made the money he claims he did. Now, someone who did crush these private games for a lot of money and is apparently a good player is Toby Maguire. But some people think that Bilzerian is no Toby Maguire and that his profits were not really what he claims they were. So he claimed that the way he made his money was that he started playing uh, online when he was a University of Florida student. Then he uh, played on a gambling boat in Florida, which they have some of those. Jamie Gold was even embarrassingly helping run one of those for a while in his broke phase. Then he played in poker rooms in Vegas, and then he claimed that he played so much around Vegas that he started getting involved, invited to these uh, private games in Hollywood, including that Molly Bloom game. And he said that he made all this money at these home games. Now, it is possible to make a lot of money at these home games, but I don't believe that he got invited to these games just because he worked his way up by being a Vegas grinder. In fact, in, uh, I think it was the Washington Post, there was an article about Bilzerian, and I was quoted. You may say, well, why was I quoted about Bilzerian? Well, I was one of the first people to encounter Bilzerian in poker rooms. In January of 2007, I was at Harris Lake Tahoe on a ski trip, and I went to go look for poker games in the poker room. And uh, I was told of a, quote, suitcase guy who was some guy who was carrying around a suitcase of $100,000 and wanted to play high stakes. I was hoping to get a heads-up limit hold'em game going with this guy, and he did show up, and it turned out to be Dan Bilzerian, who nobody knew at the time. And I said, hey, can we play like 100-200 limit hold'em? He said, no, let's play 100-200 no limit. So I thought to myself, first of all, I don't know who this guy is. Maybe he's a great player. I don't know who he is, so I don't want to take this chance. And second, I don't have the role with me to play 100-200 no limit. I had like 10K with me. So I told him I'd have the role with me for that. So he's like, ah, forget it then. So then we uh, we played a full table 5-5 no limit or 5-10 no limit, something like that. And he complained that everybody was being too tight and he quit the game. And that was that. But he was really carrying around a suitcase with 100,000 in it. And nobody knew who he was then. So this wasn't a guy who grinded it up and then finally, uh, after getting to know people in Vegas, was invited to these home games. Now, he did play in Vegas and I saw him sometimes playing in Vegas. But this is a guy who came in with a lot of existing money. And I believe all that money he came in with allowed him to get invited to these home games. And I don't know how much he won at these, though. It's possible he didn't even win. So he published a book recently, and it mentioned a number of people he was playing against. He said he played against uh, director Nick Cassavetes, uh, the uh, with uh, Sam Majid, who's the owner of uh, Cirque du Soleil, and the founder of the Gores Group, which is a private equity firm named Alec Gores. And that's where this story goes, where he was claiming that the first time that he showed up to Alec Gores' uh, very expensive home that uh, 
he asked how much Alec wanted to play for. And that Alec said back a million, five million, whatever. And they started with a $500,000 buy-in. And that uh, Bilzerian said he ended up beating him for $1.6 million, And then a week later for $2.5 million. And then he won another $5.5 million against him. He said that at one point, Alec Gores bought in for $50 million. And he said it, it was announced with a conviction that I found unsettling. He wrote this in the book. And he said that he was playing outside the limits of my bankroll with the $50 million on the table. But he didn't care. He had to take the risk. And he said that uh, they were starting at 5K, 10K blinds. And then at one point, they went to 10K, 25K blinds. There's no limit heads up within the first hour. And uh, he said they even did a high card flip for... Uh, over $3 million, where you just deal out high, deal out one card to each person. Whoever has the higher card wins. He said he played uh, hyper-aggressively against Gores, and that uh, after winning $8 million in one night, he tipped the dealer 300000 So he claimed that Gores was not at all uh, shaken by this, and that he was just like, whatever. He has so much money, he didn't care. So anyway, uh, now he's claiming that Gores wants to play him in a freeze-out where they each put up $50 million and keep playing until one is broke of that $50 million. And I'm going to play you uh, a clip of when he appeared on uh, a YouTube show that is uh, called the Full Send Podcast. And he will talk about this here. In college, it's like a hundred dollar buy-in, you know. And then you have yeah. stories where you beat Mark Wall. You took Mark Wahlberg down for a big amount of money, right? No, he watched. He watched the game when oh, okay. I was playing his billionaire neighbor. Um, How much did you take off his billionaire neighbor? It was, and it was around forty-ish million, something like that. Forty, fifty. Forty, fifty million dollars over probably eight sessions, eight or ten. Heads sessions, up, yeah. or just like yeah, just heads up, just me and him just battling in his house. Wow. Yeah, it was the fucking craziest thing, man. There's like, I remember one time sitting there with 18 million in front of me and he always had me covered, you know, would, would buy in and, it, you know, of course it fucking big dick me every time. Like, oh, you know, give me 50 million and I'd buy in for like one or two. And there was one point when I was beating him and we've been playing for two days straight and I had 18 million bucks in front of me. And if he said all in, I had to make a decision for $18 million. And I was fucking stressed out, dude. Like my fucking hair was falling out. It was, uh, it was a it was a very you know unenjoyable experience. Even though I was like winning money, it was it was stressful because I knew that if I lost, I would come back and play again. And if I lost, then I would you know I would keep playing this guy until I went broke. And it wouldn't have taken that much in the beginning um, because we were playing so big. And so yeah, it was pretty nerve wracking to be honest with you. Um, but as far as the trust fund thing, man, I, you know, look, I bought my jet when I was thirty three, and I got my trust fund when I was thirty five, and I didn't cash it out till like a year and a half ago so i got the receipts you know mm -hmm. i have the you know the trust the documents all the stuff mm -hmm. but i kind of leaned into it i mean you know i you know i said i had a trust fund because i did i just didn't say you know when i got it so. and what's and what's wrong with having a trust fund too listen i i would have been stoked to have a fucking huge trust fund i you know fuck i don't care where the money comes from it all spends the same 100 still <laughs> and did you use some of the money from poker and all that to kind of build the brand that you built with ignite and all that well this was way before you know so basically i started my instagram in 2012 and i'd made most of my money by like 2014 
And that was when I kind of decided, I was like, you know, I'm going to, you know, see if I can kind of get famous off this Instagram thing because it's getting me more pussy. And uh, <laughs> I was like, fuck it. I'm going to, you know, hire a, you know, photographer and we're going to start, you know, putting, I'm, you know, I was going to do the bucket list thing anyway. And I was like, I'm just going to, you know, kind of put this online. And that's what I did. And it took off and um, fucking went way further than I thought I'd go. But that was kind of the, the goal was to see if I could get famous. Okay, so I'll stop it there. Anyway, on Logan Paul's podcast, he talked about how uh, Alec Gores said that uh, he wants to play heads up for this uh, larger amount, and he wants it on pay-per-view. And so I'll put this uh, Logan Paul podcast on now, where you can hear him talking about that. And this was after Dan had appeared on this uh, previous show that I just played you. And I guess Alec Gore became aware of it, and he texted Bulzarian and made this challenge to him. You talked about how at the poker table, you can have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and that's where you've experienced some of your highest highs and lowest lows, except you can't show what you're feeling. Yeah, man. It's like that absolutely had an effect on me a negative effect because you have to truly mute your emotions because when you're at the poker table if you're internally celebrating when you're fucking winning a hand then when you lose it's like man you got that much further to fall and also you kind of look like a jerk off celebrating you know when mm. you're playing with a fucking rich dude and also it makes him less you know prone to want to lose more money right if, if you don't give a fuck then he's like oh whatever it doesn't matter but if you're like over there clapping and fucking jumping up and down he's like i don't want to give this motherfucker one more <laughs> dollar you know and so a big piece of like poker for me was always you know, I had to kind of like, you know, um, you know, make sure those relationships were taken care of, you know, like with Sam, I put up a lot of fucking bullshit cause I'm beating the dude for like tens of millions of dollars. Um, like the motherfucker would call me up and be waiting at his fucking house or for just shit that I would not put up with from any other motherfucker. Mm. I would because like, you know, I'm beating the fucking dude for money. So kind of made me a little bit of a bitch to these guys. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, like I just, I wanted to fucking win, you know? And so that, that guy, Alec, actually, he just, um, he saw my Nelk Boys podcast and he uh, he texted me. He's like, you know, he's like, I said it was, I said I beat him for like forty to fifty million, and he's like, oh, the number wasn't that high, blah blah blah. He's <laughs> like, you know, this and that. Like, I want to play you like heads up. Let's see who has the bigger ooh, balls for like twenty five million a piece. And I texted him back. I said, dude, I, I beat you for five point five million. I beat you for seven point seven. I beat you for ten point eight. I beat you for twelve point whatever. And I beat you like four or five other times for like small numbers. It was a hundred percent over forty million. And I was like, and I'll play you for 20, 25 million at the Aria if you want to fucking wire it in next week. And then he's like, oh, I don't want to play for unless it's 50 or 100 million. I was like, I'll wire in 50 million to the Aria in 10 days if you want to play and we can televise it if you want. And so he's challenged me twice and I've accepted. So, I mean, I think we might fucking play for 100 million dollars, which would be like the craziest, biggest oh my game. God. Can we come watch that? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to fucking pay-per-view the motherfucker. I, I was going to say, you, you have to. You you have, you, you live stream or something. That's fucking amazing. No, I mean, it would be the biggest poker game ever played. And the beauty of that is, like, it just shuts the fuck up everybody that was, like, talking shit. Like, you can't win this much money in poker. I mean, like, and I never really cared that much, but I have all the fucking wires. Like, it's mm. not like maybe it's not. No, I know exactly what i beat this motherfucker for i have every incoming wire and i fucking you know i posted some posted, i put a picture yeah. of the motherfucker ben. i put the wire fuck you know what i mean all of it it's not like maybe you know it's and, and you don't have to be a fucking genius to fucking beat a super rich guy for a lot of money if you're playing high stakes you know and he, and he had won i think like 700 million dollars that year beating another billionaire so like these games do exist he's like idiot poker pros just 
they don't have access to them. You know, and so a big part of poker is getting into those games, just playing with fucking bad play. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, with with boxing, it's like, you know, you want to beat the best boxer and whatever, but then, you know, maybe you take your brother's approach. He just wants to make the fucking money. And I respect that. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, yeah, okay. He he didn't fucking go eight rounds of Floyd like you did. Respect for that. But he's made a lot of fucking money still, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, and, and, and so it's like, you know, there's a lot of fucking boxers that are probably better than your brother that aren't making that fucking money. Your brother in boxing is me in fucking poker. Mm. He's picking the right opponents. Yeah. And, and you're and this is where I started the your psychology of people and knowing what table to sit yourself at. Cause correct me if I'm wrong, you're 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 a pretty good player. Yeah, I am good, but I'm not like amazing. That's like what I'm like, saying. like at the time that I was playing, I was really good. Now these guys are way better as far as like, you know, understanding the game, like fundamentals, GTO, the whole thing. But at the time I was playing, I was pretty fucking good, but I was playing with horrible players. Mm. You were, know, do, do mm. you? Sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to ask, were you playing mostly in casinos or at these, these high stakes, like LA Vegas games? Cause I've heard about some of these fucking games in LA and I heard they're, they're nuts. Yeah, I heard so, the shit that goes on in them are, are crazy. Yeah. It's absurd, man. I was playing Molly's game. I played, you know, Cassavetti's game. I was playing, you know, a lot of heads up, like a lot of heads up with, I mean, look just between fucking Alec and Sam, there's two guys. I mean, that's over $50 million in one year. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think people really fucking get that. Like, I don't think they understand. Like, mm. $50 million, two guys, and a probably a total of, like, 20 fucking sessions. You understand, people. Why do these fucking billionaires throw money le- like this repeatedly with you if they continue losing? Like, I, what's the thrill? Well, there's ego, right? I mean, that's that's a big piece. Like, you want to beat somebody. Okay. Um, and also for them, it's like, does the... Does like 25, 40 million really matter if you got $2 billion? Like, I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, I'm sure it stings, but they didn't lose it in one session, mm. right? He's like, you know, mm. at first it was like a couple million, then he upped it, you know, then it was, you know, five and a half, you know, then we played a little bit bigger, it was, you know, 7.7. And then, you know, towards the end, it's like 5 million minimum buy in, 10K, 25K blinds. So, like, the money that I was winning actually wasn't a crazy amount for how big we were playing, but he was playing really bad so you know it was but i also could have lost you know what i mean like it wasn't like this was a lock like i really fucking put my nuts on the table you know so yeah. it was something that i feel like a lot of people probably wouldn't have been willing to do and yeah. if they lost once that this is the scary part if you lose then where do you go like are you going to go back and play the fucking kitty games or are you going to come back and play this guy and then if you lose again what do you do Right? Are you going to fucking lose a third time? Because then, you know, we lose a fourth time, you know, we might be fucking broke. Now you're in trouble. And then what the fuck do you do? Now you just lost $40, $50 million. You went from being a fucking relatively rich guy to now being completely fucking broke. I mean, like, think about that. That's a lot of stress, dude. That's what he's claiming. Of course, we don't know if this is all true. It's possible that he's embellishing. It's possible he's leaving out certain details, like uh, losing some of it back. Or maybe he didn't win as much as he claims. Who knows? We'll see if Alec Gore responds and disputes any of this now that Bulzarian's going on these shows, on these highly viewed YouTube shows, and claiming stuff like this. But he says that they will play on uh, a pay-per-view for uh, $50 million each, and that he'll be happy to do it. But who knows if it's going to really happen. I don't think it's going to really happen. I think some of this is exaggerated. And I think he is running with this 
to partially make it look like he won a lot more in these private games than he really did. And I'm not saying he didn't win in these private games, and it is very possible that he was mainly playing rich but very bad opponents, and that, as he said, most of these poker pros don't have access to such games, and that these really rich opponents don't want to play the average poker pro. They want to play someone like Bill Zarian. That's how Tobey Maguire made so much money, is that he was able to get into these games because of his fame, and that they weren't seeing him as like a predatory poker pro. So, same with Dan Bilzerian. And he's saying that it's more important which games you have access to rather than how good you are. And to some degree, that's true. He's also saying you have to have a big enough bankroll to even be in these games, and also the willingness to risk tens of millions of dollars, which most people either can't or won't do. I have thought about if I was invited to a home game full of fish, but it was very high stakes, would I accept it? And what's the highest stakes I would accept to come play? And there is a limit, no matter how good the game is. I would not want to go to a game where one bad session would decimate me, or even where one bad session would cut my net worth in half. So I've thought about that. I don't think I'd ever get an invite to these games because there's no reason they'd invite me. I'm not famous, and I'm really nobody that they would want to bring in. But if I was, hypothetically, I don't think I'd go unless it was limits I was at least semi-comfortable with. So I think what I would do is I'd look at the highest limits I'd play normally if the game is decent, and then increase that somewhat if the game is really, really good. But not that much higher, because sometimes a game that's really, really good also has a lot of variance to it. The ideal game to play in would be one where your opponent is very passive. So this way you don't have to worry as much about having to make huge calls against huge bluffs and stuff like that, which can have a lot of variance to it, because sometimes they could really have the good. So if you have someone who's very passive, who only puts in a lot of money, if they've really got a big hand, then, then you can know when to let your own hand go and not really play any big pots unless you've really got the best of it. That's really the best type of game to be in, where you're all, the, all the opponents are like that. I once uh, played in a cruise ship game like this, and even though the rake was terrible, I kept playing because the player was just so bad. It was just so obvious what everybody had or didn't have, and they were just so passive. It was really hard to lose there, and I, I would just run people over. And whenever they show any resistance, then I would know they have something better than me and just lay it down. And no, none of them were picking up on it. <laughs> so that, that was a low-stakes game, of course. But like players like that, I could play a little bit higher because the pots wouldn't get that big except for ones I'd win. But yeah, I wouldn't want to throw around huge money even against terrible opponents. So what he's saying is this guy is very aggressive and that this guy would make huge raises and he'd have to decide whether to call for tons of money. So, But who knows? Like, Who knows if this all really happened? I believe he played the guy, but I don't know about these numbers and I don't even know about this 50 million freeze out. And it's possible that Gores was just shooting off his mouth and even he doesn't feel like doing this. So you always have to take everything uh, Bilzerian says with a grain of salt. But if this happens, it'd be interesting. Okay, so I want to shift directions here. I want to talk about uh, Daryl McEwen 
and his recent passing. Now, you may not know who Daryl McEwen is, but he was the founder and author of the Seven Stars Insider newsletter, which ran on sevenstarsinsider.com. And this has been around for a long time, and it had a lot of good information about Caesar's properties. It was a bit of a misnomer because it really wasn't about the Seven Stars program. It had a lot of Seven Stars stuff in there, but it also was just general information about the Total Rewards slash Caesars Rewards program, plus just general information about Caesars properties. And he covered every property in the country, though he focused the most on the Atlantic City area because that's where he was from. But he did do a lot of Las Vegas topics, and really he covered a lot of stuff from properties just all over the country. It was pretty impressive. He put a lot of work into that newsletter, and he even covered humorous stuff, like just stupid emails that Caesars would send out, which were either uh, misspelled or confusing or just really weird, or sometimes they'd send out a promotion for something that already happened three weeks ago. Like He'd find all that stuff, or people would send it to him, and then he'd put it on in the newsletter to make fun of them. So the, this guy was not a Caesars fanboy. He was not a Caesars ass-kisser. That was nice. You know, to read this newsletter that was both informative and also written from the player's standpoint and not from the corporate Caesar's standpoint. So it, it had a lot of good info, and at the same time, you kind of got the impression that he was one of you. And this newsletter went on for many years. In August of 2021 he announced that he was going to be ending the newsletter. He said that uh, he never found a way to really monetize it and that uh, it's just too much work and he's getting too old and he's going to um, just put an end to it. So he, he shut it down. He announced it in uh, mid-August that it was going away. The Twitter for Seven Stars Insider is still there. It's twitter.com slash seven, that is number seven, stars insider. Twitter.com slash seven stars insider. You can see a picture of Daryl there. This is Daryl D. McEwen, seven stars insider, consultant, writer, recreational gambler. Uh, someone asked him on August 17th, so the newsletter is dead, will the website continue? And he said back, no. His very last tweet was that. At the time, people thought he was just kind of tired of it, that he was just kind of done, maybe because he's uh, getting old, and he said it was too much work to keep it up to date, all is well, he claimed. On August 10th, five days before, uh, uh, five days before it got shut down, he said, someone asked him, Robert Cheung asked, uh, there's been an unusually low number of updates on your website lately, I hope all is going well. But he did say all is well on August 14th, and then on August 15th he said that it won't continue. There will be a July through August issue, and that'll be it. And that was it. Well, he didn't tell the full story. All was not well, as you might guess, because I mentioned that he is no longer with us. It turned out that Daryl McEwen was sick, and he had brain cancer, and... He knew he had brain cancer when he uh, said he was stopping the newsletter. 
So it wasn't that it was too much work or too much trouble, too hard to monetize. He was sick, and he knew that uh, the end was near. He probably didn't know it was as soon as he was writing about, but uh, he knew that it was coming. And what's interesting is a listener of Poker Fraud Alert Radio texted me and said that in late August, he saw Daryl running around the casino looking very healthy. He would have never guessed anything was wrong with him, but the things must have declined pretty quickly. So that that would go along with Daryl's actions here, where he knew he had brain cancer, but thought he had longer to live than he actually did, because he felt fairly good. He felt f- well enough to go to the casino, to play, to uh, run from machine to machine. In fact, the person who texted me said that he actually was uh, very fast-moving for his age. He looked like not just like he wasn't sick, he looked like he was healthy for a 72-year-old. And it was surprising to see he went from that to dead by October 10th, which is the day he passed away. So things must have declined very quickly in September. And probably when he shut down Seven Stars Insider, it was because he wasn't feeling well. And he was going to just probably relax and not worry about putting this together anymore while he was attempting to fight brain cancer. And then there must have been a big turn for the worse in September of 2021. He did not give any updates about his condition or even tell anyone at the time. The way we found out that he had passed away was from an article in the Atlantic City Weekly, where he was a, an author of a column there. They uh, had him do a uh, bi-weekly column, and uh, that was a popular column. People enjoyed it about the Atlantic City casino industry, and as a result, they were the ones to report his death. In the Atlantic City Weekly, it said, Daryl D. McEwen, 72, a professional journalist and trade trade association executive, died October 10th in Wilmington, Delaware, And then it uh, said, His clever writing style and candid honesty about the Caesars properties caught the eye of the press of Atlantic City, director of entertainment publications Scott Kronick, who then asked McEwen to write a bi-weekly column for Atlantic City Weekly, which the press of Atlantic City acquired in 2015. I wanted to start a new column. I was looking for someone who would be brutally honest from a player's perspective about Atlantic City, and Daryl was my first and only choice, said Kronick. So, Mr. AC Casino, which is the name of that column, was born. Daryl over-delivered on any expectations I may have had. Not only did he help tell readers about promotions and the -the behind-the-scenes workings of South Jersey's most important industry, but he developed a fan base and friendships with nearly everyone he encountered. He took that column very seriously. He's irreplaceable not just as a casino journalist, but as a beautiful friend to me in Atlantic City. Uh, Now, Daryl McEwen was not an advantage player, and he was not a professional poker player. In fact, I don't even think he played poker at all. Believe it or not, he was actually a slots player and not an advantage slots player, just really like a slots player, just a, a dude who liked to play slots. He must have lost a lot of money gambling over time. So for someone who seemed to be a very intelligent guy and seemed to be uh, very knowledgeable about the uh, Caesars uh, reward system, and he was. I, I'm not, when I say seemed to be, I'm not saying that sarcastically. Like he, he really was very knowledgeable and put together a very good newsletter. Uh, he seemed to have a penchant for negative EV gambling. And unfortunately, that informed a little bit of his columns to a negative degree, which I'll explain shortly. 
That was my only criticism of his columns and of what he was doing, is that he was a recreational gambler who had a little bit of a hard time understanding that a lot of us aren't. But anyway, as I said, he was not a professional gambler. He made his money uh, first as an executive vice president of the Society of American Florists in Washington, D.C., then was the executive vice president of the Machinery Dealers National Association in Virginia. Then he founded 21st Sensory, not Century, but 21st Sensory Management, which was a full-service association management and communications consulting firm and had clients like GlaxoSmithKline, Consumer Healthcare, the American Red Cross, and the Greater Wilmington Radio Association. And this is a guy basically who had regular jobs throughout his life, did pretty well, and enjoyed gambling as a hobby, but also noticed a lot of the fails and ridiculousness of the Caesars Rewards program and was kind of a fan and a critic of it at the same time. Similar to me, and except I'm not a recreational gambler, but yeah, you know, someone who participates in Caesars properties and what they have to offer, but at the same time notices all the fail and sometimes is annoyed by it and writes about it. So that stuff was interesting, but the most interesting thing was written at the end. It said, he is survived by longtime partner Nicholas Lamesh. Nicholas Lamesh. Now, he never talked about his partner. He never really talked about anyone that he was traveling with. Maybe he mentioned it in passing, but we really didn't learn much about his personal life in his newsletter. And I never really thought about that, because that's not the reason I read it. I wasn't reading it to learn about him. I was reading it to learn about Caesars, and I think everybody else was too. But he never mentioned this longtime partner, Nicholas Lamesh. So not only was he apparently in the closet, he was not uh, at all open about the fact that he was gay, but uh, he never mentioned his partner. So you may say, well, maybe being gay wasn't a big deal to him. Maybe just that's normal to him, and he just didn't have to come out and say, hey, everybody, I'm gay. Okay, I can accept that, but then why doesn't he ever talk about, you know, when I went to such and such hotel with Nick, or Nick this, Nick that? Nothing about Nick. Like, we, we never heard about Nicholas Lamesh until he was already dead. I don't even know if the AC Weekly realized that this was may have been a secret. Maybe it's not a secret anymore because he's dead. Maybe Nick Lamesh wanted people to know. Maybe Nick Lamesh went to them. I, I don't know. I don't even know who this Nick Lamesh is. But it's definitely a dude. So apparently, Daryl McEwen was gay with a male partner for, quote, long time and just was not open about it. And that's really only significant because he wrote these columns for so many years and never mentioned it. The fact that he's gay is not a big deal. You know, if he's gay, he's gay. That's the way it is. But I think it's a generational thing because he's 72. If you think about the time that he grew up in, uh, it was not accepted in those days to be gay. So you couldn't be that open about it without being pretty harshly judged. And some people from that generation just internalized that they always have to hide it, even as the world changed and it became much, much more acceptable to be gay. So nowadays, you know, you, you say you're gay and here's my male partner, then people go, okay, whatever, you know, you're gay, no big deal. But uh, back in the days, when both when he grew up and even when he was uh, middle-aged, 
it was not as accepted. And so I think for that reason, he just went through life hiding it. That's just my theory. I, there's no way I can find out now because he's not alive anymore. But I don't think it's a coincidence that he never mentioned his partner, Nick. And you can't even say it's like a recent partner because they wrote a long-time partner. He, for all I know, he could have been with Nick for 40 years or maybe even longer than that. And I think he just kind of learned from when he was younger to keep it quiet and probably had a hard time breaking that habit. In fact, I've known other older gay men who were like that. There, there was a family friend that we had that was an older man, and it was clear that he was gay, and he would never admit it. And, and this, like Daryl McEwen, that guy has also passed away. And to his dying day, never admitted to people he was gay just because he, he grew up kind of believing that he's not supposed to do that. He grew up believing that he had to hide that from people, even as the world changed around him. So I think that was probably the case with Daryl McEwen. And, you know, it's too bad that he couldn't have just completely been himself. And I don't think his readers would have seen him any differently. I don't think people would have said, oh, I'm not reading the Seven Stars Insider anymore because Daryl's gay. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have cared about that. It, it, it wouldn't even be that interesting by itself if he hadn't hit it. So if I, like, first read his newsletter and someone said, oh, you know, by the way, that guy's gay and has a male partner. I go, okay, well, yeah, as long as the, info, as long as the information's good, I don't care what he does. I did have some minor issues with Daryl over the years. When I say minor issues, I really mean minor issues. We didn't, like, dislike each other or anything. But uh, I lost a little respect for the newsletter when they massively degraded the Seven Stars program. When I say they, of course, I mean Caesars. Nothing to have to do with him. But they massively degraded the Seven Stars program a few years ago by no longer offering people the guaranteed four free nights at any property at any time benefit, which was a great benefit. It wasn't based on your play. If you were a seven stars, you were guaranteed those four free nights. And they took it away. And that was a giant degradation. So it was annoying me when Daryl was writing about it and he was minimizing the impact of that, saying, well, uh, yes, they're taking it away, but for just about everybody, it's not going to matter because uh, they qualify for it anyway. So it's no big deal. So I wrote to him a very polite email, and I I'd communicated with him before, and we, we always got along fine, so that there, there wasn't any bad blood there. Like I, I, I sent him an email because I felt we had an open line of communication, and I explained to him, and I, I was careful when I was dealing with him there. I didn't want to say, hey, you know, you're a slots plop you, who chunks off a lot of money. At Caesars, of course, it doesn't affect you. You get your comp rooms anyway, but for guys like me, it affects me. Like I didn't, I was careful not to say it that way. I was careful to explain that a guaranteed benefit is very important, and that when that's taken away and you have to earn your your comps, then you're constantly under pressure to play, or otherwise you don't get your free rooms. But to have what you know is a guaranteed four night stay, no matter how much you've been playing or not playing recently, is is very nice to have, and that uh, people are going to start running into where they think they've played enough to have earned free rooms, only to find out when they try to book a uh, expensive weekend like New Year's that they don't qualify for it, they, they don't get it, and that uh, this is going to affect a lot of people. And I said, uh, I, I believe it probably doesn't affect you, but there's a number of us who are seven stars who will no longer get offered these free rooms, and I was one of them. So he didn't agree. He wrote back saying, no, that's not true. Um, 
uh, 95% of seven stars or more will still get the free rooms. I said that's not true, but even if it was, the problem is they don't know how long this is going to continue. So if they go a few months without playing, or if they if they have a few trips where they don't play that much, all of a sudden their their, their free room benefit's going to be gone. Here, you had it set in stone. You know you would always get it. And that's a huge difference than having to earn it. I also explained to him that if this is no longer a seven stars benefit, that even someone who's at the bottom tier, the gold tier, could have free rooms offered to them at any property if they've been playing a lot recently. And that this now becomes a function of how much uh, expected loss you have in the casino, which is called ADT, Average Daily Theoretical, rather than your tier level. So this is no longer a benefit of 7-star. They are taking away the free room benefit, and that if you are still getting free rooms offered to you, it's not because you're a 7-star, it's because of how much you've been playing. And he like wasn't getting it, because he had this tunnel vision that because he gets the free rooms offered, and he's a 7-star, that, well, everybody else probably will too except for a few people who abuse the system. I'm like, no, this isn't even about abusing the system. And there were some people responding to him on Twitter who were equally annoyed, including one guy who was also a recreational player, but just not as active as, as Daryl was. And the guy's going, look, I, I see right now I'm not getting these offers. I can't book for free anymore at certain places. So this is a big deal. And, and he just wasn't accepting it. So he did have a bit of a problem seeing the seven stars program through the eyes of anyone but himself and he was not a seven stars cheerleader he was not someone who just was looking to defend caesars at all costs and that was something i liked about him was he was willing to bash caesars when caesars did stupid things either minor stupid things or major stupid things and and i did like his brutal honesty about that and and people who read his newsletter i think that's one of the biggest reasons they came there was because they knew he would give it to them straight and was not a caesars fanboy so i give him big credit for that that he combined a lot of info, that he did his best to be accurate, he was an intelligent guy, and he was not a Caesar's kiss-ass. So these were all great things about him, but the only problem he had was that he really had a hard time seeing it from any point of view but his own. So if it didn't affect him personally, he felt things were okay. And that kind of annoyed me. I also had a, a minor debate with him that was also kind of annoying and a little bit along the same lines, about the Norwegian Cruise Line benefit that they gave you at Seven Star, where you would get a highly discounted cruise, but you were expected to pay the mandatory gratuities and the and like a small what they called admin fee, which is really just a small cruise fare, and taxes and port fees. So the debate I had with him was when I explained to him that the gratuities you're paying are not really gratuities. I explained to them that the cruise line's basically pocketing it. And I explained to him how they were pocketing it. I explained the whole thing. I showed him how he could see it for himself. He wouldn't accept it. He just kept coming back to me. No, no, no. These are gratuities. Yes, yes, yes. We're leaving tips. I said, no, you're not. You're not leaving. You you can try to feel like you're leaving. You, You can feel like you're leaving tips. You can think it'll make you feel good, but it's not true. You are not leaving tips. These mandatory gratuities are not tips. It's just Norwegian pocketing the money. He would not accept it. And he, he, he wrote me a lot of long emails back explaining how wrong I was. And I wasn't. I was right. But he was just kind of stubborn in that way. He's kind of like the stubborn old man that he had his mind made up. And there, even if you presented him verifiable facts, he, he didn't want to hear it. But these are kind of minor nitpicks. I, I just wanted to mention these. I When someone passes away, I'm not one of these people who likes to come forward and say everything about them was great. 
they had no flaws. So, yeah, I'm presenting exactly what I thought of him while he was alive, even though he's not alive anymore. I think the newsletter was very good. I think it was unique. I don't think there will ever be another one like it. I don't think there will be a replacement Seven Stars Insider. I know a lot of people are disappointed to see that gone, especially because they know there will not be someone else running it and doing all this work that he was doing on it. And he had a lot of different people contacting him, giving him tips and giving him information. That's how he was able to cover so much without personally traveling to all these different properties, which would have been impossible. And uh, as I said, he was an intelligent guy. He saw the Seven Stars program and the Caesars rewards and the Total Rewards program for what it was. Was not a Caesars fanboy. And, you know, it was an interesting thing to read and very informative. And I learned from it, especially in the earlier days before I understood the program as well myself. It was a very good resource for Caesars properties and it's going to be missed by a lot of people. And he did a great job with it. So even though there were some things about it and about him that I wish were a little bit different, uh, overall he did a very good job on it. And that's why it's notable that he's passed away and that's why I'm covering it on this show because I, I think a number of you probably read or used to read the Seven Stars Insider Newsletter. Uh, If anybody is listening to this show and you are gay and in the closet, I mean, this is time to come out. You might as well, because it's really very well accepted now. It's very different than it used to be. And all the young people know that. But the older group, people like Daryl's aging, he was 72, some of them are still kind of stuck in the old thinking that they just can't. But you can, and even people you think won't accept it pretty much will. And that's what I said for a long time before there were any uh, out gay males in poker. I was saying for years that nobody's going to care. That you can come out and say that you're gay and no one's going to really judge you or, or think badly of you or treat you badly because you're gay. They're, they're really not going to care. They really care about uh, your demeanor at the table and whether you're honest with other people and whether there's scandals around you. And you know, As long as you're a good citizen in the poker community, uh, that's all really anyone cares about. They, they don't care about your sexual preference. And sure enough, you, know, you have guys like Jason Somerville who came out and Ryan LaPlante and others who, who just nobody even thinks about the, the gay aspect of them. They just see them as people in the poker community. For a while, for whatever reason, there was a lot of hesitance for gay males in poker to come out. And there's still a lot of gay males in poker, I think, that are probably in the closet. Because there aren't that many gay males in poker compared to the number of overall males in poker. It just seems like the percentage is too low of, of out gay males in poker. But you know, if that's what you are, just say so. There's no point to hide. You can do what you want. If you want to hide, you can hide. But it's, it's got to be very burdensome to do that. And I, I've thought of this before, like how burdensome that might that must be. And it's something I've never had to deal with because you know, I've always been straight, so I've never had to worry about hiding anything like that. But I thought, you know what? If I were gay and I was only dating dudes, like the, the amount of work it would be to hide that and to explain why I never have a girlfriend, and like, it, it would be very, very draining to do. I would think it'd be so much easier just to tell people the truth, especially nowadays. 
But I guess once you get something into your head that it's something you're supposed to keep secret, it's, it's hard to break from it. I guess that's how Daryl McEwen felt. So I just can't picture that he wasn't trying to hide it. Otherwise, you would have seen at least one mention of Nick here in all these articles he wrote, and you never saw anything. Shoeshine Box saying, are you ready to announce something? No, I, I, uh, I have nothing to announce as far as that. I've never had the, uh, the slightest bit of any gay tendencies. I've, I've always known that I like girls and uh, not guys. And I'll admit, you know, growing up in the 80s, that made, made it a lot easier. Because in, the, in those days, it was not accepted to be gay. So it would have been tough. But I did not have to deal with that problem. And, you know, if I were gay, I would just be gay. I would be gay and I'd be open about it. I would not, like, force myself into a, a life that I wouldn't want. All right, so moving on here. We're going to talk about the Fountain Blue, which I have not talked about very much on this show. I think we've talked about it a little bit when Brandon's been on here. But it hasn't gotten that much attention from me or from really anybody. It's gotten little attention compared to what it is. And very simply put, it's an unfinished building that has been unfinished for over a decade on the Las Vegas Strip. And it's an eyesore. And I even wonder if it's safe at this point because it it was... uh, construction that stopped 11 years ago and has just been sitting there rotting away and i have to imagine that without it being maintained all this time and not even completed that who knows how safe that building is or if it has a lot of hazards at this point or uh, even if it's in danger of uh collapsing or something else like that because it's been sitting unmaintained for so long so fountain blue was a project that started in the mid-2000s, and it was interrupted by the real estate crash of the late 2000s. They began construction in February of 07. That was right around the peak of the 2000s real estate boom. And uh, then the crash of 08 happened which, as you guys know, really wreaked havoc upon Las Vegas. Las Vegas uh, property values fell apart. The general economic downturn left a lot of people without additional money to take to Vegas and play. So the visitorship to Vegas declined. Those who came were spending much less money. And Vegas real estate, which had been rocketing up crashed really hard, especially condos. Everything crashed, but condos really crashed hard. Fountain Blue was expected to have 2871 hotel rooms and uh, 1,018 condo units, which is kind of weird because uh, a lot of times those don't work out because a lot of people don't want to live where hotel guests come because hotel guests are not the best people to live with because they have no pride in ownership or pride in home, and they tend to be noisy and a pain in the ass. You you really don't want to live with these people. But anyway, the Fountain Blue, the the hotel is 737 feet high and 68 stories. And if you take away the stratosphere, 
it's actually the tallest building in Las Vegas, even though it's uh, still not totally complete. The project was in complete bankruptcy by 2010, and uh, Carl Icahn purchased it then, but he never restarted construction. It then sat for seven years untouched as an eyesore that just wasn't complete, and you could tell wasn't complete, and had the construction material around it. Uh, it's across the street from current Resorts World, so it was uh, in the north part of the Strip, and people were wondering what would ever happen to it. In August of 2017, it was sold to investment firms uh, Whitcroft Group and New Valley LLC for $600 million. And then in uh, February 2018, Whitcoff and Marriott announced a partnership to open up the resort as the Drew Las Vegas. And you may have remembered the Drew we discussed on this show. And uh, the founder of the Whitcoff Group, his name is Steve Whitcoff, he called it the Drew, who uh, it was named after his son, Andrew Whitcoff, who died at the age of 22 in 2011 of an OxyContin overdose. And the Drew was supposed to open in 2022. In fact, uh, Bobby Baldwin was supposed to be a uh, casino manager. He's supposed to be the casino manager at the Drew. And that's not going to end up happening because the Drew is not going to end up opening. One thing that was a problem was that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic interrupted the continued construction and they halted construction in March of 2020 when the world basically shut down. Finally, the Drew was sold back to uh, Fountain Blue Development, who originally... uh, had started this in the first place. And Coke Industries was a partner. That's not Coke, C-O-C-O-K-E, it's C-O-C-H. Marriott still was a partner, and they were still planning to opening it. Op- they were still planning to open it as JW Marriott Las Vegas in October of 2023. So this wasn't coming up super soon, but it was uh, about uh, two years from now that it was going to be open. JW Marriott Las Vegas was officially on Marriott.com. And they talked about the plans for the property. So it was the third name it was planned to have. First Fontainebleau, then the Drew, and then JW Marriott Las Vegas. Now, again, Marriott did not own this. They were going to be the ones operating it. And they had a partnership with Fountain Blue Development and Coke Industries. Well, the update I have for you on this, and the reason we're doing this segment, is that JW Marriott decided the whole thing is a clusterfuck, and they have backed out of it. So Marriott announced in... They announced this month in October that they are not going to be part of this anymore, that they have exited it. Spokeswoman Sarah Connaughton told the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and this was uh, last week, that the hotel chain Marriott reached an amicable settlement with the hotel's owner that has resulted in Marriott exiting the project. 
So they decided that they are not going to be running the JW Marriott to Las Vegas, that they had some kind of settlement where presumably they paid some money back to the Fountain Blue and got out of it. So uh, it's not clear what's going to happen now. They've had a lot of problems there. So first they had the problem with the real estate crash and the subsequent bankruptcy. Then they had the uh, problem with the long time passing where they didn't do anything with it and just sat under construction and who knows what damage it took during that time from all the neglect. And uh, then they had the problem with the Drew never opening and with the pandemic halting construction in March of 2020. And now uh, Marriott is backing out. They just, I have a feeling they just think the whole thing's a mess and it's, it's never going to work. They said that the hotel will be managed and operated by Fountain Blue Development and uh, that they are not the ones who made the agreement with Marriott. <laughs> so it looks like the uh, current owner is blaming the previous owner for this whole thing saying, hey, look, this wasn't our agreement. We never wanted this in the first place, so they were happy to have them gone. They didn't say that directly, but that's what they're implying. They said, having come full circle and taking taking ownership of the site in Las Vegas, we intend to fulfill our original vision and deliver the same extraordinary hospitality experience that our guests have come to expect from Fountain Blue Development. So, yeah, the original people are back involved, but it's not clear when they're going to resume construction and open it, and they're not saying if it's going to be called... uh, Fountain Blue again, or if it's just going to have a fourth name. They first conceived Fountain Blue in 2005. And as I said, they started the work in 2007. Marriott will not give any information as to why they've backed out of this. I have my theories, as I've already told you, but they aren't saying anything about it. Marriott when the sale occurred, said that nothing has changed with respect to our role in the project. They said, Marriott remains the hotel operator. We have two brands, the Edition and JW Marriott, that are part of this resort and casino complex. So I guess they were going to be running, uh, I don't know, two towers or whatever, the Edition and JW Marriott, but now they're not going to run anything. And any emails asking them for more details, they would not give. They just ignored the emails. So they clearly don't want to say why they're backing out of this. But I, I think we can read between the lines that they're backing out because the whole thing looks like a fail. And they've realized that it's not something they want to be associated with. I asked on Vegas Casino Talk, which is a sister site to Poker Fraud Alert that I also operate. I asked on Vegas Casino Talk if people would feel comfortable staying at Fountain Blue given its long time of not being worked on and being under construction but not completed and not maintained and the overwhelming consensus was no people would not feel comfortable there people felt like the whole thing was rotting away and that uh, even if they try to repair it and uh, make it look like there was never this uh, long layover that uh, you're going to feel uncomfortable like you're you're in a place that uh was neglected too long and is about ready to fall over. I mean, it's, it's, uh, that's going to be about people's minds that uh, something left like this for so long isn't safe. It just feels weird to stay in a high rise like that. And I don't really know of many high rises that sat like that for so long and then eventually completed and opened. 
However, it would be very expensive to blow up the whole thing and start over. Now, maybe it hasn't degraded like I think it might have. Maybe the lack of maintenance, these are things that are easily fixable, and that it hasn't been like 30 years, it's, it's been more like 10, but still, that, that's a long time to have a property that's not actively maintained and used. And a lot of problems can come up from the lack of use itself. If you think, uh, like, for example, let's say you have a car in your garage. Let's say you go on a trip for two weeks and don't use the car. Well, no problem. In all likelihood, the car will start and run just fine, even though it's been sitting for two weeks. However, if you leave the car in the garage for five years, uh, it's very unlikely the car is going to be able to start for a variety of reasons, and there may be some major problems with it for sitting there and never moving for five months, uh, for five years. Whereas had you driven that car every day for five years, it'd be fine. So sometimes not using something can cause a lot of problems you wouldn't expect. It's not just a matter of uh, actively maintaining it, it's even not being used. And a lot of unexpected things will happen. So I'm not sure how comfortable I'd be staying at a property like that. And I think that would be on a lot of people's minds. In addition, now it's across the street from Resorts World, which isn't necessarily good because you may think, well, if you're going to want to stay in that area of the Strip, why not just stay Resorts World? Furthermore, they couldn't be very happy with how Resorts World is doing. It's, it's basically been a fail, and they're charging much lower prices to stay there than they expected. And I've covered that on other episodes of this show, that Resorts World is really having a hard time filling rooms and getting the price point that they really wanted when they built the mega resort. And there's a question as to whether this is going to be viable long-term or if it's going to fail. So if Resorts World that didn't have all the challenges that Fountain Blue had is struggling, can you imagine what Fountain Blue will have right across the street? Now, I guess the optimistic viewpoint would be that another major casino opening across the street could help to improve the area and help to improve people's perception that Resorts World and Fountain Blue is, is a, it's a good place to be on the Strip rather than Center Strip where people want to be right now. That's one problem Resorts World is battling is that it's the North Strip where people really don't want to be and it's next to a lot of things that are not known to be desirable like Circus Circus, like a, a Denny's and, and McDonald's right across the street. It just isn't the type of place that you picture as the Las Vegas Strip. Whereas the area where Caesars, the Bellagio, and the Ari, and the Cosmo, that's where you picture. That's where you picture all the action is, where you want to be. It seems like kind of high-end for the most part. Uh, Resorts World kind of seems like it's its own little island attempting to be high-end in between a bunch of stuff that isn't. So maybe Fountain Blue opening across the street could help with that. But then again, maybe not. So I don't know if that has any future. They haven't even said what the projecting projected opening date will be or what it will even be called it's possible fountain blue just does not want to hit the panic button here or at least not publicly but in reality they may be looking for a new partner to operate it 
or might want to flip it once again. Remember, they've sold before. They may want to sell it again now that Marriott has jumped ship. It is possible that this will never open. And it is possible eventually this will just be blown up and they'll build something else there. Taking a look at our text we got from Desert Runner. He said, Druff, get Dan Bilzerian to call into PFA radio. Yeah, I think it'd be tough at this point. I think years ago I probably could have managed that. I think now he's too big. But if you want to text me, 775-372-8355. In the chat room, we've had a lot more action tonight than usual. CGen saying it really is an eyesore. They should demolish it or let unemployed junkies live. Let unemployed junkies live there. I think the latter is probably already happening. But yeah, it's a total eyesore. It's so weird going by this thing for years and years and years, and it's just this perpetually under construction but no progress building. I don't think people want to stay there. I think it's become more of a joke than anything else. Okay, so we're going to finish off by talking about the latest civil forfeiture scandal. I've been covering these on this show to bring light to the civil forfeiture issue, which is a big problem and is really legalized theft. And I I want people who listen to this show to watch out for it and not to take an attitude like it can't happen to you, because it can. And you shouldn't think, oh, well, this will only happen to people who are acting suspicious, but I'm sure they would never actually take my money because I'm not committing any crimes. No, they would. They'll take your money. If they they find you carrying money, they will take it from you. So you really, really got to watch out with the civil forfeiture thing. So here's one of the latest scandals with that. So there were two businessmen, two Asian businessmen, Nang Tai and Wei Chuan Liu, who were carrying over $100,000 with them in cash on their way to a hotel in Oklahoma City. These guys were both from New Mexico. And this was back in uh, April 2021. They were on I-40. They were driving a BMW. And all of a sudden, they got pulled over in Oklahoma on I-40. They weren't that far from Oklahoma City. And uh, they were about to spend $100,000 cash on a plot of farmland in Oklahoma City. A sheriff's deputy came to their car and uh, ended up taking all of their cash. They said that uh, they were suspecting that uh, these guys were carrying drugs and wanted to search the car. They did search the car. They did not find any drugs, but they found a bunch of cash in the vehicle. They found more than 100K. And uh, one of the two men was able to speak English, and he explained to them what was going on. This is Nang Tai, the one who could speak English. He had a heavy accent, but he was able to speak and uh, told the officer which hotel they were going to, and yes, they had cash, and that uh, they were going to buy some land. And uh, when they searched the car and found all this cash, they were told that they are suspected of illegal activity. And then the men were told to sit in the car, and the car they. Not only searched the car, but they also searched. Uh, they also checked their background, and found that uh, one of the two men had a 2017 conviction for growing marijuana in California. Not dealing marijuana necessarily, but growing it. 
So then they were interrogated at a police station for hours. And even though there was no drugs, no guns or anything else illegal found in the car, that they were told this is illegal money. Nang Tai said, prove it. We didn't do anything illegal. Well, they didn't realize what was going on here, that they don't have to prove it. They just take it. And then they have to get their money back by proving it was acquired legally, which is tough. So they were not charged with any crime. They didn't even get any kind of traffic ticket. But they didn't get their cash back. And that was the whole point of this. These seizures are to steal money from motorists. They pull over out-of-state motorists, and then they attempt to figure out if there's cash in the car. And if there is, they just take it, and then they try to make it impossible for you to get back. Court papers filed by the DA say that the money was seized because it was intended to be used to violate drug laws or had already been acquired from illegal drug transactions, but they did not give any proof of this other than this uh, 2017 conviction for growing marijuana in California, but that doesn't really say anything that that's how they got this money. They have since acquired attorneys to attempt to get this back. Is The only way you can get it back is by getting an attorney and uh, suing to have it returned. But not only that, the two men are claiming that $10,000 has just outright disappeared, that uh, $141,500 was seized, and the sheriff department is saying that they took $131,500. So who knows what happened there? I assume that they're telling the truth and that they think the cops just maybe pocketed 10K of it and then seized the rest of it for the county. Nang Tai said, now I have to prove I'm innocent. They're the ones who illegally took my money and basically stole some of my money too. No, you're wrong. They stole all your money. (laughs) And there is nothing in the court docket that has any records about the traffic stop or the seizure And the sheriff's office and DA will not comment on this to NBC News when they attempted to investigate. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? You don't get any comment from the sheriff or the DA's office? Why do you think that is? Could it be because they just stole these poor guys' money and don't really have a case against them? The seller of the land acknowledged that these two were coming there to buy the land. And he said, I was shocked when I heard of the confiscation of their money, he told NBC News. And he said he had already drawn up a contract to sell the property to Nang Tai for $100,000 even. NBC News looked at the agreement and did see it existed. They seemed very nice and like intelligent business people, said the seller. He would not give his name. He said, I feel bad for them in the situation. When I say he wouldn't give his name, NBC News knows it, but uh, they agreed to keep it anonymous. So this was, again, a legalized theft, it looks like, by the local government there in Oklahoma, in uh, the county there where it occurred. Canadian County is what it's called. And as I've mentioned on other episodes of Poker Fraud Alert Radio, this occurs because counties, usually small counties or small cities, 
want to raise money for the local police department, which often is underfunded, and they abuse civil forfeiture law to steal money from motorists passing by the area. And they love to pull over out-of-state cars because they're more likely to be carrying cash. And it's also harder for them to fight to get back the cash. There is no real suspicion of the money being obtained or used illegally. That is an excuse to take it. And that is why they just take it and they do not provide any evidence that they know this is drug money because they don't. They don't and they don't care. They just want the money. They just want to steal it. If you were to ask an officer who is involved in doing it how he in good conscience could steal this money from passing motorists, how could they steal large sums of money from people and basically take their life savings sometimes when they know they didn't commit any crimes, the answer you would get is, oh, that's what they always say. But why would someone carry this much cash around? Why would someone be driving with $100,000? I don't believe their story. I think it was a drug deal. We're getting the story after the fact. That was their excuse. Most people who drive with that type of money, it's drug money. So we're an underfunded department. We've got to get money from somewhere, and, and we're seizing it from drug dealers who then afterwards claim victim. That, that would be their answer, but it's, it's wrong. It's not true. There's a lot of reasons to carry a lot of cash, either for all cash transactions or uh, for gambling. In fact, they will sometimes target routes that are used by cars that go to and from casinos. And they know certain people will uh, be leaving with money they won from the casino. And they'll pull them over and they will attempt to uh, search for cash. And if they find a lot of it, they will take it. There's even been some really egregious cases of casinos tipping off these corrupt police departments that people are leaving the casino and they would describe their car and sometimes even give a license plate number so they'll be on the lookout for these cars to pull them over and take their money. And uh, casinos will sometimes do this if they're mad at advantage players that they feel took them for a lot of money, but there's nothing legally they can do about it. So this is the way they get them back. This should not happen. There should never be any kind of seizure unless they have very strong evidence that a crime has been committed. You can't just say, oh, well, show us you got the money legally. It doesn't work that way. They have to know and have strong evidence that this money was obtained illegally. And very rarely do they have that. Different states have different rules regarding civil forfeiture, but it doesn't really matter because uh, there is what's called equitable sharing. I don't know if that was the case here, but uh, there's something called equitable sharing that allows the federal government to have their agents be involved in the seizure. And then it supersedes any protection that is given by state governments against civil forfeiture. And that ended under Obama, one of the few things that was done by Eric Holder that I approve of. And unfortunately, it was reinstated by uh, one of Trump's people. So it is back. But before you blame the terrible Republicans for this, notice that uh, 
Joe Biden has not reversed that, even though he's reversed a lot of things that Trump did. I mean, the, his first week in office, he reversed like 125 things Trump did, and this was not one of them. Not only that, Joe Biden was the creator of civil forfeiture in the early 80s. You can look that up. He was the creator of this. And even if he has since changed his mind and thinks it's bad, because this basically got perverted over the years. This was not started out as something for legalized theft. It was a tool against drug dealers, which got perverted into something that targets innocent people. But you would think Joe Biden as the president would make this happen. And he's been in office for a while now, and he's made no motion to do so. He hasn't even stated the intention to do so. It would be nice if he did. As far as Oklahoma goes, prosecutors are required to prove preponderance of the evidence that the property is connected to a crime. And uh, up to 100% of the proceeds go to law enforcement. So as you can see, that's a lot of incentive. Preponderance of the evidence is a pretty uh, low standard, unfortunately. That means like uh, 50.01%. So that's pretty bad. You really want a higher standard of evidence than that. And that means Oklahoma just really not, doesn't have a very strong protection against civil forfeiture. That is uh, probably a state where it's easier to happen. You at least need something like clear and convincing evidence to have any kind of protection here. Preponderance of the evidence is very low, and that can be manipulated. Preponderance of the evidence is uh, sometimes known as uh, 50% plus a feather, or 50.01%. Basically, if it's like 50-50, if something's true or not, and it's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit on one side, then that's preponderance of the evidence. That is usually the standard in civil lawsuits. So that's why you can win a civil lawsuit much more easily than a criminal case can be won against you. Criminal cases uh, are beyond a reasonable doubt. So in a criminal trial, if it's believed that there's a 50.01% chance that you're guilty, then you will not be convicted because that is not high enough of a standard. Whereas in a civil case, uh, you would lose it if it was 50.01% against you. So this is a bad situation that this keeps occurring. As I've said before, here are some tips to avoid being a victim of civil forfeiture. Number one, do not carry cash, especially a large amount of cash, on a long drive through unfamiliar territory. So uh, if, if you're going to be driving through several states, don't carry large amounts of cash because you never know if you're going to be pulled over and your car searched. Often what happens is they have drug dogs that are trained to pretend to sniff drugs in your car. And then you're told a drug, do a drug dog has uh, detected drugs and you can either consent to a search or they're going to get a warrant and you'll have to sit around and wait for that. So what most people do at that point is they consent to the search and say, okay, well, yeah, I don't want to wait for a warrant, so fine, um, search it. I know I have no drugs in there. And then they find your cash and then they take it. Once you are pulled over, you really don't have much of a choice. They're, they're going to keep on you until they... Uh, get the money. 
you should never consent to a search when you're pulled over and told that you are suspected of carrying drug money or, or dealing drugs or whatever. You should never consent to any kind of search. You should make it as difficult as possible. However, you are taking the risk that they are going to take you down and hold you while they are uh, attempting to get the warrant. So the real strategy in this whole thing is to avoid being pulled over in the first place. And the way you do that is you make sure you are not carrying a lot of cash if you're driving through unfamiliar areas that are out of state. So if you have out of state plates from where you presently are, and especially if you're not familiar with that route, then there's a higher chance you'll be pulled over. Because if you're familiar with it, that means you've gone on it a lot of times and it's never happened to you before, which makes the chance of it much lower. Any route that uh, goes from out of state places to a casino are often targeted. I-80 in northern Nevada is frequently hit by cops who are looking to seize people's money. We covered one of those situations recently on this show. Apparently this I-40 in Oklahoma is hit a lot. There's a highway in Iowa that gets hit a lot, though. I forgot which highway it is. But if it's something that goes to or from a casino, that makes it more likely because they know a lot of people leave casinos with money or sometimes go to casinos with money. Obeying traffic laws doesn't really matter. You may say, well, I don't speed and I obey traffic laws, so they're never going to pull me over. False. They will find an excuse to pull you over because they're not pulling you over to write you tickets. They're pulling you over to seize your money. The best thing you can do is not have money that you're driving with in unfamiliar areas. If you do have a lot of money that you leave the casino with, you should find a way to get rid of it before you do any kind of long drive home. You can deposit it in a bank or you can take the money in check format in the first place, but find some way to dispose of the money before you take such a long road trip because otherwise you could be pulled over and it could be confiscated. If you think the casino might be pissed at you, such as money you made through an advantage play, even if you think they haven't caught you, you do not want to drive with a large sum of money back to wherever you came from because the casino may actually identify your car to various police departments around the country to pull you over and take it from you. And this has happened before, as I've talked about on this show. One way around that is to switch rental cars, if you do have a rental car. So if you do have a rental car and you're afraid that might happen, and you don't want to get rid of the money, you just want to bring the cash back and take a chance, at the very least, go to the rental car place and swap cars. Don't tell them why. Just say you'd like to change cars and uh, say you don't like this car for whatever reason, and switch cars, and then they will not have that information. In one of these stories I've told before about this, uh, someone got lucky that they did switch cars, and they didn't even switch for that reason. They just happened to have switched cars, and that was what saved them, and they did not get pulled over while everyone else in their AP group did. So you got to be careful about that as well, that the casinos could report you. But in general, I would avoid carrying a lot of cash in your car on the highway. Now, if it's a route you've driven many times with no problem, like 
for example, LA to Vegas on I-15, I've never seen this happen or heard about it happening before. So if you're an LA gambler, you want to drive a bunch of cash to Vegas, I'm not saying it's 100% nothing will happen, but I'm saying I've never heard of this happening before on that route. Part of the reason it probably isn't happening is because there really are not a lot of counties you're passing through. And those that you are passing through, uh, they're not small or poor. So think of going from L.A. to Vegas. You will typically pass through L.A. County and uh, San Bernardino County, sometimes Riverside County, depending upon the which, which way you're going, and then Clark County. So Clark County is not going to do this because uh, they've got Las Vegas there. So the last thing they want to do is disincentivize people from going to Las Vegas. So they're not going to do this. Nor is Clark County cash-strapped. L.A. County, obviously not cash-strapped. They're huge. And uh, San Bernardino County, is it's actually the largest or second largest county area-wise in the country. But most of that is just nothingness. But they're not one of these tiny counties that's really hurting for money, and they've be- never been known to do this. So really, that's a pretty safe drive to make. It has to be something where the county is in on it. And none of the counties between L.A. and Vegas are like that. And same with San Diego and Vegas. However, northern Nevada is a different story. And the counties there, some of them definitely are on board for this. Uh, you can also Google civil forfeiture and you can enter the counties you'll be going through or the states you'll be going through and see what's been found. If there are cases of civil forfeiture, even one, that you find along the route that you're going to be driving, I would be really worried. You're either going to find none or you're going to find some. And if you find some, that even one, then that's something to watch out for. And again, once this happens, you're going to have a real hard time. Now, if you do get pulled over and they do take your money, do not sign anything that gives them permission to do it because it makes it that much harder. They, they may threaten to hit you with charges and they may say, if you don't sign this, then uh, we're gonna, we might prosecute you. You say to them, I'm, I'm not going to sign anything. I did nothing wrong. If you seize this, then you seize this and uh, that's your choice, but I'm not going to sign anything giving this to you. I didn't commit a crime. You can't convict me of a crime and I know you can't charge me and you can just refuse to sign it. It's unlikely they will actually take you to jail and arrest you because they know what they're doing. It's a scare tactic. And there you could actually sue them for false arrest. There you would actually have uh, a strong case. So I would call their bluff in those cases and just say I'm not signing this. And I didn't do anything wrong. You have no proof I did anything wrong. And I, I'm not, not going to sign that I give you permission to take my money. There have been times that the money has been returned despite that being signed because it was done basically under duress. But it, it becomes difficult to get the money back. And uh, it can be a long process. And also, if it's not enough money to justify paying a lawyer to do so, then you may end up paying more in legal fees to get it back than the money's actually worth. And they count on that as well. If you are a victim of it, I would suggest getting an attorney, provided it's an amount that is worth spending an attorney uh, spending money on the attorney for. Do not just let the government take it. It is legalized theft. This was not an act of, of uh, confusion or wrongful suspicion. 
They are not suspicious of anything. They're just there to steal. They've done it to people before you. They will do it to people after you. So some people walk away saying, well, this sucks. They must have a lot of problem with drug dealing around here. And I got caught up in this. Oh, well, this really sucks. I'm mad about it. But, you know, at least they're trying to do law enforcement work. They're trying to stop drug dealing over there. I guess I just got the bad luck of being wrongly suspected of one of them. So, oh, well, don't take that attitude. That's not what they're doing. They're actually stealing. And again, they do it because they need the money. And they justify to themselves, hey, nobody would carry that type of cash unless they're doing something wrong. It is your right as an American to carry around whatever cash you feel like carrying around. There is no crime in carrying a lot of cash in your car. You could carry $10 million in your car if you want. No crime in that. So don't feel guilty about carrying cash like you can't do it or it's illegal in some way. It's not. If you're just going to a casino, you may want to consider wiring money there beforehand and then sending it back so you don't have to drive with the money. These are all things you should consider. And it can happen to you. But one thing you really should do is, is Google where you're going. Look the look at the routes, look at the states, look at the counties, and keep Googling for civil forfeiture and see if anything comes up. And if something comes up, watch out. That's all I can say. We'll see if by the end of the Biden administration, if at least equitable sharing is stopped again. Hopefully it will be. But ideally, this would be made illegal completely. Ideally, this would be completely stopped and completely revoked from a federal level. That they'll just put an end to it because whatever good came from it is now long gone. Now it's just being used to steal. So it just needs to be done away with. Or, as I said, there is a fix to it. If they really want to target drug dealers, the fix to it would be to set a very high threshold of like $500,000 to where people are not likely to be carrying it, plus... Uh, a high standard of evidence that a crime has been committed. So if you put those two together, then the average person will not be pulled over because they're not going to waste their time pulling people over repeatedly to try to get $500,000 because no one's going to be carrying that. So they have to have advanced knowledge that someone is, and otherwise random traffic stops wouldn't work. So setting a very high minimum for civil forfeiture would work as well. But I just say get rid of the whole thing. All right, so that's all we got this week. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I apologize that we've been off the air for two weeks, but actually I guess we were only off for one week. We missed a week, but it's because of that vaccine. I don't Imagine we're going to have that many uh, off weeks coming up. And you know, if I go to Vegas, maybe I'll even do a show from there, like I used to do when I was at the World Series of Poker. Never let the World Series of Poker completely stop me from doing Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We just had to kind of uh, move it around. We've been moving the show around a lot recently anyway. Looks like we never got uh, Trader Ruski tonight or Brandon, but that's okay. We got Cal Watt at the beginning. And I did the remainder myself. It is a bit weird looking at all these World Series results, especially in events that I always play, like these Limit Hold'em events. And I'm just not there. I just have no presence. It's like 
what the World Series of Poker would look like if I were dead. Not that I was ever present there. I only played like 10 events a year. But at least I was there and playing a lot of, or multiple of events in a given year. Kind of throughout the series. I'd play some, I'd leave for a while, I'd come back and play some again, I'd play the main event to end off the whole thing. Here I'm just not there. You don't see me in the chip counts, you don't see me in the notable players lists, you don't see my updates on at Dandruff Poker that hasn't been touched in over two years. In fact, if I were to come from the past, let's say you transported me from two years ago, from October 19, 2019, okay? And you bring me to today and tell me to go look at the at Dandruff Poker Twitter account where I do my chip updates and I see that even though over two years have passed that I haven't updated that account since July of 2019. I would say, oh crap, I must have died. Because we have two straight World Series where I didn't play at all or announced why I wasn't playing. I must have died in this time. Crap. That's what I would say if I could see this into the future from October 2019 to today. I would never guess a pandemic had to do with that. But I think I've stayed away for too long and it might be time for me to make my return. Stay tuned for that. Shalom. Shalom.